Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you know, this Um... <laughs> chart music. <laughs> chart music. Crazy youngsters, and welcome to the latest episode of Chart Music, the podcast that gets its hands right down the back of the settee on a random episode of Top of the Pops. I'm your host, Al Needham, and the shoulders I stand upon today belong to Neil Kulkarne and Taylor Parks. Yeah, hello. Don't you think we should soup these up a bit? We we deserve hey. more more professional introductions. You say uh, Taylor Parks, author of Two Thousand and One, an inventor of the communication satellite. <laughs> now in retreat in Sri Lanka, he ponders the riddles of this and other worlds, harmful to aquatic life with long-lasting effects. No, let's carry on doing what we normally do. <laughs> and we should have catchphrases. I, I might go with, nice to see you, to see you, cunt. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good one. And at the end, one of us should say, and it's good night from me. And then the other one should say, and it's good night from that cunt. <laughs> and then we both say, good night. Q Starfield. Are you going on chat GPT for your biog or something? Because, <laughs> yeah. I was outraged that mine says I'm from Wolverhampton, man. Really? <laughs> yeah. Mine says that death. I wrote for Sounds, Melody Maker, and The Enemy, and Vice. Fuck that. <laughs> mine says I prefer looking at paintings from behind. <laughs> I don't know where they got that from. Anyway, boys, put your hands on my belly, and I'll say, do you want to fill me with all the pop and interesting things that have occurred of late? I've been doing a bit of work. I've been working with Rudy from AR Kane. Oh, yeah. Oh, nice. Sleeve notes for their latest box set. Fuck me. It's been fun, but AR Kane were ad copywriters, you know what I mean? Mm. So preparing copy for them was somewhat nerve wracking. I've been um, decorating my house, trying to control my cat. I'm having a nice burn up every night, though, in my newly swept chimney. Oh, oh God, I've turned into such a fire wanker <laughs> about that. Or conflagration cunt, if you'd rather. <laughs> but um, anyway, far away from such middle-class bougie concerns, I've also spent possibly the strangest night I have in many a year. Oh, really? Yeah, a night that I'm not sure I can talk about with full candour, because I don't want to wake up with my tongue buried on a beach somewhere. <laughs> I went to a Masonic ladies' night. Oh, yes, you did, yes. It was a bizarre an odd glimpse of how the elites live right with a tombola thrown in as well um <laughs> did you win no it's fucking fixed wasn't it no, of course it coppers was. in the room <laughs> i mean as you can imagine it was very like a cool in the gang ladies night mm. i mean it wasn't a night special everywhere from new york to hollywood this was in warwick right. a town that i've never got along with not just because of warwick uni 
planting its ugly, snobbish presence in Coventry. But also, like most medieval towns, it's kind of wonky and wrong and not fit for purpose. Oh, yes. And the bathroom in my hotel was so misshapen and small, I had to sit with my legs at 10am just to have a decent dump. Oh, no! (laughs) I should perhaps explain how I ended up at a Masonic Mm. Ladies' Night. Um, but obviously I'm going to have to protect names so that I can continue on Chart Music Podcast and as a teacher with my vocal cords still effective. <laughs> so my dear friend, Name Redacted, is partner to a chap called Name Redacted. Mm. This fella, he happens to have been a grand worshipful master of the local masons for the past year as it combines his loves of dressing up and ridiculous ceremony mm. and, and charity work. Oh, that sounds a bit familiar. <laughs> does he go for really long walks as well? <laughs> no, he doesn't. God. No, he doesn't. He doesn't jingle jingle. But, um, <laughs> uh, you know, my dear friend as partner to Grand Worship Former Master is therefore Lady name redacted for that year and, and commensurate with that role is her responsibility to put together a ladies night mm. in which you know money's raid and speeches are made and, and get a stripper on yeah and gavels are banged um she invited me and, and a few cov mates along as moral support and as a sort of general buttress against the sheer weirdness of the evening. Mm. Um, I mean, we were, of course, all determined at some point to stumble down corridors we shouldn't have, you know, and, and chance upon the summoning of Osmodius or something. But mm. <laughs> truth be told, as soon as we stepped into the Masonic Hall, we were whisked upstairs and we were straight into this kind of bizarre devil rides out style furnishings in this room there was a a magnificent checkerboard black and white rug that carpeted the room and we patiently waited for it to turn into a walling vortex that Mm. would tumble us into a netherworld of arcane occultism it didn't instead a nice chap called bill who like all the masons there was identifiable by his bow tie and evening dress got us some champagne and we looked at the bizarre aprons and symbols and thrones not daring really to ask what any of it meant um yeah, it was weird. And then it was downstairs for a three-course meal and the speeches, which was all kind of normal, apart from a couple of Were things. Were there serving wenches? <laughs> no, there weren't, actually. Oh, it was ladies' night, wasn't it? It was ladies' night. Were there any kind of, like, waiters in aprons, and then you turn around and you could see their bare arse? <laughs> no. I, oh, although that we did leave early, may, Maybe that's how the night went. I don't know. We were on top table, man. It was Fucking great. Hell. And we noticed when we sat down that the table had a massive gavel on it. Right. Kind of the heft and weight of a hefty sofa leg but sort of shaped like a dunce's cap and we started to notice as the ceremony started that the grand worshipful master was able to bang this on the table with this kind of shocking loudness and reverberance and then every other table would answer with their own gavel right it's like a dub style effect really (laughs) Um, we should unhinge things more there were speeches there was this raffle which was a total fucking stitch up what was the top prize a child's heart (laughs) I think it was one of those horrible days where you go away and drive a fast car or something. Ugh. Yeah, it was a fix, that that raffle. It had that real West Midlands serious crime squad feel <laughs> in terms of corruption. But basically, I mean, the entire room looked populated with bent coppers. I was one of only about two non-white people in the room. Right. But um, my suit, cravat and spats meant that I passed for civilised. <laughs> the, the most bizarre moment, though, we had to toast the king Ugh. and also sing the national anthem. Oh, for fuck's sake, Neil. <laughs> I know I did it as well, craven and pathetic as I am. I, I, as a Republican-minded person, I should have kept my mouth yeah. shut. But, you know, this is the power of these things. And and 
The night ended with me sort of boogieing to Luther Vandross, and I requested the Cool and the Gang song. Of course. But it was very telling for me the next day that we, me, me and my girlfriend, we had a little stroll around Warwick Castle. Uh, my girlfriend asked the Grand Worshipful Master, who we were giving a lift back to Cov, you know, about the castle. And he was full of kind of, oh, well, you know, we do a barbecue every year. You should come and, and we do a tour. <laughs> That's how they fucking get you, innit? Yes. So I think it will be my last Masonic encounter because... Mm. Um, Looking around that room, I just thought, you know, if I put myself about right here, I may well not only be able to speed through 50 mile per hour zones on the motorway, I could also probably get embroiled in Warwickshire's biggest swinging scene. Oh, yes. A very strange night, a brush with the Masons, which uh, I'm hoping will never happen again. Did you win the day driving the fast car? No, I didn't. I was going to say, I was going to ask you if you've got a sunroof for the antlers to poke out the top. (laughs) (laughs) No. It was a total fix, man. It, 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 you know, because the, the, the Masons, they were identifiable because they all, were all in sort of evening dress, you know, like black bow tie and all of that. Yeah. And they were the only fuckers going up and winning any prizes. <laughs> Whereas us Auslanders, we, yeah, we were just sort of cold-shouldered in that regard. But uh, an insight that I don't want to repeat, because I suspect that room upstairs with the thrones and the compasses and all of that, that's where the real sick shit goes on that they don't put on when outsiders are in the building. Mm, you know? uh, Taylor! Um, well, I can't compete with that. No. I've just been <laughs> cooking my coronation quiche. <laughs> mm, Lovely. Broad beans and tarragon. Mm. <laughs> Makes you feel so proud to be British, doesn't it? <laughs> Truly a quiche to put the great back into great Scott. That looks disgusting. <laughs> Fuck it out. Anyway, I paid a servant to make mine. I was too busy working on my black exploitation film about one of the old ladies from Faulty Towers. <laughs> working title, They Call Me Miss Tibbs. <laughs> and I know it's irresponsible putting a joke that obscure this close to the top of the show, but it's all I can manage this month. I sound old because I've been feeling old. At this point, it's only the fact that I knocked two years off my age in defiance of the pandemic that's keeping me under 50 can you believe it I've, I've reached that age where you're supposed to relax a bit slow down and mm. enjoy the fruits of your labor uh which in my case are three crab apples and a lime <laughs> and i'm not expecting to get rich poking holes in things even though a lot of people who do it far less well are millionaires and i appreciate that there are those many many chart music listeners who allow me to sleep with their wives or girlfriends in front of them out of sheer admiration and gratitude <laughs> tears in their eyes they say sir i don't mind that she's going to go with you while i watch because it means I get to meet you, which is heartening. <laughs> but apart from that, what do I get? Just this sense that it's all my own fault. So bear with me. It's like being an actor who's also a dwarf in 1970. Like you sat there <laughs> waiting for your phone to ring, and like every three years your agent calls, and he's like, oh, yeah, good news, we found another part for you. What? Oh, yes, actually, it is playing an eccentric, evil millionaire's personal butler. How did you guess that? <laughs> uh, but this is how it is now. It's like I've been showing my dog at Crufts, and in the obedience round, it leapt up and bit the judge's throat out. You know, it's not mm. going to be oh well maybe next year right i've set my <laughs> expectations out 
But I've been keeping busy. I was out oh, good. the other week watching a, a live on-stage interview with some of the old composers from KPM, the library music company. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. One of whom was John Cameron and one of whom was Alan Parker. That is to say, the co-composer of and guitarist on the piece of music the Pop Crazy Youngsters were hearing just a moment ago. Oh, Brother, brother. by CCS. Oh. Lovely to be in the same room as them. Mm. Although, I didn't mention anything about this podcast in case. <laughs> they wanted money <laughs> yes um, thank fog what else oh it was my birthday last month oh or this month as it used to be called i can't <laughs> keep up with this changing times no major cause for celebration except that i didn't die which Yay. is something i'm quite paranoid about dying on my own birthday mm. because aside from making me something of a party pooper mm. uh, as though there were any party <laughs> it would render me utterly predictable in death because it means that every single person who looked at my gravestone would say exactly the same thing, mm. apart from good riddance. <laughs> <laughs> or he could afford a gravestone then. <laughs> yeah. No, you and Shakespeare, Taylor, that's what I'd say. Oh, and also, I've been listening to this great podcast called Chart Music. Oh, really? It's really long, but you don't have to listen to it all in one go. <laughs> I love the Grain Jill bit in the last episode. Yes. And I'm grateful that you put in that completely true story about me in the midnight. Yes. Encountering the just say no era Grand Jill cast in the green room of the word where they were indeed running around looking very animated mm-hmm. and singing to each other just say yes. Yeah. It's all accurate, but I should add this detail. The most tragic bit was Melissa Wilkes, Melissa Grand Prix Wilkes, oh, yes. um, mm. aka Jackie, Zamo's girlfriend. That's pathetic, Zamo. Um, first of all, she'd played no part in that just say yes horseplay just as she'd seemingly played no part in the just say no record mm. but i saw her standing at the exit door of teddington lock studios as the audience were filing out saying thank you thanks for coming to every single person wow. as they went out as though it was her show fucking hell <laughs> i remember feeling a bit of a chill how polite yeah but she wasn't even 30 at the time and looking at that it was horrible she was like a psychologically broken relic you know it's like well that's that two defining moments upstaged by zamo and his clockwork orange eye makeup to show that he's on heroin (laughs) and upstaged by dickie davis saying cocksucker instead of cup soccer by mistake (laughs) and that's it right and that sheepdog that slid down the hill because it had worms while that bloke was singing (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) yes there you go hope you had fun melissa you're out the door Mm. stand aside please here comes lucinda rhodes flirty to take your place it's terrible melissa wilkes doesn't even have a wikipedia page oh no not even one as depressing as that of the genuinely likable Lee McDonald, mm. a.k.a. Junkie Kid Zamo, yes. whose Wikipedia page lists his profession as actor, comma, locksmith. Yes! <laughs> you know, although, speaking of Grange Hill, you know the tube station, Grange Hill? Yeah. It's out on a loop on the far eastern end of the central line, mm. right, Essex mm-hmm. borders, middle of nowhere, and it's nothing to do with the TV show. It's not set there. It's just a coincidence. Mm. But... How fucking inescapably tedious that connection must be if you actually lived there. Yeah. And I was sat on the tube the other day looking at it thinking, 
Imagine if you were the station master of Grange Hill Underground <laughs> Station. You'd feel like you had no choice but to take over the tannoy system and instead of the spoken announcements, <laughs> insist on just playing Chicken Man yes. by Alan Hawkshaw. <laughs> the one true Grange Hill theme. Over and over on a loop, all day and night, <laughs> endlessly, at deafening volume, so that passengers just wouldn't be able to escape it, whatever they did. Like oh, echoing or just lob sausages on forks of people as they come out yeah oh replace the ticket barriers with big sausages on forks yeah yeah hire a 15 year old with a quiff to hang around the station bullying people (laughs) stealing their fare and you could have mr bronson going you boy mind the gap (laughs) yeah but the important thing would be the music blasting out 24 hours a day Mm. making everyone smile yeah so even just people passing through the station couldn't hear themselves think because of the sound (laughs) of it until eventually the top brass would call you in for dressing down and the bloke says look this has to stop we've had thousands of complaints from commuters several hundred of them from a locksmith's down the road (laughs) just please stop playing that music over and over again all day but you'd have to stand firm and say no i'm sorry this is just the way it has to be Mm. until eventually they'd say right that's it we warned you you are no longer the station master of grange hill station you're being moved to baker street hope it goes well (laughs) (laughs) well i have something that's very pop and extremely interesting so mark this down right now in your pop craze direct saturday September the 16th, 2023. King's Place, King's Cross, London. Chart music comes alive and returns to the London Podcast Festival. Fucking yes. (laughs) Same venue. Hall 1, the big one. A little bit later in the day at half past four, but don't you worry, there'll be plenty of time to link up with us and the pop craze universe afterwards, i.e. get fucking <laughs> K-Lide. And I can exclusively <laughs> reveal right now that the lineup will be me, Taylor Parks, and Neil Kulkarni. Oh, yes, pop craze youngsters. Team ATV land in the house, if you will. Yeah. yeah. There's, no, there's none of that, you know, face for radio hiding no more, is no. there, man? I'm going to have to rouge up. <laughs> Fuck it, it'll be the first time I've ever met you in person, Neil. No, it's mad, isn't it, Al? That, that is, is ridiculous, man. It's like a long-distance relationship is finally going to be consummated in front of hopefully 600 people. Indeed. After years and years of Neil asking you to forward some money so that he could come and I see know. you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, as these words are coming out of my mouth, I don't know how much it's going to be, but I can reveal that the Pop Craze Patreons are going to be hit off with a 20% discount. So if you're not one of those people yet, maybe now is the time to get some tips in this G-string right here. Oh, They're fucking good, aren't they, Taylor, these, uh, these live shows? Yeah, we, we were treated very kindly. Yes, we were. Nice, yeah. Wait till you see the green room they have at King's Place, Neil. Fucking hell, all the best crisps. Oh, man. 
Yeah. Fucking hell. You're not supposed to say this in front of the, front of the <laughs> listeners. But yeah, it's a great opportunity for you, the listener, to commune with your fellow pulp craze youngsters. <laughs> and it's a great opportunity for me to get shot of a load of fucking bummer dog t-shirts yeah. that have been clogging up my back room for the past year. Do you think it would be profitable to try and sell a t-shirt that didn't feature a silhouette image of a dog buggering a small child? Yeah, I know. <laughs> 2022 wasn't ready for that t-shirt no. i think 2023 is more than ready for the bummer dog t-shirt <laughs> let's talk about the really important people mm, at the mm. moment and those people are the brand new batch of pop craze patreons and in the five dollar section this week we have gordon kennedy thomas dowding neil major saps Paul Whitelaw, Jezza Peeps, Robin Goad, Matthew Kendrick, Pie Museum, Foul Play, Ash Preston, Matthew Reitz, Paul Thorpe, Matt D, Lee Kyle, Opec Dreams, Brian Oblivion, Lee Kremen, Sean Moran, and Wendy Bort comes in. Oh, thank you, babies. <laughs> and in the $3 section, we have Philip Bedford, Chris Dowding, Brendan Parsons, and Rodri Lewis. God, we fucking fancy the arse off you. <laughs> oh, and Martin Riley, you nudged it up, didn't you, you naughty boy? Thank you so much much <laughs> and as well as keeping chart music alive and getting the latest episodes in full without any advert ramble days before anyone else the pop craze patreons get to tinker and a tanker and a fiddle and a whiddle and a diddle with the all new chart music top 10 are you ready for it boys yes hit the fucking music We've lost sex under Artex and the two Ronnies clash, which means three up, two down, two non-movers, one new entry and one re-entry. Last week's number three dropped seven places to number ten, Noel Edmonds' wank fantasy. (laughs) Up one place from number ten to number nine, Jeff Sex. It's another one place jump to number eight, but here comes Jism. Re-entry at number seven for my fucking car. <sighs> and last week's number four drops two places to number six, Eric Smallshore of Eccles. Into the top five and no change at five for the bent cunts who aren't fucking real. <laughs> Last week's number six, this week's number four, Bummer Dog. Into the top three and it's a two-place drop for the Birmingham Piss Troll. This week's number two, no change for the provisional URURA, which means... Britain's number one. This week's highest new entry and the brand new chart music number one, Ghostface Silla. <laughs> oh, what a chart, boys. Fucking hell. The pop craze youngsters, they, they don't like stasis, man. No, they like man. change. Yeah, it's exciting. They live it? for kicks. 
<laughs> so yeah, Ghostface Siller. I don't even want to talk about what that sounds like. I just had it in my head while I've been lying in bed for the past fortnight. Fucking hell, man. <laughs> but a couple of pop crazed youngsters have alerted me, chaps, to a possible Eric Smallshaw sighting. Have you heard about this? Oh my days, really? A karaoke singer in an episode of Cracker Doom when the Saints go marching in. Someone pointed out that the, the way the singer phrases the, the word number mm-hmm. is extremely similar to uh, Eric. But yeah, that, yeah you, you don't think so, Tony? No, Eric's influence spread far and wide, <laughs> right? It's a, bit, it's a bit like saying I heard a band, it's a lead singer who's singing just like Mick Jagger. Was it the Rolling Stones? No, 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 no. It's 100% not him. Oh, well. Never mind. (laughs) So, if you want to get in on all this thrilling excitement, you know what you do, pop craze youngsters. You take them fingers over to the keyboard. You tap out patreon.com slash chart music and you pledge and you pledge and you pledge if you can. It's a sound investment, I would say. Uh, So, this episode, pop craze youngsters, takes us all the way back to March the 19th, 1981. Nothing particularly special or landmark about this episode, but I can tell you right now that a lot of the old friends we've made along the way during our chart music odyssey will be swinging by. But Mm. also, hey, we've got a few surprises in store. Just put your head round the door. (laughs) Also, chaps, we're a a good nine months into the reign of Michael Earl by now, so this is an excellent opportunity for an examination, an ultrasound, if you will, of Mm. the difficult pregnancy of the yellow hurl era because the reformations have not kicked in yet have they oh god yeah i mean it does feel this episode for me still quite 70s yeah 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 there are some old familiars here but there's also some new enemies for us as well but, um, but, but truth be told i mean looking at the charts they still don't really feel entirely colonised by by new pop music. There's still a lot mm. of dinosaurs there. Uh. And in terms of this episode, it, it's certainly sort of old pop and older pop people who are kind of winning in a way. Um, mm. Top of the Pops could never entirely commit to new music in a way, you know, a show like The Tube could later. But I mm. don't think Hurl has yet realised that, that new bands are more exciting yeah. in a sort of classic Top of the Pops way than their older competitors. So consequently, I found this episode lurches between... Sort of variety and pop probably in a way that would have angered me at the time it's clear here that while the 80s are gagging to kick on in mm. certain places the 70s aren't quite ready to let go are they no absolutely not they're clinging on with their scaly tendrils yeah there's really a lot of old lags on this episode <laughs> <laughs> well, from the, the top of the pops from 1981 my god yeah deep in the booming heart of either the finest or at least the second finest half decade ever for the british charts you know mm. full of young spunk and piss mm. and basically half the acts on this episode are over 30 <laughs> and have been mm. recording since the 60s or early 70s but it's yeah. quite interesting because unlike in the later 80s when all these older guys like all souped up with the modern aor sound were a fucking plague on the charts and mm. essentially all the same uh what you got here is a bunch of oldens creeping out from under the blankets now that punk is over mm. yeah. looking around and trying to work out how to respond to the new decade and so it's different 
in every case right it might mean horrifying self-consciousness or a new lease of life or in one case here hang on didn't i invent half of this well i don't do mm. that shit anymore and <laughs> we get examples of all of these tonight do you know what i mean it's mm. not like mm. 1986 with steve winwood delivering another soulful pop ballad or elton john returning with a new album described as his finest work since too low for zero <laughs> you know it's a business as usual in 1981 these old fuckers have got a dilemma because yeah. they still feel like they have to justify their existence within mm. pop and mm. most of them seem to be addressing it with varying degrees of success so even when the music isn't yeah. brilliant or even bearable it's worth discussing yeah, mm. yeah, and, and the highs are quite high, but the lows are really low on this yeah, episode, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The low is crocodile piss. Yeah. I mean, it is a reminder that golden ages are quite often babbled with straight-up golden showers, and, <laughs> and the, some of the older acts here, fuck me. I mean, there's no other word but shameful for some of what we're going to talk about. Yeah, I mean, it's always the same, isn't it? It's always easy to fall into that sort of BBC4 bullshit that, hey, everything was changing culturally, but <laughs> look, I watched an episode of Summertime Special the other night the, the BBC Saturday Night Variety Spectacular from August 1981 still a flagship light entertainment programme and it's oh, indistinguishable yes. from 1971 and mm. in a lot of ways from 1951 um, <laughs> and the only way you can tell it's not is that the title sequence features members of the A-team not the real A-team <laughs> but this, oh, this perma-smiling song and dance troupe of pleasant face nothings in cheap nylon t-shirts with their names printed on the front and ice skater trousers right who come on regularly <laughs> to pad out this grim mm. 45 minutes until you're longing for the young generation to hobble in <laughs> their Zimmer frames and headbutt them in the bollocks but Anyway, at the start, you see all the members of the A-team larking around in an overcast and freezing Brighton seafront. Um, I mean, the very first <laughs> shot of this programme is the word summertime special superimposed over a helicopter shot of a marina in the pissing rain. <laughs> and then you see them all leaping about in their T-shirts, pretending not to be cold on the beach, um, mm. giving a kid a donkey ride. Uh, buying candy floss, purchasing a lobster from a seafood shop, uh, stroking a police horse, all those things you do on holiday, right? Mm. <laughs> and the only way that you can tell that you're even looking at a time that's within our lifespan is when one of the girls picks up a giant novelty lollipop which says, kiss me quick, from a revolving <laughs> lollipop stand and pretends to lick it without first taking the plastic off. And you can mm. see the other two lollipops on the stand and one of them says, Charles Diana Royal Wedding and the other the one says i like pussy with a picture of a cat <laughs> oh, i guess nobody knew what it meant mrs slocum would <laughs> yeah. and so this program is hosted by rod hull and emu right. um a, of course a bully and his fig leaf um and features <laughs> guests uh, such as shaking stevens um, the irish easy listening vocal trio the bachelors right as hot and sexy as the frozen peas which share their name <laughs> um the birmingham born easy listening and, and as mushy as the peas that go in tens <laughs> yeah they're dressed in a hundred shades of brown 
that most complex <laughs> of colours. Um, the Birmingham-born easy listening chanteuse Maggie Moon, who's Fuck got. Oh, a- don't, don't bring Maggie Moon's name up in front of me, Taylor. I go all red. So she turns up. She's got a hair sprayed up cloud of copper-coloured hair. Uh, a slinky ankle-length black lace dress slit to the thigh and far too much pink lipstick. She looks oh, like she's God. at her gangster husband's funeral. <laughs> but unbelievably, she was in her 20s. I've got to break oh. in there, Taylor, before you can carry on. Um, a couple of years hence from this episode of Summertime Special, Maggie Moon was the guest singer on Name That Tune. Oh, yeah. And I was sitting there watching it with my mum and my dad. Mm-hmm. And she came on wearing what sounds like the same outfit that you've just described there i remember my mum just tutting and just says oh i bet she hasn't got any knickers on (laughs) and i was absolutely overcome with lust and had to go upstairs and do something about it (laughs) so there we go that is my second most embarrassing uh, masturbatory story (laughs) anyway she's uh, one of the guests on summertime special along with Irish all-girl, easy-listening vocal trio Sheba, of whom more later, believe it or not, um, and the uh, whip-cracking Arabian Nights-themed acrobatics act Kazbek and Zari, who are very impressive at what they do, but it's a bit like the boring bit at a fetish club where everyone has to stand still and watch an act. (laughs) And throughout the show... Over and over again, the A-team, the A-team, I see the A-team. Yeah, they they had to appear on Summertime Special for the crime they didn't commit. (laughs) (laughs) Until the grand finale of this programme, which has a a huge studio audience right there in the place, is a 10-minute item on film featuring song and dance production numbers shot in the Rolls-Royce factory in Goodwood. Introduced by Rod Hull and his fake bird as a place where we can still be proud of the slogan British made. Summertime special salutes Rolls Royce. (laughs) And it's literally just these grinning inadequates leaping about in a fucking grey factory full of exhaust pipes and windscreen wipers. Yeah, all dressed in pink and baby blue to uh, a medley of easy listening versions of appropriate tunes like Grease Lightning, Pick Up the Pieces, interrupting (laughs) production at a time when the British motor industry really needed to pull its finger out, Um, all in the cut with close-ups of people in brown stores coats and overalls soldering things and fitting washers (laughs) and that pale grey light saturday evening prime time um and then at the Mm. end they pile into finished rolls royces to the sound of the 18 singing silver lady obviously (laughs) and they drive out through the factory gates triumphantly of course and that's the end you think and there's about a minute of shots of the studio audience in rapturous applause Mm. But then they cut back to Rod Hull and he says, before we leave Rolls-Royce, let's have a look at what more than a million pounds worth of motor cars looks like. Cue another minute of film showing 18 brand new Rolls-Royces clearly not actually being driven by members of the A-team, who I guess couldn't be (laughs) trusted, rolling into a field and assembling themselves into a giant double R, which is then 
filmed from a helicopter. It's a fucking okay, no. advert. It's mm. a prime time BBC advert for a product way out of the price range of anybody in the studio audience no. or indeed watching this lower class bilge at home, right? A super high end product whose image can surely only be tarnished by association with Rod Hull and the mm. A team. Yes. And the whole thing stinks, right? This was shortly after mm. Rolls Royce was sold to the engineering and aviation group Vickers. And while I can't mm. pinpoint any particular significance there i bet you any money that's significant somehow some fucking spiff mm. fool in a wood panelled office sitting behind a huge phone and a massive glass ashtray calling in a favor but the reason i bring this up is that a number of things i just mentioned will recur later so more of yes. this when the time comes but also just to mention the strange pickled feeling of that program which was absolutely in the mainstream of 1981 but oh, feels yeah. decades older like something mm. which should have been swept away by the luftwaffe you know what i mean mm. like and punk yeah and there it is front and center saturday night prime time <laughs> a harrowing watch alas no footage of the after show party when maggie moon drank two bottles of martini and punched a police horse in the face but this is bad enough and this was the main reality of 1981 right i'm here to tell you young people it was it's like a rule with years right you know if you go on a dating app and someone's got five pictures up the worst one will be the best likeness of what that person looks like in real mm. life. Well, it's the same. The worst pop cultural artifacts from a particular time are usually the best representation of the reality of being alive at that time as a working or lower-middle-class English person. Yeah. And this is how I remember 1981, mm. despite, since then, the gradual creep of this idea that hey even your dad looked like a member of visage right yes. no 1981 was more like 1971 than it was like 1991 which is yes. why the stuff that we now think looks so 1981 looked fucking mm. crazy at the time because it's that way yeah. where you are at that time a lot mm. of the people on these bbc4 documentaries talking about the early 80s weren't in places like we were actually watching <laughs> yeah. shit like this but Maggie Moon I'd completely forgotten about her yeah. real brummy sultriness mm. up there with Lisa Dominique and um, you know Connie <laughs> <laughs> anyway seeing as you asked um, my most embarrassing masturbation story happened in early <laughs> 1983 in my bedroom just before school was about to start while I was watching TV AM on my portable mm. now chaps this was the era of ridiculously tight state pressed trousers yeah. and i was paranoid that i get a bonk on at school and it got noticed and i get absolutely shamed up so i was in the habit round about that time of enjoying myself in the gentlemanly manner you know to get it out the way yeah. for the day get the poison out exactly taylor so you know i fished my copy of men only from under the mattress and proceeded to set about me saying and when i was at the i know Carida stage mm. i could hear my sister thumping up the stairs screaming and shouting and carrying on and I was absolutely terrified she was going to burst into my room mm. so I got up to throw myself against the door and uh, <laughs> accidentally ejaculated over Wincy Willis's face <laughs> <laughs> yeah 
<laughs> fucking hell. So I just <laughs> want to say, if you're out there, Wincy, I am so fucking sorry, even now, 40 years later, and I swear to you, it was completely unintentional, and <laughs> you were just collateral damage, Doc. It, it could have been anyone, but it could have been Mike Morris, which doesn't bear thinking about at all. So, um, yeah, let's move on. Did you ever find out if Maggie Moon was wearing knickers? Oh, God knows. I bet Emu knew. Yeah. The only way to find out would have been... Uh, I stand neath the Maggie moon, <laughs> hesitating. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Onward! Radio 1 News. In the news... Ronnie Biggs has been maced in his home in Rio de Janeiro by three kidnappers who claim to be former members of the SAS, who then stuff him into a canvas bag with four carrier handles and is currently whereabouts unknown. While the media speculates that it's a publicity stunt for his forthcoming autobiography, it turns out to be a legitimate attempt to abduct him to a place where he can be extradited to Britain. In three days' time, a yacht containing Biggs goes out of control off the coast of Barbados and all four men are rescued. And Barbados tells Britain to fuck off when they request an extradition and he's returned to Brazil. You lucky bastard. The Social Democratic Party estimates that they will have 14 MPs when they officially start next Thursday. All Labour MPs who have resigned and defected to the SDP. They would end the year with 27 former Labour MPs and a Tory. Sir Peter Heyman, the former British diplomat and intelligence officer who was revealed in Parliament last week as the unnamed member of the paedophile information exchange who had left a packet of child grot on a bus but was let off by the police, has been found in a hotel in Normandy with his wife trying to keep the fuck out of it. Residents in his home village of Checkendom, Oxfordshire, have been doorstopped by the papers and they're remarkably okay with it all. Who are we to judge him, says a woman in the street. We'll decide for ourselves when the fuss has blown over. (laughs) Different times. Two workers at NASA are killed when they accidentally walk into an area containing pure nitrogen, while the Soviet Union announced that they've successfully tested a killer satellite that shot the out of another satellite over Eastern Europe. The Bank of England have put out the first £50 notes since the war. They've got Christopher Wren on the back. 
Liverpool and Ipswich cruise into the semi-finals of the European and UEFA Cups after beating CSKA Sofia and Saint-Etienne respectively, but West Ham get knocked out by Dynamo Tbilisi and Newport County are dispatched by Colzai Jena in the UEFA Cup. But the big news this week is in the Sunday Mirror. Headline, Band, Sickest Group in Pop. A top punk rock group have been banned from college concerts because of their vile stage antics. The chart-busting group, who call themselves Splodgeness Abound, <laughs> use the seven heads of pigs and oxen in their act. It sounds sick. And that's what many people feel after seeing them perform. After a recent concert at Thames Polytechnic in London, cleaners were horrified to find the group had left behind the rotting remains of their gruesome stage props. Now college officials have banned further concerts and even the students themselves are so disgusted they have advised other colleges not to book the group. But 23-year-old Max Splodge, leader of the group that shot up the charts with a record called Two Pints of Lager and a Packet of Crisps, is unrepentant. I'm not surprised the cleaners found the heads, he bragged. They probably smelt them before they could see them. They were a bit maggoty when we left them. Then Max spoke in loving detail about the group's ideas of entertainment. Our showstopper used to be oral sex, but we've cut that out because we no longer have a girl in the group, he said. Now we buy pigs and oxen heads from the market and use them in sexual movements or as ventriloquist dummies. Then we throw them into the crowd. It's just a bit of a giggle. Know what I mean? (laughs) If you don't find that very funny, there's always what Max calls the group's bingo interval. One of the group lies on the floor and spits pig's eyes out of his mouth like the numbered balls in bingo. (laughs) It's sort of Kelly's eye with a difference. Student Union President Simon Hubbard said it was sickening. We hope we have seen and heard the last of this group. Alas, not quite. When Moronic Max heard of the ban, he retaliated in typical style by sending the college two more heads through the post. Oh, <laughs> shocking behaviour. Disgraceful. I mean, everyone's just going to be waiting around, aren't they, for two pints of lager and a packet of crisps, please? So they've got to do something. I think people would be more offended nowadays if they did uh, two little boys again. Yeah. <laughs> I don't understand why they didn't just let the music do the talking. <laughs> <laughs> On the cover of Melody Maker this week, Pauline Black of The Selector. On the cover of Smash Hits, Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark. On the cover of Record Mirror, Francis Rossi of Quo in a very tight bomber jacket and tie, leaning against a wall with a fag on. Oh, they're still relevant. (laughs) The number one LP in the UK at the moment, K. 
kings of the wild frontier by Adam and the Ants. Hey. Over in America, the number one single is Nine to Five by Dolly Parton. And the number one LP is High Infidelity by Oreo Speedwagon, which, of course, was the number one LP in America for 15 weeks on non-consecutive uh, occasions, broken up for three weeks by something a bit more punchy and vibrant, Paradise Theatre by Sticks. <laughs> oh, America. <laughs> so, me boys, what were we doing in March of 1981? Well... I would have been eight, mm. a year into wearing glasses. I'm adjusted to that. Second year at junior school. I mean, the only thing I genuinely remember about this time is that I was entering into a, a key moment for any young person, I think. My, my first fountain pen. Ooh, oh, get ooh, you. Yes. I long looked longingly at the massive array of quinks oh, yeah. in um, Midland Educational, Coventry's one-stop shop for all your stationary needs, but... Now I was finally given the chance to actually write with a fountain pen, load up cartridges in that shotgun way, Ooh. and, of course, become acquainted with the taste of ink. <laughs> I've never used a fountain pen, oh, ever. Mate, they're great. What's the fucking point, man? we got ballpoints in this century, Neil. Yeah, I know, but you can do italics and stuff. You can get all calligraphical, or whatever the word is. Mm. I mean, I wouldn't feel yeah, as grown okay. up until I got my Texas Instruments graphic calculator, so this is a big, big moment for me. No, mate, I was happy with me Parker. Nicked out at WH Smith in Vicky Centre. <laughs> well, it was mod, wasn't it? You know, the arrow. Oh, yeah, of course. Jutting yeah. out of your pocket, man. <laughs> Taylor? I think I went to Butlins on holiday in 1981. Oh, which one? Yeah, Minehead. Yeah, Ooh. we were one of the last families to go to Butlins when it was still Butlins, I think, as opposed to a cultural abattoir, which it became <laughs> as early as the mid-80s, really. Uh, yeah, we went to Minehead. It was fucking brilliant. Me and my dad went on the monorail, Ooh. and my mum wouldn't go on it. Like, she what? thought it was going to come off the rails and <laughs> crash through the glass-windowed wall of the Princess Ballroom, like a, <laughs> some kind of working-class disaster movie. <laughs> Either that, or she'd heard the word from Ogdenville and New mm. Haverbrook. Mm. Um, and and she, Skagness. Yeah, and she wasn't entirely foolish, as it was indeed closed in the 1990s after an accident during which six people received whiplash injuries. Ooh. Oh, the Bucklins monorail? I think one shunted another one up the back. Oh, yeah. fair dues. The year before, I went to Skegness Bucklins, fell in the boating lake in my brand-new jam T-shirt. Yeah. But, yeah, we went on the monorail, but we were really disappointed because when we got off, we realised we were still in Bucklins. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was going to take me all the way to the uh, pier in Skegge. Right. But, no, miles away. Yeah. No, I was just happy sitting in a slow-moving fibreglass shell 20 feet off the ground looking down on crazy golf courses and oh. those tiny roller coasters for five-year-olds you know it was a, a heavenly chariot mm. 1981 was a really grim year for me it's one of my least favorite years along with 1996 and 1975 my granny who was the the rolling stones fan who was convinced that uh, all the beatles were homosexuals <laughs> she died a few weeks previously and my grandpa was about to have a heart operation that could kill him but it didn't thank fuck mm. and three members of the family are going to be made unemployed in the space of a month mum from her job at a mike barlow like children's clothing factory dad from his removal van firm and me from the program shop which absolutely fucking broke my heart 
So, yeah, not good times at all. I'm still basking in the joy of having my own dog, a hot Rex. Uh, but by this point, my sister's nicked him off me. And she and her mate have started dressing him up in baby clothes and putting him in a pram on his back and pushing him up and down the estate mm. in an attempt to get the fishwives of the area tutting at two 11-year-old girls getting in the family way. <laughs> and I'm not happy about that at all. It's most no. undignified. It's the sort of thing that will become an Instagram account now. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I, I put a stop to that very quickly because my sister had a like a swimming costume, and I put that on the dog and let him run out. And um, my sister's chasing him down the street, and then he, he just squats down and has a massive piss <laughs> uh, all over her clothes. So yeah, yeah, that that got nipped right in the bud straight mm. away. Oh, if those fishwives thought it was bad enough that two eleven-year-old girls had got pregnant, wait till they looked in the pram. <laughs> <laughs> my God. Music-wise, well, obviously I'm still an absolute well a sheep and I, I've been boring the fucking arse off everyone at school going on about how only the jam could get into the charts with a German import single that's entertainment which is still at number 36 in the charts and would have been number one if Polydor released it properly let me tell you possibly but you know also looking round me in disgust at my peers not being mods or rude boys anymore things are changing and mm. I'm refusing to keep up with the rapid turnover of pop mm. and as a matter of fact, there was a poem in the letters page of a recent smash hits by Disillusioned X Mod that absolutely chimed with my state of mind at the time. And if you don't mind, chaps, I'd like to read it right now. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> we rose like lions to the sound of secret affair. Yeah, we died. <laughs> Fuck off, you're making this up, man. If you don't mind. Sorry. <laughs> we rose like lions to the sound of secret affair, yet we died like sheep to the next fashion. <laughs> Heroes we were in our two-tone tonic suits. Corner of the street we waited with our hair nice and neat. Along they came, our little modettes, Proud and all they were. <laughs> Yet as mods, the big heroes gave it all up. <laughs> so please, somebody <laughs> tell me, mod, what was it for? It's plaintive, that, isn't it? It is. It gets you right in the solar plexus. Yeah. Is he suggesting that mod uh, means nothing unless everyone involved wore exactly the same clothes for the next 40 years? Yeah. Because, you know, to be fair... He was right, wasn't he? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because, yeah, pop is turning over rapidly at the moment, isn't it? Yeah. That's the best thing about it. Well, yes. However bleak and unappealing the early 80s seem in retrospect and seemed at the time because they fucking did. Yeah. My God, for a kid. Mm. Like, it's, this isn't just an impression you get looking back. Mm. It was like it at the time. Yeah. It was, you were in a world of wet concrete shopping centres, the, the same colour as the sky you know and saturday nights trying to stay awake mm. if you weren't at home watching summertime special you were the eyes streaming under a blanket of indoor fag smoke mm. in the pub or all in the works club waiting for the old bloke selling the young soldier to come around <laughs> up the evening's biggest highlight <laughs> so let's not think too fondly and imagine that stuff was too good mm. but 
however grim it got, this was also a time when a small child would hear pop groups sing about being crushed by the wheels of industry yeah and just take that on board woo woo yeah it's like oh, okay these people have been crushed by the wheels of industry that's a shame but <laughs> it meant that access was provided to that wider world of language and thought yes and you saw these intriguing shapes in the distance and became familiar with the idea of artistic courage from a, an early age and you develop these high expectations of low culture mm. but it was always doomed because eventually things will follow the path of least resistance and ultimately if you're aiming your work at teenagers and trying to make money sooner or later you realize there's no room for this stuff mm. and you're better off sticking with the things teenagers are most likely to respond to competitive consumerism and over emotional self-obsession and these aren't new things these are the dark secrets behind every positive teenage craze but mm. you know they're just exploited more unapologetically as time goes on yeah it's not like i'm saying oh, i don't like pop music now you know i like pink panther s as much as anybody in beats by dre headphones and silver trainers you know probably because it sounds like music from 20 years ago mm. the last time i was paying attention it's just gloomy looking at so much mainstream pop now and getting that feeling of it you know that feeling of competitive consumerism mm. split along class lines so many pop songs now being either a whoop whoop hands in the air celebration of of young white tory privilege or a statement of intent to defeat and humiliate all you other bitches because for most unlucky people nowadays society means combat mm. and it's accurate and it's a fair reflection of the times. You can't complain about that. I just don't enjoy it. I don't enjoy songs boasting about having money, or unlike all you shit people with no money, mm. you know, or this kind of vague, indulgent, unreflective glumness as a kind of privileged lifestyle choice. You know, I, ooh, I'm in my feels, mm. as Ian Curtis once said, you know. <laughs> and nobody singing about being crushed by the wheels of industry no. or... Well, no industry anymore yeah being crushed by the non-wheels of post-industrial society crushed by the van of amazon <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't at a distance that's the thing i mean even as an eight-year-old you know you, you're basically talking about a year 81 where you know ghost town has been a number one yeah. you know it's been in the charts this stuff is close it's not like even as an eight-year-old you like have to start fucking reading the enemy <laughs> yeah, yeah. this mm. stuff is in the charts right so yeah. that's really really important oh yeah i would so much rather have been 16 in 1981 than 1988 which is when i was <laughs> except yeah. that i'd be <laughs> six years older now which would possibly kill me <laughs> Well, chaps, I do believe that this is the moment that we retreat, if you will, to the chart music crap room, riffle through the boxes and pull out an issue of this week's music press. And this time we're going for the NME, March the 21st, 1981. Would you care to come with me on this journey? Yes. On the cover. A big rising sun over the NME logo, a full-page image of Tokyo at night, and a lady of the ethnicity that gets Tony Blackbird all excited. <laughs> it could only be an examination of the Japanese music scene with a tasteful headline, Jap Payback, a nip into the 21st century. <sighs> In the news... 
The main story this week is that shooting has started on the BBC's new fantasy thriller Artemis 81, starring none other than Sting. He'll be playing Helleth, a Danish angel of love, who has resolved to overthrow the forces of evil after the theft of the statue of Magog and the resultant disruption of cosmic forces by the powers of evil. Obviously, there's only one location suitable for such a tableau, the Kreitstram Museum. (laughs) Was he there with a palcordian? Sting arrived in a thin white vest and white tuxedo jacket and looked decidedly unhappy, posing for pictures in a battered old troop carrier, says the enemy. When asked why the fuck the BBC would want him in this and does he reckon he's an actor now, <laughs> Sting said, the production people said they wanted me because I'm a godlike figure. <laughs> I decided not to do the Bond film because it's too camp. I'd like to create a new stereotype where the entertainer can sing, play music and act. It hasn't been done very successfully, all meow toya. I've done a certain amount of role playing in my life, not acting, yet. It's an ocean I've dipped my toe in, and until I'm swimming, I'm not calling myself an actor. <laughs> Hang on, Sting, when you bummed Paul Cook in the back of that car in the Great Rock and Roll Swindle, that was acting, wasn't it? Wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> the Who are back with their new LP Face Dancers uh-huh. and they put on a lunchtime party to celebrate and the music press were there to cram as many scotch eggs into their hypocritical backstabbing moors before going back to the office and coating the album down. <laughs> Naturally, Pete Townsend was there despite being spotted at the venue at 4am the night before along with Paul Simonon and Topper Heedon from The Clash, Mike Reed, Annie Nightingale, John Walters and John Peel from Radio 1, Robert Powell from Jesus of Nazareth and the 16 artists that The Who have commissioned to paint individual portraits of the band on the LP cover. What amazed us about the event was the music provided, reports the NME, most of which turned out to be from the likes of Spandar Bali and Steve Strange, and none at all from the actual album. Mm, I wonder why that would be. Yeah. Cloud as a silver line. <laughs> are Pink Floyd about to split up, or are they getting back on the road? The enemy believe they have the answer with the headline, Floyd in June. Despite widespread speculation concerning a possible Pink Floyd split, the enemy understands that they'll be performing in Britain again before long. It was learned this week that they intend to play another season at London's Earl's Court, scene of their triumphant wall shows in 1980. They're expected to play a five-day stint at the 15,000-capacity venue, although it's not yet known if they will retain their wall-building set or come up with a revised act. Rumours that Floyd were about to split followed in the wake of the announcement last month of the collapse of their investment company, Norton Warburg. The band are said to have lost more than £1 million in the downfall, which came about after the company had invested in money in two disastrous films, a horse racing stable and other unusual projects. 
Sources close to the band suggest that they were on the verge of splitting, but they evidently decided to remain together and recoup some of their losses. The enemy turned out to be bang on the money, with the set of the wall tool being hoiked up one more time. Oh, God. Well, one bit of good news. What with Roger Waters being such an important, pioneering inexhaustibly creative artist that'll be the last we ever see of the fucking wall live on stage thankfully (laughs) with the headline it's a mad 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 madness world we're informed that madness started work this week on their first full-length feature film take it or leave it which covers the period from 1976 to 1979 and documents the band's career from their first steps as musicians through their early gigs and towards their emergence into the Big time. It's being shot entirely on location in Camden Town in Islington, directed by Stiff Records chief Dave Robinson. The film comes out in October. Have you ever seen that? Yeah. I've still not seen yeah, it. Me neither. That's shocking, isn't it's it? It's alright. My mate had it on video. Oh, yeah? Yeah. It's a good film. Uh. Is it like as good as the Slade film? No, 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 no. No, it, because it was directed by Stiff Records chief Dave <laughs> Robinson. It's not a cinematic masterpiece. But they're surprisingly convincing as themselves younger, you know, getting beaten mm. up by skinheads and stuff. It's all right. Is it as good as Never Too Young to Rock? Yes. <laughs> In tour news on the road sooner, The Cure, White Snake, Stiff Little Fingers, The Stylistics, Rose Royce, Status Quo, The Selector, Adam and the Ants, Bow Wow Wow, Echo and the Bunnymen, Dex's Midnight Runners, Toya, Girl School, Motorhead, Japan, Gang of Four, and The Old Sailor. But it's bad news for British fans of Bruce Springsteen, not just because they don't live in America, but also because his first (laughs) UK tour since 1975 has been cancelled at the last minute, what with the boss being badly after playing 72 gigs in North America. Barbara March, Springsteen's manager, tells us that his exhaustion got so bad that he couldn't talk. The British gigs have been rearranged for April and May, and if fans are desperate to see him in action right now, they can make do with seeing him in the No Nukes film, which opens in the UK this week and features Springsteen, Graham Nash, Jackson Brown, Ralph Nader, David Crosby, Stephen Stills, James Taylor, Carly Simon, Bonnie Rayet, and the Doobie Brothers. Oh, welcome to the 80s, everyone. <laughs> rather have nukes. one venue that springsteen won't be playing this summer is acklam hall on the west way and just as well if the news story acklam agro is anything to go by west london's acklam hall was pulverized last wednesday and seven people in hospital non-seriously following a viking-like invasion by a gang of locals on the bill were anti-establishment, last resorts and info riots who were tuning up backstage when the assault force landed. One eyewitness described the invaders as long-haired West London soccer supporters who mistakenly assumed the hall was packed with alien EastEnders. But the Met have logged it as a punk versus skinhead gang battle and say that a 16-year-old and a 90-year-old will shortly be charged with possessing offensive weapons. 
Oh, mm, dear. Better times. In comings and goings this week, Adam and the Ants have parted company with bassist Kevin Mooner, the soft boys have split up, with Robin Hitchcock promising to go solo, and Bow Wow Wow are being taken away from EMI by Malcolm McLaren. We've had to cancel the tour because EMI won't support us financially, claims Malk. The problem, as McLaren sees it, is EMI's reluctance to fork out for singer Alabella Lewin's GLC-ordained governess tutor, which has already delayed the tour for a week. When we put it to McLaren that the EMI contretemps maybe had something to do with the band stiffing out on the door, he replied, Nah! We sold out the rainbow, played a date in Manchester last week, without a tutor present, I might add, and that sold out. Good business, mate. Taking (laughs) a band on the road and that, with a governess, gets a bit pricey. EMI weren't prepared to cough up. General cowardice. They felt they were promoting something that they didn't believe in. It's not wholly different to what happened when the Sex Pistols were there. They operate at the level whereby they didn't move with the times. Move with the times. Mm. The pro tip, Malk, if you're going to exploit an underage girl in order to present her as a transgressive symbol of antisocial polymorphously perverse granny worrying anarchy make sure you can afford to pay for her governess tutor before (laughs) you start over in new york the enemy's correspondent tantalizingly tells us of the rap party at the ritz which brought together the sugar hill gang grandmaster flash sequence spoonie g and the up-and-coming funky four plus one the advertised MC, popular R&B DJ Frankie Crocker, and the ventriloquist act that opened the show didn't go down too well. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> but the wall-to-wall crowd got the message once Funky 4 Plus 1 struck up their big hit, rapping and rocking the house. Oh, God, I hope it was uh, Roger DeCourcy and Nookie Bear. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Nookie B, Taylor, come on. (laughs) (laughs) The Sugar Hill Gang headlined the show, their first New York appearance in over a year, with an unwieldy 10-piece band that often obscured their rap and flipped the rhythm. But the real show shopper turned out to be Grandmaster Flash, a DJ whose dexterity with two turntables has to be seen to be believed, and his rapping assistants, the Furious Five. Do you think Rodden and Emu would have gone down? well yes yeah 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 oh, he, he'd have caused some beef though wouldn't he emu <laughs> <laughs> oh for a, for a time machine though to go back to that gig bloody hell oh no but ventriloquist bad move i mean they should have got um i don't know octavio the clown from scarface yeah. terminator x was a brilliant ventriloquist man he he speaks with his hands don't you know <laughs> <laughs> In killing music and its illegal news, Island Records are raising a lot of industry eyebrows with their determination to introduce the One Plus One cassette series in the US, where the likes of U2, Ultravox, 
Kid Creole and the Coconuts, Cat Stevens, Grace Jones and Robert Palmer take up the full side of each tape, giving the purchaser the option to record what they like over one side, or both in the case of you 2 <laughs> Ireland's US partner Warner Brothers has refused point blank to carry the line, so Ireland is currently negotiating with American cassette manufacturers for a possible joint distribution deal lower sound quality why don't they make Mm. the tape 18,000 miles long (laughs) then you could record everything on it yeah Yeah, brilliant I wonder if the failure of this influenced you know Alternative Tentacles Dead Kennedy's label because when they bought cassettes out it did say on one side home taping is killing record industry profits we've left this side blank so you can help Mm. and um, yeah it must have been an inspiration to them yeah and underneath the headline Clapton ulcer we learned that the Enoch of rock has been forced to abandon (laughs) his 56 date US tour with only nine shows played after collapsing with a perforated stomach ulcer finally some good news Interviews. In the thrill section this week, Chris Bone talks to Mute Records' newest signings, Depeche Mode, who have just put out their debut single, Dreaming of Me. Due to them being extremely shy lads, they brought along their producer, Daniel Miller, who they refer to as Uncle Daniel. (laughs) When asked about their switch from a more conventional guitar trio to an all-electronic lineup after buying their synths on the Never Never for 25 quid a month, Dave Gahan insists we didn't get into them just for the fashion, it just happens that way. Vince Clark, who feels a bit awkward that he's the only member of the band over 20, says it's strange that the kids who went to soul clubs are now moving over to this. Electronic pop is commercially viable now, whereas two years ago it wasn't. Gavin Martin nips over to what we used to call Holland to witness the first ever gig by the Bureau and finds out why they broke away from Dex's Midnight Runners. Kevin pushed all his ideas to the forefront and they weren't discussed with the band. We grew apart, says Jeff Bly in a chat before the gig. With Dex's, we had made a very big promise and we brought a lot of responsibility on ourselves. We said we were going to be very genuine and we were going to do something to a lot of people. But it started to be more posturing than anything else. I'd really hate myself if I went on stage and made a total mess of it and I never did that once with Dex's. So when I was told you can't do that or you can't do this, I got really cross about it. Undoubtedly, notes Martin, this is a reference to Roland's decision to ban dope from tours. The interview with Archie Brown and Steve Spooner after the gig goes less well. Pursuing a line of questioning that would lead to the obvious, ah, but wasn't Kevin controlling you line, I got short change from both interviewees, with Steve saying he wanted to talk about the Bureau, and Archie suspected me of being a hack merchant right away. The conversation continued to unwind lazily for a few minutes, until, looking down, I realised Archie had switched off my tape recorder. What did you do that for, I ask, depressing the record button. Well, I think you're fucking about. I think you're asking funny questions. I'm stoned, man. I want to go to sleep. (laughs) 
an actual physical tussle ensued, with the vocalist attempting to wrest the machine and the cassette from my grasp, but eventually, following a long discourse on the role and function of the critic, the problem is sorted out. Few. <laughs> Incidentally, the following evening, Archer, attributing his reservations and paranoia to the intake of a certain verdant oriental plant, intimates that he's knocking the habit on the head. <sighs> and then he said, Pull the blind, I'm closing down the bureau for an hour. <laughs> <laughs> Has that ever happened to you? Uh, Do you record a sacrosanct, isn't it? No fucker touches that. No. That's never happened to me. But if that did happen to me, I'd just let the band know um, I'm going to make it all up then. Mm. You know, I mean, I did anyway. I've quite often, to be honest with you, always made them sound more interesting than they were. It'd be like going into an interview with them in the studio and like just going over to the guitars and pick out smoke on the water on them. <laughs> you just don't do that shit, man. That's a tool. And that record is your tool. Yeah, nobody ever dared to do that with me. Uh. But it's funny, isn't it? What a mess that sound. Yeah. How many long-suffering musicians who escape the bullying and hectoring of their cruel genius master <laughs> finally stumble free into the bright spring air and immediately fall to pieces. Mm. In a At Home with the Stars special, Nick Kent sits down with Phil Collins in his country home just outside of Guildford to talk about recent collaborations with John Martin, his new solo album Face Value and the runaway success of its lead-off single In the Air to night peter gabriel banned all symbols from all genesis sessions but i played an active role in gaining that drum sound ahmed ertegun actually assisted in the mixing of air persuading me to place the drum break in exactly that place it's a particular talent that he has plus the fact that he's the guy who worked with aretha franklin and otis redding and therefore knows what it's about and he was right he got an immense amount of radio play from the very outset, which was ultimately the vital factor in his chart success. It tends to sound very strong on car radio, particularly when the drums break in. Mike Rutherford said that he likes it a lot, while Tony has, well, I've not felt any animosity. <laughs> They seem pleased. Oh, that's nice. Adrian Thrills has a sit-down with Jim Kerr and Charlie Burchill of Simple Minds, and they immediately bring up his review from a year ago, in which he dismissed the band as pretentious. We've used images in our songs, so we do run a giant risk of being labelled as pretentious, being Glasgow boys and singing about Europe and things like that. What do they want us to sing about? Football? Life in the Gorbals? Uh, hang on, hang on. The Gorbals is in mm. Europe. Yes. What's the problem? After that's out of the way, they start having a go at mid-jaw. That whole European thing has been used very wrongly just recently by people like Ultrabox in Vienna. It just looks really tacky, using the names of foreign people to impress people, <laughs> said the singer of Belfast Child. <laughs> Our last LP has got a lot of foreign imagery in it, but everything there did actually come from meeting and talking to people in Europe and drawing from that experience. People should define what they mean by realism before they start accusing 
accusing us of pretension. I think we must be the first generation that hasn't seen either the draft or a war. We haven't seen guns and uniforms, but when you do see it, even through a van window in Central Europe, how can it not affect you? Hang on, they're the first generation not to have been drafted or seen a war. Was yeah. he born in 1945? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the fact that the previous generation hadn't been in a war or done national service was often cited as a major reason for why the 60s turned out as it did you must have missed Mm. that but also like can he not count (laughs) fucking idiot have you ever had an interview where you've been pulled up for things you've said about bands and that yeah yeah go on well occasionally they used to send you to interview people that you'd already slagged off to have an argument with them Mm. I don't do that anymore, I can tell you. No. Um, God, no. But it was good fun, yeah. They smashed. Do you remember that group, Smash? Like, oh, yes. yeah, that was a, yeah, I remember that piece, Taylor. Yeah. Was, I mean, just like I was a kid when I did that. I don't imagine it would read very well now. But it was good fun. You just go there and just argue with someone. And, mm. yeah, they were quite nice about it as well, fair play. Yeah. There's still time for all of this to happen. Somebody out there commissioned me to interview Rick Witter or something. <laughs> yeah, turn up with a clothes peg on your nose. <laughs> <laughs> Under the headline, A Touch of Yen, the middle four pages are given over to Max Bell's jaunt to Japan to find out what's happening with the pop craze Wakamono. He tells us that while your stereotypical Japanese businessman likes either Enka, traditional over-sentimental Nippon music that sounds like the theme tune to the water margin, or the cabaret acts who supported the Beatles on their Japanese tours, such as the Blue Comets, the Tigers, or the Spiders, the kids are into Technipop. They play it in privacy on the Walkman, or out on the streets on their big portables, like the shop Black Dudes in America. While Japan and Talking Heads are big gauging bands at the moment, along with Queen, Kiss, Cheap Trick and Rainbow, they're like the fucking Brummies of the Orient, aren't they? <laughs> the homegrown faves at the moment are Ekichi Zawa, their Bruce Springsteen, Elvis Presley and Chuck Berry rolled into one, along with Yellow Magic Orchestra, Southern All-Stars and an abominable pop group called Juicy Fruits. A local rockabilly band called The Channels would be even bigger than they already are if three of them hadn't been caught molesting 15-year-old girls and warns us about Roosters, a biker band supported by Tokyo's chapter of the Hells Angels who tend to be well-versed in martial arts and like to kill policemen now and then. It was said to me many times in Japan that domestic groups were aware of their culture, but realised the need to communicate in a common tongue. English, writes Bell. The greatest compliment I can pay the Japanese music scene, even after the most cursory visit, is that I wish I could speak Japanese. Uh, oh, what a fucking jolly that was. Uh, oh, too right, yeah. No mention of a Nika, though. For shame. <laughs> <laughs> hey, lads, I just read Max's Japan piece. I think I've thought of the perfect headline. <laughs> Single reviews. In the chair this week is Paul Morley, who insists on using the word consume in all his subheads. His single of the week is Tell Me Easter's on Friday by The Associates. 
The associates are perfectionists. This is the closest pop comes to the elusive dream of perfection. This is another sublime single in the year of the single. A simmering, sharply cut pattern. A stream of seduction. Music of dignity and destiny. A great amount of respect is at play here. Return it. Add a kiss. Don't miss. Meanwhile, Spandau Ballet have put out a double A side, but Morley doesn't bother with the side the radio's playing, Muscle Band and Zero's in on Glow, which he likes. It shrivels the dry Journeys to Glory LP under its heat. It's such a vivid, vaulting chunk of growth, such a bursting tumble through the underground, such a dose of undaunted exertion. Of course the cover's daft, just like the LP, more comic than fascist. In fact, until I wrecked Glow, I'd have said Spandau were fat shit more than fascist. Now the only thing that's fat around here is the base. Go! Don't miss out! Consume! School's out forever, gasps Morley as he gorges upon work by Bow Wow Wow. Sensationalist, irresponsible, distracting and fantastic. The moralists can steal themselves. The art matter realists can steal this. But it's a coat down for Eye of the Lens by Comsat Angels. The worst support act Susie and the Banshees ever had. I can't understand any dedication to the square Comsat Angels. Eye of the Lens is crushingly unimposing. The other three songs on this starchy showcase are tame, tediously fair-minded examples of a lukewarm new pop versatility. Scotland continue to hurl new bands over Hadrian's Wall and the latest are Aztec Camera, who have put out their debut single, just like gold, hey. and Morley reckons they're fucking bra. It's listlessly lovely with a strange, incomplete strength. These love songs that speak of sadness with undefiled integrity seem closer to the white music of Nick Drake and some John Martin than the lament dance music of Josie Kay or the irony pop of Postcard, The Sound of Young Scotland. Private themes and fairy tales, new romance and chill distance. Aztec camera are smooth and special taste, a smile on their face, a tear in their eye, between Vic Goddard and Cliff Richard. Young Marble Giants have released the Test Card EP, six instrumentals in praise and celebration of mid-morning television, and is praised by Morley for affectionately capturing the ageing formality of schools' programmes, the unspoilt correctness of the links in between, the colourless compulsion and pale peace of the TV at that time. A very sane, confidently superficial souvenir – Englishness you can trust. God, it's like I'm having phone sex with David Stubbs reading out this <laughs> reviews page. <laughs> the thing is, though, I mean, you get the feel with Morley's I love Morley's mm. writing, and, and you get the feeling with it that he sent this through, right, and 
no editor fucked with it. Or if they did, it was probably just little chops here and there. Mm. The weird thing about doing the singles pages, whereas, like, with review, I always found with Laura Reviews album reviews, I could kind of get away with most stuff um, mm. because it went to the reviews ed. With singles pages, it usually went through to the features ed, which was a different kettle of fish. So whenever I sent singles reviews through, I'd always get this call because, you know, it'd be an all nighter and you'd get the call at nine in the morning mm. of, like, Neil, this just won't do. <laughs> <laughs> you had to change loads. What did you have to change, Neil? Your opinion on the records or just cut the Ponzi shit out? Just, yeah, the the, the kind of thing, you know, I mean, I, I was just a big Chris Roberts, Paul Morley head, mm. if you like. And I tried to do some of the stylistic things that Morley's doing with his writing. You know, you try and put a bit of that in. Yeah. And it'd always just get knocked back, in my experience, anyway. But has it got a beat to it? Can you <laughs> tap a toe to it, Neil? That's what the kids want to know. The thing is, if Pricey was say, I mean, Pricey was reviews editor, if I'd have sent through a singles page for him, he would have just, you know, checked if it's under word count and, and run with it. No, oh, bless him. Because it, for some reason, the singles were seen as a feature, mm. and consequently, you got a different editor head looking at it and they just you know they wanted rid of that kind of writing by the time i joined so Aww. yeah but the singles page is a fucking huge deal of a magazine isn't it yeah. it's usually one of the first things i turn to yeah in theory i mean by this point nobody gave a shit what we said anyway so <laughs> you could just publish anything it wouldn't make any difference <laughs> i got it though i got rung up at nine in the morning once like what you because i'd done a singles page and sound garden had made a comeback and it was just <laughs> dreary I, know, I just did a review and just wrote shite garden more like or, you know some childish <laughs> thing like that and it's like this is one of the biggest bands in the world you can't say that so <laughs> so i had to rewrite it and as i recall the rewritten one said it rocks <laughs> like a bed with someone fucking a corpse on it um <laughs> and i think they probably would rather stuck with the original but there you go yeah i mean it's the thing about morley even though sometimes it it might seem a little bit much and that did happen from time to time Mm. you always get a little a little shard of brilliance in everyone like Mm. he says associates put out tell me easter's on friday as a single and it's mostly just a lot of alliteration and you know funny words but also he says there's a great deal of respect at play here which is like a Mm. key thing the associates put out tell me easter's on friday they're showing you respect by doing that show Mm. some respect back to them it's brilliant yeah i mean morley can be flash but there's heart and i know that sounds corny but there is and you think he's on the side of the listener and I think that's really important. Yeah. Joseph Case, sorry for laughing, sounds real wild and with a great colour cartoon cover, is product to want. Fad Gadget's Make Room suggests that Depeche Mode will be the first mute boys to hit the hit parade, but Fad might be the first mutant to make the old grey whistle test. And Orange Juice's poor old soul is no pips, no peel, no growl, no snarl, just juice. A bit of a fucking week for singles, isn't it? Mm. Isn't it just? Sadly, despite all this proto-new pop goodness being available, the mug masses are still queuing up, waiting for their thick maws to be filled with the sugary pap they mistakenly (laughs) crave, and Morley ploughs through them. Rationally speaking, I would detect that bad manners are running out of life, he says, in response to just a feeling. 
A Fool Like You by Yachts is dismissed as manger and Don't Panic by Liquid Gold, Shame by Racer, One to One by Joe Jackson and Saint Sand by B.A. Cunterson are all bunched together, all the better to take the critical shotgun too. Look, I know I go on, writes Morley, but the pop music of altered images, scars, associates, orange juice, cure, a certain ratio, etc., should be in the hip parade selling thousands and dislodging pop culture shapes every month in every way. Their music is relentless, consumed by energy, and produced to be lapped up by the masses, not culted into corners. The pop that generally charts with obnoxious ease, like this mixed bag, is weary, though shrewd and studious. All those groups like Altered Images and Fire Engines want to force life, action and new style into the hip parade, the mobile militant charge that pop music should be. Look at what a fuss Adam's caused. That's because new pop consumers are essentially starved and cut off from new pop commotion. Liquid Gold, Racer, Joe Jackson, B.A. Cunterson. What a state. He'd be pleased to know that none of those songs got in the charts. Mm. And he signs off with Nigel Dixon's Thunderbird on Stiff Records. Nigel Dixon, ex-whirlwind, on the limp label with a sad plop of neo-pop crushed under the weight of this week's singles. Anyone feel sad? And that's the way it is this week. Oh, nice Walter Cronkite reference. Well played, Mr. Morley. <laughs> In the album section, the main review this week is given over to He Who Dares Wins, the debut LP by Theatre of Eight, and Phil McNeil is not convinced that this time next year the band will be millionaires. Last year, a heroic gamble, the Iranian embassy siege, thrust the SAS into history and the hearts of the great British public. It is less likely that Theatre of Hate's heroic gamble will be similarly successful. TOH's gamble involves releasing as their debut LP a £2.50 cassette recorded live show under the banner Beat the Bootleggers Bootleg. <laughs> Quite why Theatre of Hate should want to beat the bootleggers, thousands of whom are of course to be found jostling for space at every Theatre of Hate gig, is a mystery. More to the point, does the immediacy of this Leeds Warehouse set convey the passion of this inspiredly committed group? Or will the dull sound quality and warts plenty prove to be a leaden albatross about the career of the most exciting new group in the country? Strip down, live, the rhythm emphasis often sounds horribly drab. Countered by Brandon's histrionics, they sometimes veer dangerously close to the clumsy starkness of such early 70s progressive rock drones as Van de Graaff Generator. One enemy writer assures me Theatre of Hate can't be any good because a friend of his knew Coke Brandon at school and he was a right prat. I can believe it. Brandon's the spunkiest, most self-important singer to emerge since the equally exciting, equally self-obsessed Kevin Rowland. Like Rowland, he tries to sing things he really shouldn't. Unlike Rowland, he doesn't always bring it off. 
The Who are back with their first new LP in three years, Face Dancers. But Gavin Martin's review cuts like a knife. (laughs) I remember around the time Who by Numbers was released, having a lot of respect for Townsend. He was the only member of Rock's Babylonian hierarchy who seemed concerned about his mythical detachment from the listener, the lies he was living and the life he was lying about. But five years later, with the release of Face Dancers, my respect has been totally demolished, he writes, before decrying the album's directionless lyrics and bubble and squeak-like musical mashing up and rehashing. For Pete's sake, how much longer are we going to have to endure your irrelevant fantasies, concludes Martin, clearly trying to make a name for himself. (laughs) Motown are capitalising on the recent success of Diana Ross's collaboration with Chic and her forthcoming pissing off to RCA by putting out To Love Again, a compilation of remixes, movie soundtrack recordings and offcuts from the Diana LP. But Dorota Cock doesn't reckon it in the slightest. It's bound to be forgotten before the last wine dies away. This LP is Diana Ross's contribution to Late Night Slush and a sure indication that she would benefit from any change that contract shifting might bring. The BEF, Ian Marsh and Martin Ware's Human League Heaven 17 Perineum, have released their instrumental LP music for Stowaways, Stowaway being the original name for the Sony Walkman, and it makes Chris Bone want to strap on some roller boots and careen (laughs) around a shopping centre in Milton Keynes. (laughs) The first purpose-built cassette for portable recorders from the enterprising British Electric Foundation is one of the few unselfconscious ambient electro-pop products yet made. It's a wonderful new accessory to daily living, one that should be used on buses or trains, in the supermarket or at the laundrette as an accompaniment to household chores for anything as long as you're not standing still. Unlike Eno, they recognise that ambient music for most people means tinny transistor radios, not long, vacuous instrumentals. Thus theirs is a synthesis of pop from Adamant and Gary Glitter to Kraftwerk and OMD, with the bonus that the 35 minutes of this cassette are far more consistent than the equivalent of any radio show. At £2 more than Bow Wow Wow's Your Cassette Pet, it comes pretty expensive. But if you're one of the lucky elites, like me, who can afford such luxuries as portable machines, then you're hardly likely to quibble. Oh, they're all cool with his big orange discs of foam over his ears. Yes. There's a lot of tape stuff, isn't there? In yes. The news and, and here, yeah. In the gig guide, well, David could have seen the Bell Stars at Dingwalls, the Grateful Dead at the Rainbow, Tom Waits pulling a three-night stint at the Victoria Apollo, the Buddy Rich Orchestra's week-long stand at Ronnie Scott's, Gene Pitney at Lewisham Concert Hall, Sugar Minot and David Rodigan at Hammersmith Palais, and wound up the week enjoying the Bush Tetras at Dingwalls, or altered images at the 100 Club, but probably didn't. 
Taylor could have got his brothel creepers on for stray cats at Birmingham Odeon, seen Rose Royce at the Odeon the night after that, and then followed it up with Steel Eye Span again at the Odeon before getting double denimed up for status quo's two nights at the NEC. They triple denimed, Al. Let's not forget the waistcoat. Of course, yeah. <laughs> yeah, hat tip to the very great Francis Ween, who reminded me of this for our social media a couple of weeks yeah. ago. The serious quo look was a denim three-piece suit mm. and ting. Oh. As I said at the time, I'm sure that if they'd been able to find some denim shoes, we might just have <laughs> witnessed the quadruple. No pop, no style. They're strictly rock. <laughs> yeah, probably not in diamond socks. No. <laughs> Sarah could have seen altered images at Leeds Fan Club. The teardrop explodes at Sheffield Unair. The selector at Chef Polly the following night and finished her week at Doncaster Rotters, checking out Classics Nouveau and Theatre of Hate. Beat the bootlegger, Sarah. <laughs> Al could have basically set up camp in Rock City for the week and had a go at Pig's Eye Bingo with Splodge Nessa Bands on Thursday, <laughs> Wasted Youth on Friday, The Selector on Saturday, Fuck All on Sunday and Monday, but come back hard for a night with Rose Royce on Tuesday. Neil could have seen Gino Washington at Warwick Unair, Victorian parents and human cabbages at Coventry's General Wolf, and fuck all else. And Simon could have seen Psycho Hamster at Cardiff South Glamorgan Institute, bombed it over the bridge to see Bow Wow Wow at Bristol Locarno, and checked out Elvis Costello and the attractions at Cardiff Top Rank. Oh, what a time to be alive! <laughs> In the letters page, Paul Denism, presumably Paul Denoyer using a demi-pseudonym, the reasons for which now are lost to the sands of time, is running gas bag this week. And the main topic of conversation is the announcement that the remaining members of Joy Division have returned as New Order and are already in the charts with their debut single, Ceremony, currently at number 34. All I know is that a man died, a man who alone with four other musicians laid down three killer singles and two classic albums, which personally left me devastated and which I suspect had a similar effect on a great many people, writes Philip Lansdale from Knutsford, Cheshire. Then tragically the man, a manic depressive, bid a final farewell. Gone forever, sadly missed, but no... I heard the news today. Oh boy. I stood alone in the record shop. I heard a record. That guitar sound. The tingling cymbals. I had to get closer. I knew that sound. Tears filled my eyes. They were carrying on with a little help from their friends. I paid the man my money and made for the privacy of my own turntable. Oh, joy of joys, the only slab of vinyl worthy of a second listen since that single almost a year ago. Hmm. And that single... The birdie song by the tweets. <laughs> <laughs> Naturally, the band's new name has already raised hackles, but Kevin, a correspondent seemingly from nowhere, has already leapt in front of the critical gunfire in slow motion, screaming, No! 
I interpret the name New Order as meaning joy after despair and suffering, he writes. The oh, that's oppre- all right, then. <laughs> <laughs> the oppressors overthrown and the people free with fresh hope and an intense happiness. Bernard Albrecht, Stephen Morris, Gillian and Peter Hook seem to me to be among the least likely people in the universe to have fascist sympathies. Just listen to the music. I feel your concern is ill-founded. Forget, whilst thinking of New Order, the past of Nazi Europe. They're worlds apart. Concentrate on the present. Look to the future. Yeah. Yeah, Gillian's got a surname, yeah. you know, mate. I've mm. explained. Yeah, it's actually an ancient symbol for the sun. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of which, uh, check out the press ad for Bow Wow Wow's single work release oh, yeah. this week. Yeah. Don't know if it's in this NME, but it's in that week's record mirror but probably not in bravo on account of it being <laughs> against the law in that yes. country uh, yeah it's a great big ancient symbol for the sun yes mm. probably a witty reference to the title of the song being work do you get it in other fast chat news the enemy did a feature on the anti-nazi league the other week and the mewling whining letters have piled in whether the anti-Nazi League like it or not, people have the right to hold and express whatever opinions they choose in a democratic society, uh. even if those views are in themselves undemocratic, says Dubone from Bristol. Do the League subscribe to the view of freedom of speech for everyone except the right? I am sometimes cynical enough to believe that the League is as odious as any political movement which helps to divide society while claiming to unite it. Or am I just another Nazi to be removed, says the Nazi twat. (laughs) So the enemy's at it again, pushing politics down our throats with promotional features on the anti-Nazi league. Before all you impressionable mix-up idiots out there go and blow the dust off your old ANL badges circa 1978, consider the following. Why does enemy, while posing as a music paper, blandly include articles championing Marxism and Marxist leftist organisations amongst its musical features, thus suggesting that the two are inseparable and therefore we should subscribe to both? Asks non-aligned from Wolverhampton, who actually spent time writing a letter, putting a stamp on it and posting this shit. If enemy really feels that his readers are unable to formulate opinions for themselves without the aid of its propagandising, it might at least do the honourable thing and present both sides of the argument. So go on, NME. Give the National (laughs) Front the same opportunity to state their case. Or are you afraid of being investigated by Mr. P. Haynes' intelligence, writes the Nazi yim-yam dipshit. I thought the Nazis already did state their case. Mm. Pretty hard to forget, wasn't it? Although it's 1981, punk is not dead, and its exponents are still alive and moaning like fishwives. Barney Hoskins' write-up of the UK Subs Lyceum gig was pathetic, 
declares Pitts of South Norwood. Apart from being ignorant and moronic, I think old Barney must be blind and deaf. He writes, for some reason, Antipasti did not appear. This is remarkable, considering that everyone else at the Lyceum saw them. You couldn't miss them. The singer had bright red hair, and they made quite a bit of noise. Yeah, which distinguishes them from all the other <laughs> bands on that lineup, no doubt. Adam and the Ants were in full cry at the moment, and are about to undertake a UK tour. But Dominic, of no fixed abode or hometown, reckons it's a swing. So Adam is charging the kids three to four pounds to thank them for their wonderful support. He writes, I hope the kids tell Adam to fuck off. (laughs) If Sting had Debbie Harry's legs, little girls wouldn't stare at him. If Debbie Harry had Sting's tits, little boys wouldn't stare at her, writes Sarah Wiggins from London. Sexism is about stereotypes, male and female. Watch a few adverts. You'll find not nearly so many stereotype macho men as stereotype pretty women. That's the only reason more women than men fight sexism. They're stereotyped and picked on more often. Sexism stifles all of us, men and women. And although you may not have noticed it, the male stereotype is swinging from just muscly to muscly and pretty, which you may find harder to contend with, unless, of course, you are Sting. If Sting had Debbie Harry's tits, would you look at him? (laughs) Wait, you mean legs? No, I'm I'm just throwing that out there. I'd always stare at Debbie Harry, but if Sting had Debbie Harry's tits, of course I'd stare at him. The kind of horrified curiosity. And if Sting had Debbie Harry's legs, everyone would stare at him. Until he stowed them somewhere discreet. (laughs) (laughs) And finally, it's a letter from a frequent NME letters page correspondent of the era, a non-disillusioned Sharon from Ormskirk, Lancashire. I have better things to do than become enraged and upset at the flippant editing of my recent attack on your misplaced right up slash down on crass, she writes in an open letter to the enemy, and Andy Gill in particular. I've since been very busy fantasising violently about chopping your hands off with a slightly blunt hatchet, shoving your poison pens up your bottom, thus poking holes into your brain, mopping up my baby's diarrhoea accidents with the enemy, plastering it to the wall and bombarding it with rotten eggs rather than go and beat someone up. I sleep soundly with proof that you are very silly. May your ego burst, Andy Gill. I sincerely hope that you drown in your own vile goo. You'd also be as well to have a communal shit on blank paper. I don't think you're stupid. You seem quite intelligent, actually. But it's your warps, kinks and perversions that worry me. This correspondence is now closed, as are your eyes and is ooh Sharon fancies and dare Sharon fancies and dare fifty eight pages thirty p I never knew there was so much in it. It's not a bad issue, is it? The enemy. I mean, no, and, and sounds also, good. You know, they've just not not just got rid, but Birchill's left in nineteen eighty, and I think Parsons has left in seventy nine, and it's just a much better paper now. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that last letter, those threats of violence, it was amazing what you could kind of get away with. I mean, I remember a letter from a guy called. 
called Gurpreet. That's all I kind of remember about it. But it was about a corner shot review I did. Mm-hmm. And it got printed on the letters page. And it, it basically said, you know, um, if I'm ever in the Midlands, I'm going to hunt you down and kill you. It actually just <laughs> said that. Midlands is a big place though, Neil. Yeah, true enough. He was from Leicester, but yeah, it was it was just a weird thing that you could just yeah, if you wanted to kill somebody back then, you could send a death threat into the music press and it'd get printed. So what else was on telly today? Well, BBC One starts as they mean to go on by laying down a pile of open university knowledge bombs at six forty AM before closing down for an hour and five minutes. Then the channel leaps back into action with three hours and twenty minutes of schools and colleges ramble before closing down again for two minutes what's the point of closing down for two minutes man piss break Mm. get the potter's wheel on all them goldfish (laughs) then it's regional news in your area the midday news pebble mill at one bod you and me and a short shock shock of schools and colleges again Claire Rayner drops in on two people who have beaten their addictions to alcohol and tranquilizers in Claire Rayner's casebook. Then it's another close down, this time for 18 minutes. Then it's Play School, Secret Squirrel, Jack and Ore, Scooby and Scrappy Doo. Oh, fuck that. John Craven's News Round and Sarah Green shows us how to make a card for Mother's Day. After Fred Bassett, it's the evening news, regional news in your area, nationwide, and then Prenderville, Han, Rod and Ingle show us some paint that can kill flies, onions that won't make you cry, and disco lighting for the living room in tomorrow's world. Oh, disco lights, Neil. <laughs> I, was just, I, I actually shivered when you read that, man. <laughs> it's weird looking back, isn't it, to think these people have to live in a world without paint that could kill flies. <laughs> Surely, though, if you got a fly and stuck it in a tin of paint, that wouldn't do much good, would it? (laughs) BBC Two goes three the hard way with borehole logging, seven card study, and Guernsey in another open university triforce, also at 6.40, and then closes down for three hours and five minutes. Then it's play school, then it's another close down, this time for two hours and 35 minutes, before they treat us to the final day of the Cheltenham Festival, including the Gold Cup, whatever that is, I don't fucking know, <laughs> fuck horse racing. Fuck off. I used to work in a bookies, man. It was the most mm. boring job ever. Non-stop. Seven fucking rows of tellies all showing fucking horse racing all day. Oh, Did you get fired for stealing a small pencil? <laughs> <laughs> then they closed down again for half an hour before springing back with more open university. Then it's King of the Rocket Men. And they're now into the final five minutes of It's a Grand Life. The 1953 film about post-war army life starring Frank Rand. Diana Dawes and the wrestler Dirty Jack Pie. ITV starts at half nine with two and a half hours of schools programmes. Then it's Gideon, Stepping Stones, The Sullivans, News at One and Regional News in Your Area. After the Southern TV soap that Taylor likes so much together, it's Afternoon Plus, then a repeat of the racing game. The Dick Francis series where a retired jockey with a mangled up hand forms a private detective agency with a karate expert called Chico, (laughs) and off they go to investigate some horsey crimes. (laughs) This week's episode... Horse nap. <laughs> <laughs> How did he get a mangled hand? A horse trod on it. 
Oh, I thought he might have been feeding him a sugar lump or something. Uh, <laughs> he forgot to tuck his thumb in yes. <laughs> palm. That's followed by a repeat of Leave It to Charlie, the David Roper sitcom about an insurance agent in Lancashire. After Dr Snuggles and Bugs Bunny and friends were whipped over to Wembley Arena to see Great Britain take on Canada in the USSR in the Hunt Gymnastics International, followed by some good old American gloopiness in Little House on the Prairie. After the news at 5.45, Kevin Banks gives Iris Scott some mithering crossroads, then it's regional news in your area, and they're 20 minutes into Amos and Mr Wilkes going on holiday in Emmerdale form, presumably not booking out an Airbnb for some chemsex, but you know, <laughs> you never know. <laughs> I know you don't want to look at it again, but there was an open university thing you read out called Borehole, what was it called? Hang on. Um, borehole login. Oh, okay. I misheard you. Sorry, I thought you said borehole loving. I don't know why I thought that. <laughs> no, mate. Borehole loving was part of the Open University's Red Triangle series. <laughs> All right, then, pop crazy youngsters. It is time to go way back to March of 1981. Always remember. We may coat Dan your favourite band or artist, but we never forget they've been on top of the pops more than we have. Hello, welcome to yet another edition of Top of the Pops. It's 20 past seven on Thursday, March 19th, 1981, and Top of the Pops has entered its ninth month under the reign of Michael Hurl, and business is booming. It's been knocking on the door of the top 10 most watched broadcasts on all three channels all year. And while this episode will pull down a mere 14.9 million viewers on a par with Crossroads, Open All Hours and The Professionals, next week's episode will bag 19 million on them, which is Coronation Street numbers. And I have no idea why. Third of the population, pretty much. Yes. It was all we had, that's the thing. It was all we had. Yeah, Yeah. I bet it was raining that night. (laughs) Pop music TV-wise, it's currently the only game in town, with only the old Grey Whistle test and a few late-night regional efforts knocking about. And the only new music programme that ITV have in the works at the moment is Moondogs Matinee, which is another Muriel Young Kids programme hosted by a band from Northern Ireland, which featured the likes of Chaz and Dave, Rockpile and Andy Fairweather Low. <laughs> not only that, but Top of the Pops is also going through a very rare period where it's not being coated down in the media. Even Clive James found time to mention this episode in his TV review in next Sunday's Observer and said that one of the acts on tonight's show, quote, uncorked the best pop single in years. It should make you feel good about life for about three and a half minutes. I'll leave it there for now. (laughs) A mystery from the Godfather. Is it as good as dog shit in my garden, I wonder? (laughs) The period of guest presenters, pop news and surprise micro-interviews that flared up after the technician strikes is long behind us. But chaps, we're still a long way from the Yellow Her era. And judging by this episode, the show is absolutely crying out for a revamp, don't you think? Very much so. It's not looking 80s yet. 
Um, there's no. frequent moments in this episode where if you'd have been told, you know, this was from 76 or something, you could have well believed it. Yeah. Yeah, there's a, a few attempts to uh, make a few little changes. It's, it's not really happening yet, is it? So your host tonight is Peter Powell, who is now three and a half years into his career with the BBC and nearing the peak of his career there. He's currently firmly embedded into the drive time slot from half past four to 7pm on weekdays at Radio 1, which means he gets to break down the new Top 40 in full every Tuesday. That was important, wasn't it? Oh, it it was, yeah. I've banged on many a time enough about nipping out to spend it on my lunch break on Tuesday afternoons to get the first news from Gallup. But later on, we're going to hear massive chunks of the new Top 40, which was really important, man, wasn't it? Very important, yeah. I mean, let's be honest, 81. I mean, this, for me, was a time before the big emergence of commercial stations on the radio so it was radio one constantly and this was a big deal i mean his voice peter powell's voice is as as associated with that rundown as it is for me in 81 with his advert for um chart hits volume one and two which is a a big memory (laughs) of power from 81 as well Tonight, he finds himself as the meat in a hairy sandwich <laughs> as his show takes over from Travis's afternoon slot and then hands over to Wheels, the hour-long show about motorbikes presented by the living Nasher Badge himself. Not only that, but tonight's episode, which is being broadcast right now on Radio 1, features Dave Taylor, the wheelie king himself, putting a new motorcyclist through his paces and giving him tips on how to break into the sport of motorbike racing a certain (laughs) peter james bernard pal fucking hell (laughs) all up in your area (laughs) he's already been lined up for a stint on the radio one road show including an appearance at collion bay in cornwall where the advertising in the local press will announce that there's also free access to the pole gever naturist bay (laughs) thank god it wasn't travis's week to do the road show (laughs) and along with dave lee travis and simon bates he'll be holding down a summer DJ residency at Tiffany's Ballroom in Blackpool going head to head with a rival discotheque who will be hosting DJ slots this summer by Martin Shaw (laughs) Lewis Collins and Dennis Waterman (laughs) Taylor you'd go to professionals disco wouldn't you? Oh yeah imagine the the calibre of ladies who'd be turning up at that (laughs) with Cowley at the bar fucking moaning that they're not playing anything ever (laughs) yeah all those ladies either wearing designer jeans or uh, calf length skirts and kitten heels mm. all of whom die before the end of the night to terrorists <laughs> no doubt yeah but you know whatever there'll be another one along in a minute <laughs> by the way chaps do you know who officially opened Paul Gavin Naturist Bay in 1971 I found out during my research I was quite delighted Ooh, 71 someone in the entertainment realm Reg Varney mm. oh your mmm indicates that Taylor was close there. Bob Grant. No. Um. Arthur Lowe? 
<laughs> Freddie Starr. Oh, oh Jesus! Of course, Christ. it was Freddie Starr. Sadly, he didn't go about as a nudie Hitler with a comedy swastika painted on his bollock. Uh, he was in a nice seventies leisure tracksuit. Uh, not Freddie Starr hid my hamster. <laughs> Freddie Starr smuggled my budget. Ugh. This is Powell's thirty-fifth appearance as a host of our favourite Thursday evening pop treats, and he reached the summit of his profession when he hosted the 1980 Christmas Day episode and is still the youngest member of a talent pool currently consisting of Richard Skinner, Mike Reed, Tommy Vance, Dave Lee Travis and Jingle Nonso BE. And there's been an attempt by the BBC to place him squarely within the ranks of the dishes. Mm. Only yeah. last week he appeared in the pages of the Sunday Mirror Women's section as that week's action man posing in the very latest off the peg casual wear. Quote Britain's most popular DJ, Peter Powell, tells me that after three years of having no special girlfriend, he is now in love. Alison is a dancer and model, and I'm both possessive and proud of her, he says. <laughs> I've never been happier. And you don't know her, she goes to a different school. <laughs> How could a guy like Peter, aged 29, 5 foot 8 inches, with sexy dark eyes, square jaw and fine brown hair, stay unattached for so long? Answer, Peter really stays still long enough for him to catch up. Mm. He's on Radio 1 every weekday afternoon. He's a regular on top of the pops. He's forever scurrying around Britain doing live DJ gigs. He recently received a award for his popularity from Prince Michael of Kent. <laughs> What's the baseline for that? Being more popular than Prince Michael of Kent's missus. <laughs> and when he's not working, he's playing football, squash, tennis, or sailing, windsurfing, or skiing. But I did manage to pin him down long enough to model his top of the pops among the latest in men's casual fashions. Two-tone beige nylon anorak by Adidas from Top Man of Burton's, cotton shirt and stretch denim jeans by Vidal Sassoon from Way In at Harrods. <laughs> That's a strong look. So yeah, everything's coming up, pal, but it's the last episode he'll ever present in his 20s. Article in the telly pages of today's Daily Mirror, Hitman Peter turns 30. This jockey Peter Powell is trying to grow old gracefully. Peter, who introduces Top of the Pops tonight, will turn 30 on Tuesday. I am facing being 30 like an ostrich with his head in the sand, hoping it'll go away quietly, says Peter. So, chaps, from next week, there will be no presenters in their 20s until they're drafting Gary Davis and Pat Sharp at the end of the next year. Oh, dear. Yeah. Gosh. And of an era. Yes. I love that article where at the start it said, uh, so how can a man like this be single? He's five foot eight. <laughs> he looks like a pre-chewed bolus of bubble gum. So desperately ingratiating that his face is folding in on itself. Mm. Oh, tightly folded bud. The flowers of evil. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's weird him turning 30. He's going to be 72 this year. I mean, he is 72 this year now, Peter Powell, God, which is yeah. mental. Um, but he's still looking good at this point. He's still, um, you know, looking mm. like the party crasher killer from the hard way. <laughs> he's very, very ambitious, isn't he, Powell? 
Always. Oh, yes. I mean, I read an interesting quote, which mm. might have been mentioned on Chart Music before, of his early ambitions in this interview that I read. Powell said, I've always been interested in business. Mm. When I was 17, I was a salesman for expanded metal dung passages for piggeries. <laughs> it was my dream to be a salesman for ICI. So there you go. You know, ICI's <laughs> loss is our Ooh, game. Reach for the stars. Yes. <laughs> and then I noticed somebody across the sty masturbating a pig. <laughs> <laughs> and he got me into Radio 1. He knows where the bodies are buried, does Powell. Mm. I mean, think about yeah. yeah. Think about who he represents now, particularly right now at this moment that we're recording this podcast. Mm. The whole Chiswick Mafia, the whole Schofield thing. Oh, yes. Yeah, he knows where the bodies are buried. But as far as presentation goes, chaps, we know that age brings maturity, mm. and we can see that in Powell, can't we? The poem has been replaced by a sensible haircut, and this is no longer the Mr. Wu Hei of 19 1977. You know, songs are no longer ace. Mm. They're excellent. And <laughs> yeah. the feet are going to stay on the floor throughout this episode, aren't they? Yeah, but you can tell he's still got his enthusiasm by the way he starts off. Hello, welcome to yet another edition of Top <laughs> of the Pop. <laughs> Which it, I like because it has a sort of desperate death-haunted world weariness which is a little bit at odds with his upbeat demeanor and Mm. kind of you know he's like a slaughterman smiling ruefully as he slots a bolt through the 45th cow brain of the day just (laughs) sealed inside a meaningless endlessly repeating sequence of episodes at Top of the Pops. We'll be there one day. It's hard to imagine, I know. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, he could have looked at his older peers at Radio 1 and slotted into one of their kind of categories, like DLT, for instance. But I think Mm. he's taking cues from Jensen um, in being a, a safe pair of hands at this point. It is weird with Powell, though, isn't it? I mean, he's a man who hasn't aged well. I don't mean personally. Last time I saw him, he, you know, he was holding up reasonably averagely for yeah. a mm. man with a face that's essentially internal. <laughs> <laughs> Bundled in like a Brussels sprout. Um, but then he was an early adopter of what was then called Keep Fit, wasn't he? Yes, yeah, he um, was. Yeah. What I mean by not aging well is that his legend has grown tatty mm. because mm. he's remembered as a sort of second tier DJ isn't it yeah but he was a huge name at the time but he's not really up there in the collective memory with well-loved figures like travis or bates <laughs> or or mike reed or even gary davis right but at the mm. same time he's not down in that third tier of cultural amnesia with paul burnett or yeah. adrian john or dixie peach or no. mm me mark page he's on that sort of middle shelf with people like richard skinner yeah or yeah, yeah. or maybe diddy david hamilton <laughs> the the tony gubber of music presentation <laughs> and with peter powell it's partly because he's not got his own thing you know mm. in the 80s they had music djs like peel and and yeah. janice long and ranking miss p robbie vincent andy kershaw loathe him or hate him mm. um and then they had the supposed personality DJs like Steve Wright. Yes. But it's the fools who tried to straddle that gap who've actually fallen into it mm. in the collective memory. Because nobody thinks about these in-between blokes who, on the one hand, were entirely image-orientated, but that image was just, hey, I'm a regular young guy yeah, who yeah, yeah. quite likes his music. It mm. was just too bland to be memorable over time. But back then, Peter Powell was huge. He was a massive star. Mm. I mean, he never had the weekday breakfast show. 
But he must have opened more fates and oh, yeah. guested at more provincial dicky bow doorman nightclubs than most cunts in history, and was considered dishy with his beady eyes and pushy manner. And all of that is now gone, as though it had never existed, mm. like the contents of a broken hard drive after the heat death of the universe. Mm. You can say that, but also you can say that he got out in time. Yeah. You know, he was never going to be lumped in with the U-Tree era of Radio 1 DJs because he just said, right, OK, I've done this now, I'm going off to do something else and be even more successful at that. It's true, yeah. Although the thing about Powell as well, when you look back, he does represent a very specific subset of British men from this period, right? It's the kind of bloke who's very well aware that he's now living in the 80s, mm. even if he's not mm. quite sure yet what that means uh, beyond yeah. having shorter hair and, and straight leg trousers right? and <laughs> maybe a tight white t-shirt promoting Sandwell Valley Nature Reserve or something <laughs> like <laughs> under the bomber jacket but he's ambitious and he's positive in a way that didn't really exist in the 70s that kind of yeah. Slightly obnoxious, but mm. moderately discreet kind of ambition, mm. right? Like, I don't know his politics, although I can fucking guess yes. you sense <laughs> that he would not see a contradiction between, like, the go-for-it positivity of the jam and the upbeat mm. vibe of early Thatcherism, mm. right? Like, he operates mm. in the cultural sphere, but he never really thinks about what culture is or what it means, no. like, apart from telling John Peel not to play hip-hop because it was the music of black criminals yes <laughs> because when did they ever make any good music <laughs> he's got no ideas but he respects himself for getting on and making it happen yeah do you know what i mean yeah. in summary mm. he is exactly the kind of person who would describe the record vienna by ultravox as magnificent mm. yes well he's a businessman <laughs> more than a, a, a personality in a way um, I, I mean, you get the feeling even through his Radio 1 career that he ultimately what he's doing is networking. Yeah. You yeah. know, he, he doesn't really want to foster a future career as the kind of voice of Britain, like fucking Noel Evans or <laughs> yeah. something. I think he just, yeah, uh, he, he's a businessman who happens to have spent some time in his, in his youth, in his salad days, doing this, presenting the most popular pop program on television. Yeah, he played his hand very well, didn't he? Mm. It's yeah. just a hook. Like, nowadays, he's like, hey, remember this face? Yeah, yeah, like a Brussels sprout. But it's amazing, isn't it, when you look it up, the amount of people that he managed, what they musically call talent management, right? Mm -hmm. Managed Simon Cowell, Adam Deck, Philip Schofield, Mm -hmm. and, good God, Richard and Judy. Yeah, yeah. The television of white criminals. <laughs> but I looked him up at Company's house, right? And it's quite Ooh. the patchwork quilt, his mm. record there. I'm not really a business guy, you'll be shocked to hear. <laughs> but the list of companies that Peter Powell has co-founded mm. or been the president of and resigned from, that list is longer than the string of a stunt kite. <laughs> One of those stunt kites that somebody else with the same name put their name to. <laughs> Hello, welcome to yet another edition of Top of the Pops. And we've got a great show lined up. We've got The Who, we've got Roxy Music, we've got Duran Duran. And if you can handle that lot, then hopefully you can handle this. Because live on Top of the Pops tonight is Sharon Red. And can you handle it? 
We get hit with the merest flicker of the Top of the Pops white on black logo with a blue square border layered atop each other, a conceit they have been using since August of last year and would continue to use until July of this year, and the strains of the instrumental bit of Can You Feel It by the Jacksons, sadly not on this episode. That cold open style that they're going for here really unsatisfactory it's brutal it's got an emergency broadcast hint to it hasn't it (laughs) or back in the day when the adverts came on and the the regional logo would flash up Mm. yeah yeah Yeah, that's not good man and you need a theme tune you need a clarion call to bring all the youth together yeah yeah completely i mean it ties in with what you were saying the 80s hasn't really started yet they've decided that whole lot of love isn't going to cut it in the thrusting new era but they've not replaced it with anything no no you need a theme tune so you can turn it up and wait for the thunderous footsteps coming down the stairs mm. yeah <laughs> then the screen fills with powell in a lemon yellow wind cheetah with the sleeves rolled up a jazzy blue mustard and wine striped shirt with a collar turned up and powder blue slacks oh new sounds new styles eh chaps Ooh, powder blue slacks with a thin brown belt of course you know, yes like, you know, you've got to have an eye for detail mm. with this sort of thing and introducing the next record with some of the slickest sexiest dance moves ever oh, busted yes. out by a man in a lemon yellow yeah, wind yeah, cheetah yeah. and powder blue slacks it's a bit startling this convulsion of youthful exuberance from a man dressed like Paul out of ever decreasing circles. <laughs> He tells us we've got a great show lined up and then spoilers half the acts on offer, telling us if we can handle that lot, then hopefully we can handle this. Can you handle it? By Sharon Red. Born in Norfolk, Virginia in 1945, Sharon Red was the daughter of a producer at King Records, James Brown's original label. She signed to United Artists in 1968 and put out a few singles before being headhunted a year later by a couple of Australian stage producers who cast her in the Sydney production of Hair. She became an overnight success over there, appearing in adverts for Amoco petrol stations and landing her own TV special. But she, along with other black cast members, had their work visas unrenewed by the Australian Immigration Department and she found herself back in America in the spring of 1971. A year later, she was recruited into Bette Midler's backing singers, the Harlettes, and stayed there for six years, during which time she and fellow Harlette Charlotte Crossley popped up on an episode of Rhoda as Johnny Ventura's backup. In 1978, she signed to RCA and a year later, under the name Front Page, put out the disco single Love Insurance. And by 1980, she had moved to Prelude Records, the New York disco label, who had D-Train and Jocelyn Brown on their books. This is her first single release as a solo artist since her cover of Easy To Be Hard from the Hair soundtrack, which got to number 32 in the Australian chart in 1970. 69. It entered the chart three weeks ago at number 60, then soared 17 places to number 43. And this week it's jumped four places to number 33, which has necessitated a big fly across the Atlantic for a Top of the Pops debut. And all dear chaps, it's safe to say that this is the most disastrous welcoming party for an American since that episode of Dad's Army, where Captain (laughs) Mannering gets chinned twice. (laughs) Fucking hell. 
<laughs> Before we get into it, chaps, the first thing that needs to be pointed out is that immediately after introducing this, the camera sweeps across the studio floor. Pow, still in vision, breaks into a lumbering dad at a wedding dance. Oh, dear. But, he's not doing the running, pal, just yet, but uh, he's more one of those, you know, them thumb toys or push puppets or whatever hmm, you call them. Hmm. You know, when you've got a zebra or summer and you, you push it underneath and it flops. Uh, yeah. Well, he's dancing like he's a push puppet and someone's just applied a tiny bit of pressure. Hmm. A flicker. <laughs> By some distance, he's not the worst dancer. Um, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> but what we see here in the studio, not only from Powell, but from the audience, is there's no other way of putting it apart from in a racist way. Oh, It's the whitest dancing I have ever seen. Should we talk about the single first? Should yeah, we get that sure, out of the way? Sure, sure. Because that'll take off a minute. Because it's a fucking tune, isn't it? It's a great single, but what we're hearing here is not the single. No, 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 no. <laughs> if you actually bought it as a single or heard it on the radio, you'd get a prime example of New York post-disco. Oh, and yeah, yeah. It, you have to listen to the 12-inch special extended version, which is nearly 10 minutes long, and a fucking mint. Mm. The recorded version is this crisp, kind of glittering... I mean, it's perfect. It's one of those early mm. 80s functions. Every single detail is perfect. What yeah. we have here is not that. I mean, like most singles of its ilk and era, it would have completely sailed over my head at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that combination of hardcore funk and show-tune flamboyance. But the performance we get fucking hellfire it's as if michael hill's trying to prove a point by lumping together everything that he wants rid of Mm. from top of the pops i mean i reiterate what we said earlier with regards to plenty of bits in this episode if you'd have told me this was from 76 come on it looks like 76 there seems to be this powerful idea in the 70s in particular that if you give a crowd of young people the task of sitting down and doing an annoying series of hand gestures to do mm. they'll be delighted and like mm. cattle they'll join this herd of idiocy yeah and this is what we get here if we've just talked about the record we now have to talk i think about how the top of the pops orchestra play this record i thought this was all done by 1980 no 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 the sound of philadelphia cheese <laughs> <laughs> indeed I mean, it's a typically shonky start, right, before they actually settle into the song. Mm. Um, there's a few bass mistakes and stuff. Mm. The use of the Top of the Pops Orchestra dates it, because, simply put, they never really got their heads around disco, no. did they? I mean, we keep saying disco, but what we hear is not disco. No. I mean, the point about disco, whether it's been made by Chic or, or whether it's made by ACDC, who I think makes some great disco records, is that the kick drum is a regular thump throughout. And mm. not to get too musicologic, the kick drum the bass drum hits not just in between the snare hits but on each snare hit that's Mm. really key to disco the top of the pops orchestra they play it with a normal sort of kick snare pattern and it instantly dates the song yes it dates the song back to the early 70s and and as ever with the TATP orchestra you know it can't help but have that we've had a Watney's party seven each (laughs) in the green room feel to it as well (laughs) you know so or it'd be Arctic Light by now yeah yeah or Breaker it's a shonky start but they they, they make it into a soul slash funk record not a disco record Mm. so it's weird what we're hearing the big question here I can't work out what she's singing into. Right. Because she's not holding a mic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she doesn't appear to have one clipped to that weird bodysuit that she's wearing. And I've never quite seen this before on Top of the Pops. Wherever the microphone is, it's too far from her Mm. mouth because the acoustics of the vocal are horrendous. So I can't tell... 
is she singing into like a boom mic off screen <laughs> like what they would use to record dialogue on a sit maybe surely no. not do you reckon it was a hastily done sort of pre-recorded version mm. that she did with the top of the pops orchestra or i something? thought of that yeah i thought of that but i don't think so and i'll tell you why because obviously it's not the record it's no, the, certainly no. not the record <laughs> the record being a perfectly weighted production that sounds like a helicopter shot of some skyscrapers mm. <laughs> um as opposed to this this two on the floor nonsense <laughs> um, so i was looking for any suggestion that it was that and that she'd recorded the vocal earlier while not dancing but in fact not only does it look like she's singing live while dancing mm. it fucking sounds like it mm. too because every time she bends off in one direction the level drops right 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 so it's very confusing this clip is up on youtube but it's got the record dubbed over of course (laughs) but at least you can say that the audio fits the chaos of the scene oh Um, oh god with all these kids rowing the boat like they're in school assembly (laughs) it's like you might as well have had girls tying plaits into the hair (laughs) of the girl in front as sharon red sings about how she's apparently so good in bed it's intimidating <laughs> yes i yeah. mean the kids are all sat around on an elongated platform yeah. and they're doing a fucking group blockbusters hand jive years before it was such a thing man yeah, yeah, yeah. it's appalling it is appalling there's this particular young lady who i don't want to pick on but she does look like she could be in her mid-60s to be honest with you <laughs> but she's doing it so stiffly and so confusedly and bewilderedly, you know, because mm. the, the, there's, there's finger points involved in this thing that they're getting mm. the kids to do. And the points she does are so fatally just not right on the beat. I mean, it's interesting watching any group of British dancers, to be honest with you, ever, because mm. you can see the people who actually do dance to music. Um, yeah. They've sort of just got it in their shoulders and their groove, mm. you know? But some people are just incapable. I don't know how they live. <laughs> and there's plenty of those in the audience here. Um, it should be mentioned that a small modicum of, of satisfaction is provided by Legs & Co. in the background. Yeah, Legs & Co. are there as well. I mean, they are still doing... They're doing that rubbish, um, I've just trod in dog shit move. Yes. But, um, <laughs> yeah. They're in the Doric Chitons again, looking like they're doing a keep fit demonstration before some Christians get fed to the lions. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and also, like, Legs and Co. nearing the end of their working life. Yeah. Quite literally left on the shelf here. Oh, yeah. The first yeah, yeah. time in their lives. Relegated to this distant bookcase thing mm. and then a bit later in the song they're let down from the shelf but they're still not allowed out of their technical area mm. they've mm. got a little painted off bit in the corner <laughs> but, and still having to wear industrial knickers in defiance yeah. of this obsessively upskirting cameraman <laughs> like why else are they on a raised platform yeah. um, it must have got tiresome even for game girls like legs and cut yeah. right? in fact this here is the last ever appearance of Pauline Peters oh. who left the legs this week right. to be replaced for the final six months by Anita Chelamar, the right. Doug Yule of fixed grin hoofing. <laughs> Actually, no, no. It's more like when Ron Wood joined the creation because right. that was also for a very brief period right at the end and because they're both better known for what they did afterwards right. in Ron's case the Faces and the Rolling Stones and in Anita's case Toto Coelho oh yes ah, she ate cannibals yes it was incredible <laughs> and as a founding member of the Toto Coelho Ultras I am the bloke 
holding the megaphone with his back to the performance, um, <laughs> I won't have anything bad said about by this time, Legs & Co are pulling double shifts almost every week, you know, doing their own routine and backing up some band. Mm. And I always assumed that it was because, you know, Michael Hurl wanted to jack up the daddy's faction. But now I think, were their contracts on a p- performance basis and Hurl wants them gone as soon as possible? So he's just squeezing maximum value out of them before they're off. Well, instead of saying you signed up for 52 weeks, you signed up to 52 performances. Ah, uh, see, so, yeah. So we get you in two at a time and uh, knob you off early. Yeah. Also, lest we forget, providing a visual contrast to two-man sound. Of course, yes. (laughs) Serves neither party. You know, Legs & Co are being pushed off to the side, and, you know, no one puts Legs & Co in the corner. And meanwhile, Sharon Red, she's there slinking about, telling everyone she's just the best shag ever, Mm. and she's doing it while standing next to lots of younger women. Yeah, there is that. In shorter skirts. But but to be fair, I think Sharon is the star here, Um, not just because it's mm. her record. I think she looks great and she's got this great sort of uh, black yes. spangly dress on. She moves great. Her mm. performance background that you mentioned, you know, being in hair and things like that is clearly there and she puts it across. I mean, with this lumbering fuck awful arrangement, um, which has its pleasures, don't get me wrong, like all Top of the Pops orchestra stuff, it has its interesting, slightly beard up pleasures, but um, yeah, mm. she, she comes through it okay. The audience do not. No. It's a great opportunity for us to see the youth of 1981 and a fucking hell. <laughs> yeah. Dear me, they're dressed so appallingly that if he had had the time, Steve Strange would be standing in their own front doorways and refusing them entrance <laughs> to the outside world. <laughs> no, sorry, this is not for you. There's a couple of little punkers though in there, isn't there? There's, there's like, yes, there's there like are, a yes. few dotted about, and they're actually some of the best dancers, to be honest with you. Yeah. The punks that are dotted in this audience, they, they provide some nice sort of moodiness later on in this episode as well. But yeah, is there anything more dispiriting than seeing British children forced into the block but the fucking dance um, it's well Cheggers plays pop isn't it yeah yeah, yeah. I mean, they should have just given him an inflatable to jump up and down on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in fairness, nobody's going to look cool doing that school assembly. No, but I mean, no, no. rarely has Top of the Pops felt more like a church hall dance and sausage sizzle, which at heart is what it always wanted to be, complete <laughs> with stranger danger, but without the sausages, which yes. were the best bit. <laughs> you know when you watch these old top of the pops is on a downloaded file and it's straight from the bbc vt so sometimes at the end they run on past where the tv broadcast yes. would have cut it so after the mm. credits you yeah, get the yeah. whole of the closing song with the audience dancing and then at the end mm. when mm. it stops you hear the floor manager barking at the kids to leave the studio and it really yeah. does slice through the the jollity like an oxyacetylene torch like you're at the supposed to be at the mm. greatest party in the world and then the second the music stops some old blokes bellowing like thank you for coming now please leave the studio instantly <laughs> and it's a bit of a jolt you know yeah but ladies and gentlemen you now have nine seconds to vacate the building before we uncage the hyenas <laughs> they will be laughing you will not good luck children this 
clip has got that same atmosphere, but while the fucking show is going on. Yeah. Mm. What needs to change, and I think Hell realises it pretty soon, is that this thing of piling the stage with the kids, yeah. that's got to change for a fucking start off. I mean, if you're going to rebuild a set and make it like a nightclub, put the kids out in the nightclub, put zoo mm. cunts up on the platforms, and yeah, just don't let shit like this happen again. Because even though the record itself, even in this iteration, is not a no. bad start to the show, the staging yeah. of it's pretty awful. Shannon does come through okay, though. Apologies for repeating myself, Pop Craze Youngsters, but when we covered Department S in our live show last year, I quoted their interview in Smash Hits in May of this year when they were on Top of the Pops, and I'm quoting it again. <clears throat> Seven o'clock on a Wednesday evening, and in Studio 3 at the television centre, a hundred teenagers are milling about beneath the white arc lights of Top of the Pops. Flint Colbert, the American choreographer of Legs & Co., gets up on stage to tell them what comes next and how to dance to it. The next one's by Department S, and that's a real blitz kid number. I want some intense, meaningful movements. None of this silly disco stuff. So, yeah, by this time, mm. Flick Colby's telling the kids what to do and telling them they've got a pain sweat right now. <laughs> <laughs> because by this point, Hull has clearly had enough with the kids just standing there or chatting to the mates about lads and shoes and what they like the look of in Chelsea Girl at the moment or making rabbit ears behind the mates' back while Dean Freeman's trying to emote and has enlisted Sergeant Major Colbert. <laughs> and by the look of this, it's an experiment that's doomed to failure and zoo are imminent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, those kids here, you can see, are just ashamed of this enforced jollity and they just don't want any part of it. The most shocking thing to my mind is the return of the Top of the Pops Orchestra and whatever the Maggie Stredder singers are calling themselves these days. And, you know, it's clear from the first note that they can't handle it. (laughs) This might do for Seaside Special or the Yorkshire TV Disco Dancing Championship, but, you know, Sharon's been poorly served here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She has. If I wanted to go and get it together, I'd have gone and get it together. Yeah. Or wheel tappers and shunters or something. Oh, can you imagine? (laughs) (laughs) So the following week, can you handle it? Nudged up two places to number 31 somehow and got no further. The follow-up, Love Is Gonna Get Ya, failed to chart, but she roared back in 1982 with Never Give You Up, getting to number 20 in November of that year. Ten years later, DNA, the Tom's Diner remix hitmakers, collaborated with Red on an update of Can You Handle It, which got to number 17 in February of 1992, sparking what should have been a comeback, but she died of pneumonia three months later at the age of 46. Applause our audience, Legs and Co. And Sharon Redden, Can You Handle It? on top of the pops. Okay, he's got an album coming out, the same name as the hit single. His name, Shaggy Stevens, and this old house. This old house wants new children. This old house wants new wife. How? After listing everyone responsible for the last performance, lies to the kids about a new LP that has actually been out for months before throwing us into This Old House by Shaking Stevens. Yes, he added a G. Disgusting (laughs) behaviour. 
Simon Bates wouldn't do that. Simon Bates knows when to snip off a G. <laughs> Born in Evansville, Texas in 1908, Carl Hamblin was the son of a preacher man who founded the Evangelical Methodist Church. In 1931, he relocated to California and became the host of the radio show Family Album, whilst nurturing a career as a country singer-songwriter. And in 1934, he became the first artist signed up to the American subsidiary of Decca. He rapidly became the most popular radio personality in Los Angeles, but the fame got to him and he became a rabid pisshead and gambler. But in 1949, he turned up at a Billy Graham crusade in LA, an event which Graham later claimed was a turning point in his own popularity and bank balance. But when Hamblin subsequently tried to ban beer adverts off his radio show, he got the sack. In 1954, according to legend, Hamblin was on a hunting expedition with his mate John Wayne when they came across a dilapidated hut in the mountains which contained one mangy dog and a human corpse, which inspired him to write this song, which got to number two in the Billboard Country Chart. Later that year, it was covered by Rosemary Clooney and put out as a B-side to Hey There, which got to number one in America. But when it was released over here, the sides were flipped around and this old house became her first UK number one in December of 1954. The song lay mouldering for a quarter of a century until it was recorded by the Kentucky band NRBQ, who recorded it rockabilly style for their 1979 LP Kick Me Hard. And it's this version that has been covered by the ever-victorious, iron-willed, highest incarnation of the revolutionary comradeship of heterosexual rock and roll. (laughs) It's the follow-up to Shooting Gallery, which only got to number 47, in October of 1980 and is the third cut from his third LP Marie Marie which came out five months ago it entered the chart at number 64 three weeks ago then soared 35 places to number 29 he was immediately invited into the top of the pop studio which helped it soar another 22 places to number 7 This week it's jumped another five places and stands at number two in the chart. And here's a special filmed broadcast from Overway Cottage, a dilapidated coach house in Nowton Park near Bury St Edmunds, so Shaky can elaborate on his five-year plan to address the social housing crisis. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Powell fucked up there when he said it was from an album that was coming out because Epic have retitled Marie Marie to this old house in the wake of this becoming a hit. Right, right. Uh, you know what? I don't think I've ever... Have I ever talked about Shaky before on chart music? I'm not entirely sure I have, which is remarkable, really. That is. Yeah. Because for the rest of us, it's got to the point now where every time he comes on, it's like your brother-in-law's drop round without texting first. <laughs> like, oh, hello. It's like an easy familiarity, but without a great deal of affection. And yet, if you saw him in trouble in the street, you'd feel duty-bound to help out. Yeah. Not that Shaky would ever find himself in trouble in the street. No. No, No, but he was everywhere in my life in 81. I think this video was probably my biggest first memory of of Shaky. And and Mm. I think the start of my liking of him, he's got that insanely good-looking dad 
Dave Bartram look. He's even, <laughs> even better looking. And that jet black coiffure is all important. But in 81, he's mm. everywhere, you know? I mean, yes, he's he on is. Bez O'Connor. He's on Cannon and Ball, on Swap Shop. I mean, two of my most serpentine memories of him is that he's on Jim Will Fix It. Oh, yes. Yeah. Two appearances really stuck in my head. I mean, there may well be more of them, but the, the two ones that really stuck in my head, there was one where two kids just write in and they, and they want to dance with him, basically, and that's it. Mm. Jim, can you fix it? So they dance with him doing this old house, and, you know, the jingle nonster tells the little girl that she's very pretty and the little boy that he's a great mover. Um, it's a bit grisly, but there's a bizarre faint memory I have that perhaps a pop craze youngster can confirm or find, uh, uh, where a girl she wanted to stay in a posh boarding school for the night that was her wish right right? so she goes she does the kind of posh boarding school stuff they have a school disco to japanese boy actually (laughs) right then later on there's this really bizarre moment where, where all the girls are in the dorm you know waiting for lights out and um shaky just turns up to kind of check if they're all okay no, yeah, no, you dream that, Neil, surely. No, I, I swear down, I have not dreamt that. <laughs> Shaky just turns up, he turns up in the door, and he checks they're all okay. He doesn't tuck him in or anything, but um, they're all sort of very excited to see him. Shaky of the dorm, man. <laughs> it sounds like a stripping ginty or something. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's appearances like that that obviously by 81 have turned him into a household name, given him the commercial momentum to make this a big hit. Mm. After quite a long journey, obviously, you know, He's been doing rock and roll revivalism since the since the days of fucking Sha Na Na. Really, he was the only other guy yeah. doing it. He's Shane Naik, indeed. But in the late seventies, you know, he's actually he's kind of cool. John Lydon, at the end of an interview at the height of the Sex Pistols fame says right. he's off to see Shaking Stevens that night. Fuck. In that late 70s period, Danny Baker at the time wanted to call a kind of punk versus rockabilly summit to diffuse tensions, and he wanted Shaky <laughs> there, you know, <laughs> as the sort of boot trust, boot trust Stevens there. But I mean, <laughs> all the TV appearances obviously make him way more mainstream, and he's hitting right this year. You know, you've got the Stray Cats in the charts. Even mm. Alvin Stardust has a hit again this year. With with yes. pretend, you know, rockabilly revival in full swing, and he's the perfect idol, really, for the for the sort of under nines, you know. <laughs> so you know, yeah. I mean, if I was old enough in eighty one to feel spiritually behind new pop, his presence, his kind of retrograde presence, probably would have angered me. But um, mm. no, I, I loved him, and this song, as you, as you point out, I mean, you know, now sort of. At our age, everything we watch or hear sounds like death. You know, even a centre parts <laughs> advert. But I mean, this, this is a this is a kind of song about death, and it's quite macabre in a way. But as an eight year old kid, I just thought he had a bit of a knackered house, and he needs to fix it up. <laughs> this is the first opportunity we've had to actually look at a Shaking Stevens video, right? Which was the second one he ever made after Marie Marie. And you know, by 1981, chaps, the promo video seen as an opportunity for an artist to expand upon their. Career creative manifesto and harness the elements of multimedia to round out their artistic statement so what does shaky do here he sings it in front of an old owl yeah he starts with him leaping from the veranda over a camera mm. giving the audience a tantalizing denim upskirt shot mm. and then there's a bit of panther-like jiggling about in front of this dilapidator's house until he seizes the means of production and drives the acts of revolutionary socialism into the rotting stump of capitalism. Fwah! <laughs> <laughs> 
they really missed a trick though they should have stayed true to the spirit of this song and put a corpse inside the old house <laughs> yeah and his dog still stood there guarding the door mm. bloke dressed up as john wayne and then eating his face at the end of it yeah mm. the terrible thing about that story is the fact that the dog was still alive yeah suggests that the bloke only died recently mm. which in a way is more creepy than if he'd been there two years it's yeah. like you know when you're going down a b road in the country somewhere and you see an overturned car in the ditch and you just assume it's been left abandoned there for days mm. uh, when in fact for all you know it could have gone off the road 90 seconds ago just yeah. before you came around the corner and the wheels might only just have stopped spinning <laughs> but yeah they don't do it they don't do it there's nah. a corpse in an armchair and a starving dog behind the green door <laughs> <laughs> no instead his mates turn up don't they there's like a brotherhood of man foursome who've mm. just walked out of a case catalogue <laughs> and it cuts back to shaky giving him a lean and hungry look while mm. still clapping of course and you know to my mind the video starts to take on sinister video <laughs> nasty like connotations yes <laughs> this surly youth brandishing an axe and four people come walking along long all happy mm, couple mm. it yeah, never ends yeah. well does it <laughs> no and it looks like a video nasty as well yes it does because yeah. of the strange way it's lit yeah because it's not shot on video it's shot on 16 millimeter film which is less forgiving in gloomy conditions mm. so on some of these shots there's a an eerie glow mm. with a very dark shadows behind because it was obviously such a miserable day that by the time they were filming shaky posing upstairs in the old house yes by the window pane he says he's not gonna mend yeah uh, there wasn't enough light so they've had to turn a big arc light on him and it creates that slightly unearthly post-apocalyptic look <laughs> but it's cheap lighting so it gives it the feel of a very low budget horror film yeah Halloween. <laughs> um, blood on white shoes <laughs> Also aggravated by the fact that these days all the copies of Top of the Pops in circulation come from these supposed restorations yes. done by a private citizen, which look like they've just gone through one of those free Photoshop filters. Because mm. you can't restore or upscale Top of the Pops to HD because they were made on videotape, which yeah. is a standard definition medium. And even stuff shot on film like this has been telecined onto video. So there is no HD information. That is, It's not there at source. So <laughs> the confused computer just smooths everything out as best as it can and it just sharpens the edges and flattens the shadows and you end up with all the detail wiped out yeah. and it destroys the image that's there especially small areas of detail like people's faces to yes. the point of it being disturbing <laughs> so when shaky's catalog model friends come down the path to join his fun at the mm. old house mm. it looks like silent hill on the ps1 you look at a <laughs> yeah. screenshot of their faces or the concave caverns of lovecraftian horror where their faces were it's fucking horrible yeah. but it's also an interesting lesson in photogenia because these ordinary looking extras who were all sort of blandly pleasant looking mm. you put them through the faux upscaling process they come out looking like abattoir sweepings <laughs> whereas 
Shaky's own face has been subjected to the same process mm. of simplification and approximation. And when you wipe all the detail out of his face, he just ends up looking even more like his own Viz cartoon. <laughs> yes. He looks great. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. maybe in the same yeah. way that the secret of a memorable and distinctive animated character is that they should be instantly recognisable in silhouette, mm. maybe the secret of being a late 20th century pop icon is having the kind of face that becomes stronger and more distinctive the more degraded and messy the image becomes mm. with the passing of time over generations of cheap reproduction mm. and this is why 40 years on everyone's still talking about shaking steve <laughs> <laughs> not that you'd ever associate shaking stevens with the words cheap reproduction you understand <laughs> the thing is that sinister thing you identify in the video sort of tipped me the wink as a kid that yeah this song's perhaps not about just fixing up an old house but there was there was always something sinister about shaky and i mm. think that was part of his appeal and i don't mean sinister in a bad way who's he gonna spring upon next well there's that he's already taken down Maidler. <laughs> it could be you but you never got the feeling that you know it, it no matter what chaffy was on like if he was on chegger's plays pop or something you mm. didn't think oh yeah shaker's gonna go off and hobnob with chegger's now no no chegger's is gonna go and do whatever he's doing which probably you know is is completely innocent and full of bonhomie the pub shaking stevens who knew what home he was going back to mm. <laughs> he was kind of he had this sort of mystery to him and, and consequently yeah i mean this song it is a song about death and uh, of course as a kid you don't quite get that the black door of death doesn't loom large in your consciousness no. at that age because it just seems so far away mm. um the lyrics confuse me a little bit you know growing up in an old people's home the line about not having time to fix the shingles really medically confused me. Yeah. But, 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 but overwhelmingly, as a kid, this was just a simple, fun song to sing and dance to. And the jauntiness of the arrangement, of course, helps that. Yeah. But so did this video. I didn't quite pick up the sinister overtones at the time. Now, watching it, I can't believe I didn't because it is an unsettling watch. So after the axe bit, there's a series of cuts where he points at things that are in the song. So, mm. you know, thanks to Shaker, I found out what a shingle was yeah. long before I should have done. <laughs> and then he leaps from the top window to the ground, ready to stalk his prey, who we later see trapped in the attic, being forced to sing out the window, presumably in a vain cry for help. <laughs> <laughs> and then Shaky finds a baseball on the floor. And I did look at it yeah. on and it is a baseball it's too odd for it not to have just been there and they thought hey that's great let's use it it's American hey hey Shaky you like American stuff <laughs> who's got a baseball in Barry St Edmunds <laughs> you know a baseball bat possibly but not a ball mm. and then he picks the baseball up and he tosses it from hand to hand and then he turns around and just lobs it skyward yeah fucking hooligan Shaking Stevens has thrown a baseball over a house what have you done <laughs> someone's greenhouse paying the price for that mm. Mm. there's a happy end of sorts because the Brotherhood of Man types are let out into the front yard and they instantly transmogrify into 13 people including a child <laughs> which leads me as a viewer to believe that Shaking Stevens is actually the leader of a cult who have taken up squatters rights in the countryside which is mm. you know which is nice no one's died <laughs> yet but yeah going back to the song Neil because the original version by Stuart Hamlin it is your bog standard religious ramble mm, you know mm. all, doesn't matter if you're poor and you 
your living arrangements are killing you because, you know, Jesus has prepared a new build with all mod cons in heaven for you. Yeah, yeah. But like all good benevolent dictators, the man of denim, as we know him as, has painted all that bollocks out yeah, of the picture, yeah, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And that's partly because he delivers the songs in an extremely mushed mouth manner. Oh, yeah. Like he was eating a sausage cob. But yeah, he yeah. also alters the lyric in the chorus. You know, because Stuart Hamblin says, I'm a getting ready to meet the saints. Yeah, yeah. And Rosemary Clooney sang, he's a getting ready to meet the saints. But Comrade Shaker, he sings, she's a getting ready to meet the saints, which implies that it's a house yeah. that's going to die and ascend to the Barrett estate in the sky. Or he's taking his daughter to a meet and greet at Southampton Football Club. <laughs> Yeah, because like you, Neil, I just thought Shaker's going, oh, I'm shaking Stevens. This house is shit. Yeah. I'm going to buy a new one. That's it. A yeah. denim house. Yeah, it's had its day. It's had a good innings. Let's move on and get mm. on the property ladder is my kind of overwhelming message from the song. Yeah. Or a meet and greet at the tour of the This Perfect Day Hitmakers. <laughs> <laughs> like, is it hack to say this? Right, I don't know. But to me, it's perfect that whatever this song's actually about, it's perfect that the man who took these lyrics to number one mm. went on to be a landlord. Mm. Like he should absolutely have had this as the voicemail on whichever number he yes. gave to his tenant. <laughs> and just yeah. left his phone permanently switched off, so he's impossible to contact. Yeah. He just goes, hang on, time to fix this. Like sh-. all fucking landlords. <laughs> yeah, it would, just like a normal landlord, but more musical. Except that in this case... He ain't got time to fix the shingles or the floor or the boiler because he's getting ready to meet the saints rather than because he's getting ready to go to Alicante for three weeks again. (laughs) So why is Shaking Stevens so popular in 1981? 1981 of all years. Well, look, two things I think, right? He's massively good looking. Two, Mm. and and perhaps I'm overestimating this, but I also detect this in a later record, the power of the Grease soundtrack should never be underestimated. Mm. Things that sound 50s-ish but have a modern production are going to hit big. Yeah, because yeah, it's yeah. just lodged in people's consciousness so much. So, so yeah, I I I think that might have something to do with it. Mm. Plus, he's ubiquitous. He is fucking everywhere. He's he's on, yeah. he's he's appearing on everything. So it's difficult to avoid him. He's generation straddling, isn't he? Oh, yeah. I think the only people who sort of hated Shaking Stevens at this point were fierce optimist advocates of new pop who probably would have seen this as shamelessly retrograde and worthless mm. but for the rest of us yeah it's just a fun record with a very good looking man singing it he was ubiquitous he was the subject of one of ronnie corbett's best jokes of course oh ronnie corbett was talking about something that had scared mm. him and he said i haven't been so nervous since i stood next to shaking stevens in the gents <laughs> which if you don't get that joke what it's saying is, it, he's suggesting the image of Ronnie Corbett being showered with urine mm. as a an uncontrollably gyrating Welshman <laughs> pissing like a horse <laughs> insists on standing right next to him at the urinal, despite the fact that, like an unmanned garden hose, his penis is flapping around everywhere mm. because of the shaking mm. and is sousing the, the pint-sized discursive storyteller in gallon after gallon of 50s revivalist piss and Ronnie's just standing there with waves of piss dripping down the lenses of those iconic black frame mm. glasses like 
Like the windscreen of a Mercedes in a car wash, or the rainy windows of a Glaswegian tenement in his Scottish homeland, ringing out his Lyle and Scott V-neck into the sink. You know, <laughs> what? Imagine if it all went in his mouth and all. Oh, that. gross! I should say, by the way, I did go and check that joke before I quoted it to make sure I got the wording right. Because, like all writers or people who call themselves writers, I know there's nothing worse than someone quoting your work, especially the jokes, and getting it just slightly wrong mm-hmm. after you spent a very long time getting it precisely right. Such is the insatiable perfectionism of the creative genius. You know, Oscar Wilde was once supposedly asked, Oscar, what did you do this morning? And he said, I removed a semicolon from one of my poems and they said how did you spend the afternoon and he said putting it back in again Mm. this is what it's like we wouldn't know anything about this stuff of course but I guarantee you that whoever wrote that joke for Ronnie Corbett will have laid in bed tossing and turning, flipping that sentence backwards and forwards in their mind for hours, Mm -hmm. looking for the perfect structure, really earning their three-piece suite and cocktail Mm -hmm. cabinet. (laughs) And this is why comedy writers are paid such outrageous sums of money, Mm -hmm. because you get the rhythm of the sentence wrong and you lose the gag. Everything rests on linguistic precision. It's like a surgeon, your mirth in their hands. Mm -hmm. Just one slip and you've got a pancreas hitting the floor with a wet slap. It's terrible. Can you imagine the repercussions if Eddie Large had ever told a joke that wasn't funny? Yeah. That would have been that. Career over. You'd have to go back to living off Sid Little's dinner money. And it needs saying, by the way, this old house, right, I think this is best shaky. This is best shaky for me. Mm. It's his best one. <laughs> right. Not that I'm going to sit around listening to it. But um, in terms of getting those jitters in your legs when you're eight years old, this is the one. Oh, I think this was the single that just turned me squarely against shaking. Right, right. I removed myself from all that Ted shit. And here it was again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when it got to number one, oh, Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but your age difference, Al, that's the thing. You were sick of him by now. Complete age difference, because while I was watching Top of the Pops, if I was allowed to watch it in the living room, this would come on and my dad would be like, oh, fucking hell, yeah, finally. <laughs> finally something good and the, and the knees would start going and everything. Yeah, and yeah. it's like, oh, God. Yeah, I can imagine it's not sitting well with a young mod. Yeah, yeah. yeah no. Yeah, yeah. rock no. shit in it, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and in no escape either. You know, I mentioned earlier that episode of Summertime Special mm. that yes. I watched, and Shakey's on that, of right? course. Mm. And it's genuinely fascinating because, for a start, he's introduced by Rod Hull and Emu, but <laughs> alas, from a safe distance. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. we don't we don't get to see what would have become the featherweight title bout of early eighties light entertainment. <laughs> But also, because Shaky performs a live version of This Old House. Oh, yes, by the, I've heard right, that. The Summertime Special Band, yeah, who make the, the Top of the Pops Orchestra sound like Booker T and the MG. Yes. Um, <laughs> they do. And he's got the most unnaturally twinkly eyes I've ever seen, mm. and he doesn't mm. seem to be able to remember the words very well. Yes. Now, admittedly, This Old House does have three verses, but he's been singing it all year, 
every day mm. over and mm. over again and yet there's moments where he just seems to be doing what you do when you're walking around your flat singing a song out loud yeah and you can't quite remember how it goes so you just make some noises with your mouth <laughs> that are similar <laughs> phonetically like the greatest ever example of this being uh jimmy hendrix's version of all along the watchtower yeah which is a track i listen mm. to quite a lot because in east london there's always a low-flying police helicopter overhead <laughs> the only way to make that noise sound good is to put on all along the watchtower and pretend you're in the nam um <laughs> but he seemingly recorded that song without knowing the word west nam yeah, which which when you're doing a dylan cover is bordering on mischief but you can hear him he goes uh none will ever on the mine nobody of it is worth uh, it's just gibberish <laughs> but on that record by the first guitar break nobody cares right but when no. it's shaky mm. smouldering into the camera and he's going oh, i mean i'm all for i had lives right but i think with this song you're on a bound to stick to the text mm. lest you mm. spoil that mood of of john wayne in a bothy <laughs> staring at a corpse in yeah. an armchair and a starving dog because that's what the kids want right yeah john wayne big leggy himself indeed got off his horse drank his milk <laughs> looked deep into his horse's eyes well no he could only see one of them actually because he was standing around the side <laughs> so he gazed into the deep black intelligence of that one eye like a snooker ball embedded in a veiny blanket <laughs> and he turned to Stuart hamblin and he said stew not only do I believe in white supremacy and the ostracization of gay men, but you know elephants, <laughs> cute little baby elephants. I say fuck them. <laughs> fuck them up the trunk and drink your milk. And then spring arrived and they both went home. It was one of the defining moments. <laughs> you might almost say iconic moments mm. in rock and roll history. And without that history... This song is almost meaningless. Yeah. yeah. I mean, look, but the thing is with Shaky, what, what's crucial to me with Shaky in this period is he has the appeal of, a, of almost a cartoon because he's impervious to analysis as a child. Mm. You don't look at Shaky and think, oh, I know the person behind that. Yeah. Or I know the background behind that. He's just fully formed utterly impervious to analysis never really revealing anything about himself in anything that i was exposed to mm. so he couldn't be demystified look i'm not saying he's a bewitching kind of <laughs> it's shaking stevens we're talking about but there was no sort of um background to him do you know what i mean i mean not that i knew about as an eight-year-old mm. you just got the idea that yeah he was on all these tv shows but that didn't demystify him because you just got the feeling that afterwards he went on being shaking stevens he just walked around being shaking stevens yes. in his life and and you yeah. know that's really important as jumping as a kid. off things exactly yeah. that's really important as a kid just climbing up things and then jumping off them <laughs> it would take him half an hour to get to the shops because <laughs> He'd have to jump on things and climb up. Yeah, a pioneer of parkour. But no, you're onto something, Neil, because you know, out of all the mock and roll acts of the seventies and early eighties, Shake is the only one who plays it without the slightest trace of an element of humour. Hmm. You know, hmm. Show Waddy Waddy never took themselves seriously. Neither did Darts or Rocky Shop and the Replays, or you know, even Coast to Coast, yeah. who are currently at number five, but sadly not in this episode. But 
no, shaky. He's he's not joking, is it? No, he takes his bubble with him. You know, everywhere he goes, and, mm. and it never gets punctured. And that that's really the appealing. mask never slips. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. grown more serious with age as well. Have you heard his new song? No, oh, I haven't. Yeah. I've heard it's is it is it Ace? No, it's called <laughs> All oh. Need Is Greed. It's a mm. it's, it's a condemnation of uh, of today's money focused culture you know mm. maybe nowadays the shaking is largely involuntary but <laughs> the social conscience is still glowing white hot you know mm. it sounds mm. like a brian adams 12 inch extra track right it's nice that he gives a fuck i suppose and what a thrill mm. to be lectured on greed by a buy to let landlord yes invigorating <laughs> yeah, but it shows how he's not been forgotten because there was a lot of excitement about that, yes. wasn't that? You know, about him coming back. Yeah. I've detected more excitement about the new Shaking Stevens single than, like, I don't know, Susie and the Banshees going on the road. Mm. It, it's, you know, people are, oh, wow, yeah. he's yeah. back. Wet leg, wet who? <laughs> it's only one leg I'm interested in, and it's going... And, yes, Neil, it is only March, but, you know, there is going to be a whole lot of shaking going on in 1980 especially during what the kids are going to be calling the summer of shaker because he's going to be the focal point of let's rock which is jack good's latest attempt to do old boy again an 18 part series made by atv in birmingham for american television it's already been out in america and god knows how they reacted to it but it'll launch on itv in july on saturday nights featuring shaker alvin stardust joe brown lulu Den Hegater and all the original Ted singers that are mm. still alive. Have you seen that? I have. And and you know what you were Fuck saying about me. you know what you were saying about not smirking? That's mm. the thing. That's what Mark Shakey is different because a lot of people on that show, especially Joe Brown, yeah. um, smirks their way. Oh, it's fucking awful, that programme, man. Mm. It's a headache, that show. It never stops. It starts yeah. and it's just a racket for about 20 yes. minutes. And yeah, it's horrible. Starts off with a racket and then here comes some more racket <laughs> with some other old bloke. Yeah, yeah. But Shakey, man, he puts himself about. There's one scene where um, I can't remember what the song was because he didn't do his own songs on no, that no, no. but there's one scene where he's doing his pieces and he's in front of this enormous jukebox that's got a record player on the top mm. and you see shaky going up this absolutely fucking massive ladder you know the the, mm. the mm. type of ladder you that they use in a studio to change the lights goes up to the top of there holding this massive cardboard record yeah you just look at it and you just go health and safety anyone yeah yeah but he doesn't give a fuck man no he doesn't it's about rock and roll does he not jump off in slow motion Uh, sadly not (laughs) but the standout moment of that series because there is a compilation of it on YouTube Mm. and in the video playlist they have the rocking shades being joined by the cast and audience for a rousing version of the 1958 Jesse James song South's Gonna Rise Again (laughs) complete with fucking confederate flags aplenty including one massive one that comes down and obscures about half the audience and the audience are brandishing pro rockabilly banners in the same font as the ones that the kids used to hold up in Tiswas. Oh if Chris Tarrant organised a Ku Klux Klan rally, this is what it looked like. <laughs> Maybe it means South Wales, mm. yeah. That clearly must have been a massive influence on Bobby Gillespie and Primal's Green. Oh, yeah, definitely, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anything else to say, chaps? Yeah. 
I'm afraid. Of course there is. It's shaking. Neil, you know, you said you didn't really know anything about shaking Stevens. No, no, I don't. Can I? I, I'll fill in some of that background because I've recently been privileged to read this book, the intriguingly titled "Shaking Stevens," um, which is a paperback biography published by Star Books, ever the mark of quality, Mm. in 1983, written by Paul Barrett, Shakey's former manager. Paul Barrett, shaking golden. (laughs) (laughs) With whom Shakey parted ways roughly around the exact moment he hit the big time. (laughs) And it turns out... Isn't he his brother as well? It's not. It's the name spelt differently. Uh, It turns out he's exactly the right man to have written this book because not only does he have access to all those early hard scrabble stories and insider tales from the sunsets tour van mm. he was clearly a pivotal figure in shaking stephen's life yeah. because we can see that while shaky was being managed by paul he was a bit of a rough diamond right. but essentially a nice simple lad from south wales who liked rock and roll liked to drink like the ladies wasn't above causing a bit of mischief from time to time mm. and then as soon as he split from paul he immediately turned into the world's biggest cunt now that (laughs) might just be a coincidence but surely it's far more likely that paul's steadying hand is what made the difference and shaky was led astray by his subsequent much more high-powered and far more successful manager who Mm. if this book is to be believed is also a complete bitch um (laughs) very sad what happened to him i now understand um now you can gauge how carefully proofread this book was by the fact that in the course of its 150 pages, Paul mm. misspells the names of Jimi Hendrix, the Savile <laughs> Theatre, Hanoi, Pedal Steel Guitar, Adrian Henry, That's All Right Mama by Arthur Big Boy Crudup, Arthur Big Boy Crudup, the town of Bastard in Sweden, willfully <laughs> I think that one, uh, Hound Dog, Espresso. No, hound dog. He didn't put one, W in, did he? No, he spelled it as one word H O U N D O G. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> Clark Kent, Muff Winwood, and, and so on and so on. I mean, there are some revelations in here, right? Like the fact mm-hmm. that Shaky is actually a natural blonde. No. Oh, no, that did you? Yes, it's true. Or that his status as comrade shaky is really reflected commitment from paul barrett and some of the sunsets who were proper commies and organized all those cpgb benefits but what's most interesting in the little details like how he wouldn't let his wife come to the pub with him quote as her more equality-minded contemporaries might have insisted upon. Mm. But sometimes he would take her out on a drive around local social clubs and leave her literally locked in the car. No! What, with a bag of crisps and a bottle of coke with a straw in it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, There's the travel mastermind, see you in a bit. (laughs) Yes, yes, him and Paul Barrett went in to organise gigs with the managers of the social clubs, and that's the only time she was allowed out of the house. Jesus. Um, You ain't going to leave this house no longer (laughs) (laughs) there's also that story that we've already covered on this podcast where they play kenneth tynan's daughter's birthday party and shaky cups off with a certain flame-haired irish authoress and guest on the first ever episode of question time (laughs) now fuck i wouldn't necessarily have this author down as a rock expert Mm. no here's a passage from page 51 it was early november 
brackets 1969 when john lennon appeared at a peace festival in toronto wearing a white drape suit and playing a couple of rock and roll numbers it reached the ears of the rock fans in england as something of a joke john lennon had never before expressed a love for their music (laughs) right okay and i'm not 100 sure about his assessment that if the soul of Elvis flew anywhere after his death, it surely would have flown into the young Shaking Stevens. <laughs> or even that Shaking Stevens is. He exists as a phenomenon. However he got there is a matter for the academics to debate. He doesn't particularly care. Mm, that's where we come in. Exactly. Yeah, you're too <laughs> kind, Paul. But I love most the actual transitional moment on page 119 when shaky has found success playing elvis in the west end mm. show which was his big break and suddenly paul who's been narrating this story very sympathetically the mm. whole time always taking shaky's side suddenly becomes a third party being quoted by name in his own book right. <laughs> and it's a neat postmodernist touch yeah. but it's a little bit jarring um it says to Paul, that last gig with Shaky had been a huge relief. Quote, I waved goodbye to years of acting as nursemaid, nanny, pimp, and official nose wiper that night, he says. God. And after that, all bets are off, right? We're told about Shaky becoming a horrible, spoilt man-baby mm. monster. We hear about Shaky having a piss against Marty Wilde's house. No! Yeah, while the young Kim Wilde is inside. No! Oh, yeah. Shaky being a complete prick about owing people money. No. Shaky moving into his new house and immediately soaring down all the ancient firs and elders in the garden. Oh. Because because he didn't like trees. Um, <laughs> and he killed some uh, puppies whilst doing that, presumably. Seriously. <laughs> and best of all, the night that the boy playing young Elvis in the show... Oh, yeah, who was the host of Let's Rock, let's remember. Oh, yeah, under the unlikely stage name GBH. Yes. Or, yeah, one night he dropped out with illness and his understudy appeared instead. Right. And despite the nerves or whatever, the young lad did really well, Mm -hmm. was congratulated by everyone, and then received a summons to the star's dressing room, where Shaky, very drunk, started screaming at him, don't you ever do that again. You were imitating me out there. (laughs) To which the lad pointed out that, in fact, he was imitating Elvis, uh, and Shaky shouted at him, don't deny it, you were moving your legs like me that's what i do <laughs> before being physically held back as the child is bundled out of the dressing no, room um, no. and then until finally the last chapter of this book is just flat out bitching like the water temperature <laughs> has been slowly turned up and now suddenly we're being boiled alive and the last few pages are like paul barrett's brain exploding um <laughs> I'll read you the the last paragraph of this book. Right. Shaky is constantly being quoted as having had a hard time of it on the way up the ladder to success. It wasn't all that hard, actually. Any sleeping in the van was done either on the way home or if it broke down, although Paul Barrett was affiliated to the efficient RAC for many years. Hotel rooms (laughs) in Europe were of excellent standard, 
Paul insisted on it yeah. as part of any European deal. For a young boy who had left school at 15, semi-literate and without formal qualifications of any kind, <laughs> life as the lead singer in a rock and roll band offered far more glamour and interest and wages than working as an upholsterer ever could. And yet, now that he's got his mansion in the country and his big cars, he feels angry at the world for making him wait so long for something he feels he deserved a long time ago. <laughs> Hence the aggressive attitude to journalists. Mm. Uh. But there's a well-known saying in the entertainment business which goes something like, you should be nice to the people you meet on the way up because you're going to need them on the way down. Mm. If Shaky doesn't continue to defy gravity in his career and one day falls from popularity he'll find it so much harder than most to quote paul barrett who has been watching shake his career with the caring concerned interest of a colleague who has been a friend he's got what he always wanted but he's almost certainly lost what he had. No. And what he had, we now understand, was Paul Barrett. Oh, yes. Oh. And that's a hell of a thing to lose. <laughs> <laughs> so the following week, Comrade Shaker, after choosing his enemy, this week's number one, prepared his plans minutely and slaked an implacable vengeance upon them <laughs> before going to bed satisfied upon the summit of Mount pop for three weeks in a row eventually being usurped by a single we're going to hear later on it would finish the year as the fifth biggest selling single in 1981 one place below prince charming and one above vienna the follow-up, You Drive Me Crazy, spent four weeks at number two, held off the top spot by Stand and Deliver, but he went back to the rocking up an old tune bag for the follow-up to that and took Green Door to number one for four weeks in August. An overweight cottage still stands today after it was bought by a local architect and converted and refurbished, offering 2,150 square feet of well-proportioned living accommodation an L-shaped reception room, a double-aspect sitting room with an open fireplace, four double bedrooms and a double cart lodge, which went on the market in 2019 at nearly 700 grand. Ooh. I did some of the notes for this one in a cafe on Bethnal Green Road, and right. it says here in my notes, and I quote, Two beautiful women in their early 20s at next table laughing, sat here on my own, trying to think of something new to say about Shaking Stevens. <laughs> Perhaps I should introduce myself. That might go well. Mm. Ask them if they can think of something new to say about Shaking Stevens. Help what has happened. Sweet bird you are, quicker than a falling star. But it's a tough world. Mm. Nobody ever said it wasn't going to be a tough mm. world. And did you? No, of course not. the British TV scene, but he's together with Dave Stewart, who created his version of the Jimmy Ruffin classic. It's at 30, and what becomes of our broken hearted? Without 
cuts him back to power, we're immediately whipped into the future as we witness a pair of hands operating a bank of synthesizers. Powell tells us that it's been a long time since the next act blessed the British TV scene, making it sound like Danny LaRue's return from Vegas. But no, <laughs> it's what becomes of our broken-hearted tut-tut-tut by Dave Stewart with Colin Blundstone. Born in Hatfield in 1945, Colin Blundstone was the son of an aeronautical engineer and a professional dancer who teamed up with Paul Atkinson, Hugh Grundet and Rod Argent to form the Zombies in 1961, while they were all at the St Albans County Grammar School for Boys. In 1964, after winning a beat combo battle of the bands competition sponsored by the London Evening News, they signed a deal with Decca, and their debut single, She's Not There, immediately smashed into the chart, spending two weeks at number 12 in September of that year. That would be their only top 40 hit in the UK, however, as they spent much of 1965 in America. And in 1967, they signed to CBS to record the LP Odyssey and Oracle, the lead-off cut of which, Time of the Season, got to number three over there in March of 1969, despite the fact that the band had split up in December of 1967, leading to not only one, but two bands to tour around America, pretending to be them, one of which featured Frank Baird and Dusty Hill before they formed ZZ Top. Blundstone had quit the music business after the zombies split and had worked as an insurance clerk for a while, but the success of Time of the Season encouraged him to return as a solo artist, recording a new version of She's Not There under the name Neil MacArthur, which got to number 34 over here in the last week of 1969. In 1971, he signed to Epic and put out his debut solo LP, One Year, and the lead-off single, Say You Don't Mind, got to number 15 in March of 1972. The follow-up, I Don't Believe in Miracles, got to number 31, but when his next single and the next two LPs flopped, he moved to Rocket Records, putting out three more LPs that were only released in Europe. This year, however, he's teamed up with Dave Stewart, the former keyboard player of Egg, Hatfield and the North and Bruford, but not the Eurythmics, for a cover of the Jimmy Ruffin single, which got to number 8 in January of 1967 and number 4 in August of 1974. It entered the chart last week at number 57, and this week it's... 27 places to number 30 and here they are in the studio first question chaps would you have known anything about the zombies at the time um at the time no not in 81 no no i'm a bit older than you so i would have heard Mm. she's not there but more likely the santana version in 1977 or the uk subs one in 1979 is this before or after that advert that went let me tell you that is goose's cook oh memorable wasn't it yeah that was the first time i heard (laughs) she's not there i remember hearing this advert thinking this is a great tune Mm. and like my mum or dad going it's an old song yeah What was that for? Mm, I remember that about as well as you remember the advert. (laughs) Oh, well. Some office shit. (laughs) Well, it's weird, isn't it? Because we've just had Shaky doing an old song, Mm. and I'd have been delighted about that. 
and I'd have been so angry about this right. as an eight-year-old. Mm. You know what? It actually makes me angry now. Really? <laughs> I mean, More to angry. To it music pop. Well, in a way, there's too many oddities here in a sort of pop cultural history sense in my head to deal with. What we have here, we have essentially a, a sort of prog rocker, in a way, from Hatfield in the North, backing a 60s site pop singer, playing a vintage Motown song electronically while wearing a pill t-shirt. Mm. I mean, I think the key word here is bank raid, basically. <laughs> this, will, this will be a hit among oldies, and perhaps for a few youngies who like their synth. It's tainted love for dads, isn't it, this? Yeah, 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 yeah. But, uh, you know, whereas tainted love, the thing is, you know, the differences in the soft cell version of tainted love to the original are delightful. The differences with the original here are, are really key. Mm. Blundstone, I mean, he has got one of the clearest, most liquid voices in British pop. Mm. Um, it's a great voice he's got. Yes, he has. So that means in this version, you know, there's no oomph or grit here, mm. like the Jimmy Ruffin version. Yeah, and he's not clapping with massive gold bangles on and eyeliner. <laughs> he's, not, he's not. But that suits Stuart's arrangement, mm. which occasionally breaks off into these sort of odd passages of nothingness. That The song happens, but in between, there's like these demo of the presets on his keyboard, basically, mm. you know, a journey around his ace keyboard so this would have angered me this would have angered me as much as the sort of spike conk punk in the front row um of yes. the audience who clearly didn't have to stand there no but just decides to go stand there and look totally disgusted with the whole thing <laughs> it is dad synth it's one of those songs i mean dad synth is a genre to conjure mm. with isn't it it is it is God, but what I else is going to be in that <laughs> Well, it's things like Jean-Michel Jarre and things, you know. It's My Party by of Dave course. Stewart and yeah. Barbara yeah, of course, of course. I think the kids would have known of the original. I did at the time. I mean, we've mentioned on Charmies before that this is one of the greatest songs ever when it was done by Jimmy Ruffin. Mm. I knew of it by the time this came out, and I didn't approve. Look, Bunstow's got a lovely voice. Mm. It's a well-appointed, well-told voice, but it's not the right song for him, I don't think. You want mm. a bit of grit with this song. It's about having a broken heart. So, yeah. you know, um, that that's lacking. And what Stuart fills things out with, it's all a bit proggy. It's a bit pre-Howard Jonesy. It's a, it's it's not pleasant. Mm. I'm honestly not sure who's the worst Dave Stewart. Mm. <laughs> this one, the one from the Eurythmics, or the one who fucked my cousin's hamster to death. <laughs> Easily done. Yeah, well, I certainly trust you on that. <laughs> this sideline of taking old songs and doing them in a self-consciously modern style, mm. You know, like a more basic BEF. Yeah. I don't like it. I, do, I mm. didn't like it then, and I don't like the modern equivalent, which is ukulele Trustafarian time, mm. you know, mm. or some indie band doing, hey, listen, this is a pop hit, but we're playing it as though it were real music, yeah. i.e. worse. And it's tired to complain about that stuff, but the point is we're still getting that kind of stuff, mm. even now mm. when complaining about it has become old hat yeah never mind the stuff itself so at this point it's a bit like being an evolutionary biologist and meeting a fundamentalist christian who says ah you believe that one day a fish just turned into a monkey mm. it's like you spent 35 years developing your understanding of the most arcane intricacies of your speciality and then suddenly you realize the power is with people who aren't just totally ignorant they're frighteningly ignorant mm. and they're looking down their nose at you and 
and they're in charge. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. we're sitting at home splitting the pop cultural atom in between counting out two pence pieces and <laughs> scrubbing mould off the shower. And these cunts are basically banging two rocks together and grunting. <laughs> and they've just taken delivery of a new Ferrari Monza. Mm. You know, cunts. Well, I say good luck to him. <laughs> Colin, he, he looks very Mr. Lucas in his shiny powder blue suit at first, as, <laughs> as he's obscured by the spiky hair of that punk youth. But, but that's the best bit, because, yes. yeah, it's, it's, it's the camera trying to swing around the conker shell hair of a 1981 punk mm. because his spikes are obscuring Colin Blunston's face mm. or rather the underside of Colin Blunston's <laughs> face because it's the usual top of the pops camera angle so it looks like you're giving him a fucking blowjob <laughs> but it's possibly the most authentic image mm. of bog standard 1981 mm. right as opposed yeah. to the curated modern memory version yeah. it's a, a 60s relic in a sports jacket grinding out a last few grand semi-obscured by an 18 year old who's four years out of date yeah there was there was a lot of this yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. what would that lad think of dave stewart wearing a pill t-shirt eh? mm. <laughs> I, maybe i you know what maybe you know when they were coming on stage before the floor you know when the floor manager got him on stage the punk saw that t-shirt and thought Ooh. And went and had a look, but yeah, yeah, he get looks, up the front. Exactly, he looks bitterly disappointed. Mm. I mean, they're both being retrograde, obviously, because like Taylor says, this guy's four years out of date. This spiky conk punk, he he mm. literally looks like yeah, one of those ones who was posing for Japanese tourists for a quid a pop in nineteen seventy eight. You know, <laughs> when it was all over. But yeah, um, yeah it, it, it's it's grimness. It's and, and you know, it's weird because you know, I was I was having lots of fun listening to Shaky literally thirty seconds ago, no, and then here's no. another old song. And I'm hating every minute of it as an eight-year-old, most certainly. Is that because you could associate yourself more with old houses than you could with broken hearts? It's simple at that age, isn't it? It's just, mm. um, it's just this has got to be, this hasn't, fuck this. Yeah. You know. But when the camera pulls back and we see Mr. Lucas in his full pomp, it, hang on a minute. He's actually come dressed as Shaking Stevens, hasn't he? He's got the collars <laughs> turned up and he's even got white fucking shoes on. God, just yeah. as well it was only a Shaking Stevens video this week or uh, Colin Blunstone would be summoned up to a dressing room at the end of the show for a, <laughs> for a dressing down. It's a neat preview of, of just how dull synthesizers can be as well. I mean, yes. you know, there was an awful lot of synth excitement in this period. <laughs> but this was a reminder that, yeah, in the wrong hands, they could just be turned into an even more syrupy version of normal music if you like mm. yeah and i mean th this is such a good tune you can't completely kill it no, no. but there's nothing gained by removing any trace of a groove and mm. replacing mm. it with that on the beat school assembly piano and this sort of not the nine o'clock news idea of what synth pop was yeah, you yeah. Know. it's not age well because it's neither an honest human statement nor a, a, a shiny electronic thrill. Mm. Mm. It just, like you say, it sounds like a demo of some new equipment yeah. that he's knocked up on a wet Wednesday. You know, it's not thought through. It's not really an attempt to create anything. It's completely unserious, but also completely humorless. Yeah. So yeah. who cares? Like the only conceivable human reaction is so what. Mm. Yeah, so what? I mean, it, he he plays the melody, 
like one-handed um, in the instrumental break. And just how much better would it have been if, I don't know, it had done it with a dog bark sample or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Total gimmickry. Whereas, whereas he's demonstrating the kind of classiness of these, the, the, this kind of instrumentation. Yeah. And, that, and that's what's boring about it. And that's what's, you know, it's not uh, Top of the Pops, is it? This, this is Afternoon Plus at best. Oh, uh, yes. And the terrible thing is, they pumped out pipefuls of this shit. Mm. Oh, yeah. Dave Stewart and Barbara Gaskin yeah. in their folly adieu. Like, all through the 80s and 90s, even into this century. Really? They kept on getting stuck into these old songs, like Fred and Rose. They put out <laughs> thousands of, of pointless CDs full of stupid electronic cover versions released as albums just because they could mm. they kept putting out singles too there's a version of the locomotion yes. from 1986 yeah a oh. year before kylie minogue's somehow more successful version mm. and it sounds exactly as you would imagine a dave stewart and barbara gaskin cover mm. of the locomotion oh. released in 1986 to sound like presumably he owned the studio because there's no way they made a living from that mm. <laughs> you know that and working with victor lewis smith which yeah. is the other thing he did at least it's a, an arresting contrast mm. and he did the music for most of victor lewis smith shows so he, he did sing if you're glad to be gay in the doctor who theme which was a work of genius i would imagine that would be his handiwork yeah mm. yeah uh, but it can't <laughs> have been a living wage right and yet I don't recall picking up a newspaper and seeing the headline on page 19, Dave Stewart starves to death, no. and in smaller print <laughs> underneath, no, not that Dave Stewart, the other one. <laughs> Passerby alerted authorities after seeing 105 bottles of milk on his doorstep and <laughs> flies pouring out of the kitchen window because nobody cared. Mm. So, you know, he must have done better than me, at least. It's strangely dead emotionally, this song as well, for, for, for doing this song. It feels, um, the, the word is joyless, I think. Joyless in the making yeah. of it. Joyless in the performance of it. And you know, what, what personal satisfaction would you get from being part of this record? None whatsoever. You've taken a great song. And yeah, you've done very, very little with it. Bar tart up the equipment a little bit. But you know, there is a lot of this. I mean, we've got, we've got another record in the charts from them, haven't we? And mm. I mean, I'm intrigued as well by, apart from Dave and Colin, who else is on stage there? Well, is that Barbara Gaskin off to the side yeah. wearing the sort of jumpsuit Prince was fond of during Around the World in a Day? It could be. Mm. Hair, the hair threw me off. The hair threw me off because yes. it's not like she's in the video for the other song, but um, yeah. yeah, it may well be. And you can definitely see this being on the portable telly in the dressing room of the q-tips and their lead singer look at it and thinking mm, old motown here's yeah. given an 80 sheen mm, yeah, yeah. Yeah. wonder what pino paladino's up to <laughs> time to nip off to burton's to get that flecked gray suit i've been looking at <laughs> anything else to say about this no and, and the fact that i've got nothing else to say about it angers me in itself <laughs> so the following week what becomes of the broken-hearted soared 11 places to number 19 and a fortnight later began a two-week stand at number 13. Blundstone's follow-up, a synthy cover of Tracks of My Tears, would only get to number 16 June of 1982, by which time he'd joined the Alan Parsons Project, and in 1984 he teamed up with David Payton and other APP members to form the rock band Keats. He's still active today, working with Rod Argent and making occasional appearances in Manfred Mann. 
Meanwhile, Stuart repeated the trick when he teamed up with Barbara Gaskin and put out a cover of It's My Party, which got to number one for four weeks in October oh, of this year. Four weeks. I wouldn't mind it if they weren't picking such great songs to cover, mm. but just they're sucking any resonance that they once had out of them. Welcome to the 80s, Neil. Indeed. <laughs> Singers Colin Blundstone to go with Dave Stewart and what becomes of the broken hearted. Excellent. Well, you better, you bet, it's a number nine. And here on Tour the Pops, the Who. Surrounded by four ladies with voluminous amounts of hair and one lad with his jumper tucked into his jeans tells us that Colin Blunstone is one of Britain's best singers before fucking up the intro to the next single, which is You Better You Bet by The Who. I think Powell was going for something like You Better You Bet we got the number nine single next. It's... Mm. Yeah. But he didn't. No, he pulled out of it. Uh. Formed in London in 1964 from the ashes of the detours, the who are the fucking who. <laughs> the last time the pop craze youngsters chanced upon the band as part of their Thursday evening pop treat was in August of 1978, when the video of Who Are You was aired, and since then, much has happened. A month after that, Keith Moon was found dead in his flat, leading Pete Townsend to almost immediately rush out a statement that the band would continue, and they eventually got in Kenny Jones, formerly of the Small Faces, and the Faces. They spent 1979 continuing to draw a line under their career up till then, working on the retrospective film The Kids Are Alright and the corresponding soundtrack slash compilation LP, working on the film Quadrophenia and returning to the stage at the Rainbow before playing a tour of France, Scotland, a gig at Wembley Stadium and one at the Zeppelin Felt at Nuremberg. After a five-night stint at Madison Square Garden, they returned to the UK for four dates in Brighton and Stafford before embarking on a full-scale tour of America. However, three dates in, 11 people were killed in a pre-gig stampede without the band's knowledge. But they decided to carry on the tour and finish 1979 with a gig at Hammersmith Odeon. The band went on hiatus for the first half of 1980, with Daltrey working on the film at Vicar and Townsend finishing off his second solo LP, Empty Glass, but reconvened in July to commence work on their ninth studio LP, Face Dancers, which came out last Monday. And this is the lead-off cut from it. It's the follow-up, of sorts, to Long Live Rock, the 1972 track which had been available on Odds and Sods since 1974, but was put out in 1979 to accompany the release of The Kids Are Alright, and it got to number 48 in May of that year. 
This single was released three weeks ago and it immediately entered the charts at number 35, leading to an invite on top of the pops, which helped it soar 19 places to number 16. And this week it's jumped seven places to number nine. So here's a repeat of their appearance from a fortnight ago. They're first in the top of the pop studio since they did 515 in October of 1973 chaps that Wembley gig I mentioned earlier it sounds extremely heavy manners 80,000 people jammed into Wembley in the middle of August and someone thought it was a good idea to sell gallon jugs of scrumpy at £4 each which (laughs) rendered punters legless and puking the ring after half a pint and resulting in brawls between old rockers and younger mods who had seen Quadrophenia the night before and were well dischuffed that the support act was ACDC and not the Lambrettas, right. followed by the discovery that there were no tubes running afterwards. Great times. <laughs> <laughs> the same happened when they played Charlton Football Ground in 1974. Yes. It pissed down with rain and basically like you thought there'd been some fights there when there was a football match on. You should have seen mm. the Who concert by all accounts but yeah being the mod lion that I was at the time you know I always had at least one who badge as part of my clanking in mm. even though I actually didn't own any of their records I mean, I mean I bought Rough Boys by Pete Townsend the previous year so you can imagine my anticipation of seeing the who <laughs> on top of the pops can't you <laughs> Because this was the thing, it was, right, they're mods, they're a mod band, why are they acting like grebs? I remember seeing in Smash Hits the lyrics for Long Live Rock in 1979 and thinking, hang on a minute, what's this bollocks? Yeah. It is weird because there's a nationwide piece about The Who playing The Rainbow in 1979, and you can see loads of using Parkers queuing up outside The Rainbow, including one twat who's written Tamla Maltown with a W (laughs) on the back of his Parker. (laughs) Not for nothing do they call Detroit the Flymo City. (laughs) (laughs) You're supposed to be mods, and here you are not being mods. What's going on here? Yeah. So, yeah, a very confused young lad I was. Now, this period of The Who is... It's a bit unsettling, it has to be said. Mm. Um, they've gone all in on uh, a specifically Avens's, specifically early middle-aged male aesthetic, which burnt out very fast, but it's very distinctive when you see it. Mm. Nicholas Ball as Hazel, Paul McCartney's Rockestra, I Won't Let You Down by PhD, uh, the video Ooh. to Street Cafe by John Lodge. Right. Jeans, white trainers, bomber jackets, all scruffy but expensive. It's mm. the first attempt by white British rock and rollers to age without complete surrender. But mm. there wasn't yet a template of what to do and what not to do. They were just winging it. So yeah. you mm. end up, you got a little dash of the new fashions here and there, like Pete Townsend's eye makeup and, mm. you know. But Townsend is in yet another midlife crisis here, drinking too much, doing coke, getting chucked out of nightclubs, in between worshipping his Eastern guru and lecturing everyone about yeah. the healing and unifying mm. powers of rock. Oh, and having an affair with a woman young enough to be his daughter while still trying to hang on to his family and trying not to be in the who while forcing himself to stay in the who and Mm. what makes this simultaneously more interesting and more annoying is that all of this went into the music 
and that's precisely what this song is about lyrically and spiritually it's about that affair he was having and Mm. all that self-doubt and self-loathing funneled as usual through an uncomprehending roger daltrey with (laughs) televangelist hair thinking that a brand new scarf tied around the neck with a big rupert bear knot under 100 degree studio light he looks like the most violent rupert the bear there's ever been (laughs) yeah you want to come and join in all of my fucking games you slag i'm the fucking hardest man in nutwood <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit of country squire, little mm. bit of tennis pro, mm. bit of urban professional. But hey, this rebel ain't wearing no tie. Mm. Yes. Um, yeah, but this depressing stuff is also what I kind of like about this silly and objectively not good record. Mm. Right? I'm quite intrigued by the purity of expression of that very specific mood and style and mental state because it's unusual in rock music this is about people reaching an age where their rock and roll preoccupations and addictions now seem incongruous and anachronistic but they can't shake them Mm. and they haven't yet developed a new vocabulary or style to carry those things with them into middle age so The album that this single is from, Face Dances, is the worst Who album by some distance because it's all like this. Yeah, Late 30-something, self-loathing, very self-conscious, loads of goofy lyrics about nothing and Mm. all these bitty songs like this one where Pete, and this happened all the times he got older, where Pete just doesn't have faith in any of his riffs or melodies to carry the whole song so he makes the songs in the sequences of bits yeah jammed together Mm. like a mini suite like simon reynolds once said he's like a a weird hybrid of pub rock and prog rock um and they never flow you're trying to follow the song that's Mm. pop rock (laughs) (laughs) which sounds fascinating you know they they spit at the camera and then write the lyrics out (laughs) But so none of these songs flow. You're trying to follow the song, but it just keeps changing direction like a runaway pig, you know. Yeah. And mm. even speaking to someone who can enjoy crap music when it's interesting in other ways, I can't listen to that album, and mm. neither should you. But yeah. I can take this song because it crushes all that stuff into one stupid pop single, which is all you need of it. And yeah. in its brevity and its weird bubbliciousness it makes that torpor halfway entertaining mm. and it gives full-throated rock voice to that unfortunate age of man the neurotic heading for 40 when 40 was old yes like pathetically obsessed with one's own fading vitality but still young enough that sometimes you can get off the rowing machine and still be able to sing but my body feels so good and mean it <laughs> right there was a lot of that about boomer sunset the fucking lyrics man <laughs> yeah the- well let's return yeah. to the review in this week's enemy of face dancers because it's being absolutely slagged right across the board but <laughs> Here Gavin Martin says, In the mental asylum that is rock and roll, the who have a room with no view, drained by the darkness of experience, bent arthritically by the weight of their own myth. Townsend is a battered elder statesman offering a set of mouldy memories, vague, 
pig-headed, unproductive and dogmatic. The who stand in only one dimension, which is that of their own selfish and worthless world. Townsend's problems and struggles have no real depth because they are cocooned in his own mythology. He's pulling the worst con of the lot, that of a suffering, sensitive artist. Apart from failing to cut it in the immediate areas, social, moral and aesthetic, this album is a hell of a shambles musically. Given the dawdling senility of Townsend's songs and the predictably cliched couple of contributions from Entwistle, it's very hard to imagine any sort of cognancy or tension being mustered by the group. Adultery sings with all the conviction of a man who is wondering where his next film contract is coming from, and it is only fitting that he should often sound like a Cockney pub artist parodying himself. Harsh. Well, no, not harsh at all. Mm. He was good, the young Gavin Mark. And that's that's good. Yeah, good trying to make a name right. for himself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the yeah. thing is, though, I mean, perhaps the the best thing to come out of this period of the Who might be this top of the pops performance. They are old pros, and they know how to do top of the pops. And yes, Townsend's got this weird double-breasted leather jerkin. Yeah, he's trying to live in the moment, isn't he? It's a bit kind of like futurist jumpsuit. He looks like a bellboy to me, but I think I think Entwistle is perhaps the oddest looking. Yes, you know that episode of Dad's Army where Jones, Godfrey, and Fraser go around Fraser's and get embalmed <laughs> to look younger. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of like what Entwistle looks like. I was really offended by his flying V base. Uh, that, that was just wrong. Man. A flying V needs to be brandished and, mm. and flung about, not not just picked at. <laughs> you know what I mean? But he likes tapping and all of that stuff. He, you know, he's a bass solo. It's like having a fucking Harley Davidson and just walking up the street, pushing it along. <laughs> Not right, mate. Hey, you slagging off thunder fingers. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, like, it does seem, by the time we find them here on this episode of Top of the Pops anyway, you know, I mean, Townsend, since about 71... Uh, for me, just seems to be someone enormously embittered yeah. about pretty much everything, about rock as well. He's constantly mm. singing and writing about how rock and roll is stopping him becoming a functioning adult. And, and mm. the lyrics here are just this half-pissed, let-me-in doggerel yeah. that's pretty appalling. I mean, why is he listening to old T-Rex? That really struck me as an yeah. odd line. Yeah, him and B.A. Robertson. Indeed. And <laughs> and there's that... But, but also, who's next? Yeah. Like, name-checking your own fucking album. That, there's a great way to kick on. Who? Yeah, like Pete Townsend in 1981, he's thinking, I haven't heard Barbara O'Reilly often enough. <laughs> mm. <laughs> <laughs> but there's also, isn't there that line, you welcome me with open arms and open legs? I mean, come on. Yeah. Oh, it's no. Kind of Gross. Yeah, acted by Daltrey as well. He goes, You woke up me with open arms and open legs. <laughs> yeah. The McVicar himself. <sighs> the song and the lyric just seems to revel in that kind of arrested development thing that he's been moaning about a while. But mm. it's revealing, revealing of a kind of squalor, obviously, in Townsend's life at the time. A squalor that extends into the way Daltrey snarls you better with that kind of punky. You better! Yeah. It's definitely a kind of, not a nod to the pistols or anything, but he's definitely aiming for that. But as with everything by The Who, uh, I, you know, there are certain things I can't eat, right? <laughs> not right. just because I don't like them, but because I've had a slightly traumatic sensory memory of them that just creates this kind of instant gag reflex. Such I, as? Kind of, eggs, right? I can't eat eggs. Oh. And, and people are appalled at this. and like, you God, you're missing out. <laughs> 
that's also how I am about listening to the Who. Right. Um, <laughs> who, the Who are eggs to me. They're, they're just they're just rank. What kind of eggs? Just the, the, any kind of eggs, Al. I mean, you know. now map out the Who's career by egg. <laughs> by egg. Come well, on. Well, they, All right. Can't explain. Well, to my generation, they're an exciting sizzling fried egg. I get that, but no. But I wanted to. Co- yeah. Okay. Good. 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 Um, sell out. By the Who seller, you know, we're, we're talking scrambled, I would say. Huh? Right, Tommy. Yeah, now here we're getting poached. <laughs> right, okay, um, uh, who are you? Yeah, it's hard-boiled shit from then on, isn't it? It's, it, mm. it's pretty horrible. I mean, look, 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 don't get me wrong. I think all of us here had that little moment in our listening life when we were sent back. You know, we had to go back because the present was so horrific. And mm. my period of my life when I was doing that was entirely conducted under sort of three different auspices, really. One was The Melody Maker. The other one was that 100 Greatest Albums book by Paul Gambaccini. And the other mm. was Formula 30. Now, Formula 30 had two Who tracks on it. Ooh. And one was Substitute, right? And it amazed me. I thought it was astonishing. Yeah. Not only that here was this really combustible sounding band, but also that the lyrics, they, they seem to have a really true class consciousness mm. that no other band of that period, perhaps this side of the Kinks, possessed. And, yeah. and, and even with the Kinks, as a young listener, there was a kind of class slipperiness to them. So mm. that even if the sound was quite near to punk, the lyrics were a bit more diffuse than that. Davis would sing about dead-end streets, but it also sing about mansions and poshery, you know, whereas yeah. Substitute seemed to be something authentically angry from an underdog. And Substitute mm. pushed me towards the other Who singles from that time. You know, I can't explain yes. anyway, anyhow, anywhere, my generation, and I can see for miles. And, and I already started having feelings hearing those songs as a kid that, man, if they'd have come out with those and then, I don't know, died in a van crash or something, that would have been perfect. They mm. were as interesting to me as The Creation or John's Children or Misunderstood or any of those, yeah. those sort of bands. Those singles, that, that run of singles is one of the greatest runs of singles in the 60s. They're properly unique. They seem completely disinterested in making friends or becoming stars, really, or appealing. They still feel like things that had to come out of their system. And crucially, even in those early records, you can detect that this is less a band than four massive egos straining against each other. And there's this faint hint of mutual hatred there, which is really exciting, mm. especially when combined with the people behind them. You know, Andrew Lou Goldham is more interesting than Brian Epstein. And Peter Meesden and yeah. Kit Lambert and people like that are even more interesting than Andrew Ligoldham, yes. you know? There seemed to be a genuine commitment then to pop art in what they did. That rub between the rhythm section, the singer who just seemed to want to be famous, really, and this guitarist who seemed to be in constant torment. It seemed really interesting. But then, you know, you watch Monterey pop and you see Hendrix kill them. Yes. And, you know, the other song on Formula 30 was Pinball Wizard, right? And that's mm. clearly a later band. Yeah. Unfortunately, feeling a bit more like Townsend's Baby and feeling a little sort of less chaotic, more like a band. Mm. And like a twat, you know, I got out Tommy of the lo- at the library. Oof. And, you know, it was one of those moments about halfway through that album where I thought, you know, stop, you've gone too far. <laughs> Roll <laughs> yeah. that back a little. Ponderous, ugly music made by ponderous, ugly people. Can I just stick up for the Who at Monterey, by the way? The, right, okay. Their penny, pi- their their fascinating but penny pinching managers had uh, yeah. just paid for their tickets, so all their guitars and amps they had to hire in America, yeah, yeah. so they didn't sound like they normally did. Whereas the more streetwise Charles Chandler 
had made sure Hendrix mm. took a, a then brand new Marshall stack and his own strat with him, uh, which is why Hendrix sounds twice as good at Monterey. The thing is, by the time I'd heard Tommy, I had also seen what I still contend is the most horrific image in pop, and that's mm. Roger Daltrey in those beans. <laughs> and even knowing that, you know, he nearly copped a dose of pneumonia from that photo shoot was sort of scant consolation, really. Yeah, Substitute was my point as well, Neil, because it got re-released and it got in the charts in about 1976. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that was the who to me for a long time. And then when I became a mod, yeah, I heard all the early stuff. It's like, oh, fucking hell, this is amazing. And I go all the way up to sellout. I can't go any further. As soon as the fringes and the perms appear, yeah. that's me out. To me, they're a definitive singles band that perhaps should have stayed mm. as a singles band. But I mean, you know, they're one of those bands who I'm pushed towards, you know, my entry points quite often and I just can never do it. The look of Daltrey is a big part of this. I, I am, it just revolts me. You know, Daltrey and those beans. Yeah. Right. It was less grim mm. when I thought that the item in the foreground was a sausage. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, you get beans and they got a sausage in. I yeah, thought yeah. that's what it was meant to be. Then when I realised it was his leg... It, it's much worse. <laughs> you thought it was a savoury 99 yeah <laughs> yeah yeah but you know I, I ended up watching the tommy film and like all ken russell films that you see in childhood it kind of freaks you out with the intensity mm. of it but it was just repellent and to be honest i've never really been able to get over that i mean i really wasn't blown away as promised by live at leeds and and who's next was an album where you know reading about townsend's initial concept I mean, that concept for Lifehouse, yeah. was it? His project yeah. that he had. You know, I found that concept much more exciting, if bizarre, than its truncated kind of realisation. This idea he had of the grid, you know, and he'd, he'd sort of like get biometric data about mm. all the audience members and then feed <laughs> into this kind of communal musical moment. Yeah. I mean, there's moments of excitement, don't get me wrong, even in the later stuff. So it won't get fooled again. That big scream is, is ace, but it's done better by Iron Maiden on Number of the Beast. <laughs> so I was like... Yeah. You know so, the worst thing about Lifehouse, by the way, mm. when they were first starting like preliminary work on that, they did some gigs at the Young Vic in London right. to try and work on this idea that Townsend had of like creating a, an amazing transcendent connection between the audience and the band, and yeah. you know, to the point where you could hit a certain chord and the audience would disappear. You know, mm. right. um, and what actually happened was. Um, it, it just degenerated into the Who doing a version of Boney Maroney while some skinheads <laughs> kicked each other's heads in. It, it didn't go well. It was a little bad omen straight away. But this performance, this isn't the Who that anyone wants, is it? <laughs> the older elements of uh, the Top of the Pops audience are, are going to want to see Daltrey just swinging his mic around and people of my age want Ready Steady Go all over again. But we get neither. Yeah. Well, the 60s Who would have made much more of the chorus and like Taylor says there's these big blustery sort of bollocky bits in between the, the chorus is the point mm. of this song so the big blustery bits it's a long winded getting to that chorus put it that way yeah. to me the only good thing they do post 1967 is, is Roger Daltrey's horrific death by botched tracheotomy in shite 78 horror film The Legacy that's a marvellous <laughs> marvellous moment but I perhaps have taken a dislike to The Who which is unfair I mean there's loads of 70s rockers who did morally far more appalling mm. things 
gangs who did, you know, but their sound is seductive, so I don't care. I, I find the Who rarely seductive like that. They were very blustery mm. to me. And that's even before we get into the individual members. Yeah. Yeah. I just don't like any of them, you know what I mean? Keith Moon, selfish prick. John Imwistle, nasty prick. Pete Townsend, balls achingly earnest prick, and Roger Daltrey, King Brexit prick. <laughs> you know, I don't like his liking of Enoch. I don't like his quote about Hitler. Which was? Oh, well, he said uh, at some point in the mid-70s, I think, he said, you need someone who's going to make people jump. You need a Hitler figure to just say this is what it is. And then he goes on to say, and Hitler was right for Germany at the time. <sighs> They were being really being shit on. He turned out mad in the end. <laughs> uh, but when he started, he was there. He just did marvellous things for the German people. You just need a Hitler figure internationally for kids. Mm. One other thing. That, that, one of the, it wasn't the thing that bonded me and my missus, but we both were repulsed by Roger Daltrey. I will never, ever forget <laughs> one night when I suggested to her a dream that I wanted her to have because I wanted to see how terrifying it could be. The dream is this, because uh, my, my wife, like a lot of girls who grew up in the 1970s, was m- massively fancied Robert Powell as Jesus right. Christ, you know? Um, so I suggested this dream to her that she's following Jesus up a biblical hill, you know? So, and she's following him up, and she thinks it's Robert Powell, you know? And she gets to the top of the hill following Jesus, and she touches the sort of hem of his garment or his shoulder, and he turns around, and instead of the beautiful blue eyes of, of, of Powell Jesus, it's Daltrey Jesus. Oh, Daltrey Jesus. And, yeah, wow. yeah. And just even coming out with that makes me shiver. Because <laughs> he's just vile. So, yeah, I... I, I she was expecting this hollow-cheeked purity, and she got what looked like a hard Phil Neville. Yeah. But, I mean, I do want to stress, when the Who were exciting... They're tremendously mm. exciting. Um, but I just think that that didn't last long enough for me. I mean, that performance of them doing Anyway, Anyhow, Anywhere on Ready, Steady, Go is fucking astonishing. Yeah, yeah one yeah. of the f- high points of post-war British culture. Mm. And so it always offends me when I see it on YouTube and there's some comment underneath berating the Ready Fusion cameramen and directors for shaking the camera about during the uh, <laughs> during the drum solo. Yeah. It's fucking offensive, man. That's the best bit. Yeah. There's some American twat who wants to see how fucking Keith Moon's doing the paradiddles. Fuck off. <laughs> if you ever see that on YouTube, pop crazy youngs did you have a fucking word with him i mean it's a really exciting performance that and also you know Mm. i've got to say just from a music journalist geek angle reading nick con on the who Mm. he's amazing on the who he's really thrilling about that band and and that was a big part of my sort of really getting into that early stuff yeah hence the disappointment later you know one of those bands like the pet shop boys like zappa where i'm more than willing to read about them because an awful lot of people have written good stuff about them and acknowledge the importance the legacy the lineage or something Mm. but i have next to no interest in listening to them sort of post 67 really yeah yeah the thing about daltrey irrespective of his rock horse face (laughs) his main musical problem is that he's always had a great natural voice in terms Mm. of power and attack regardless of what you think of the sound of it but he's very often used it in ways which don't do him any favors he never really knew what was good for him so you hear him on this record trying to interpret these smashed up 
garbled lyrics just in any way he can which Mm. for him means bombastic shouting with occasional real speech inflections broadway style Mm. but it all feels daft because he doesn't know what townsend's on about um they didn't communicate well enough for townsend to explain it to him so He's just putting the inflections on random words, you know, or Mm. to give him a bit more credit, he's timing those inflections for musical and rhythmic variation rather than any internal narrative logic in the lyrics. But that's how we get to this track's insane peak moment which is where he sings i know i've been wearing crazy clothes and i look pretty crappy sometimes (laughs) although tragically that gets lost in this performance because Mm. this is a re-recording or a or more likely a remix with live vocals rather than just miming but it's there on the record and it's the best bit he always had the same problems if you listen to the very early who Daltrey is trying really hard to resist their transition from a London R&B covers band to a new style pop art group, Mm. even though that's what elevated them out of the pack and made them big, Mm. and not just the Yardbirds. Um, And also, despite the fact that he sings those new songs beautifully with exactly the right blend of toughness and sincerity and Mm. vulnerability it's a genuine emotional street voice whereas Mm. on the stuff that he wanted the who to be doing like james brown covers and especially their version of i'm a man by bo diddley which made it onto the first lp his singing is ridiculous it's Mm. so stylized and affected that it's just absurd he's trying to sound like howling wolf it's more like howling cockapoo um <laughs> like beyond blackthroat to the point where he just sounds like he's doing a funny voice mm. have you ever heard this fucking bizarre but mm. he resisted the move away from that material to the more innovative stuff because mm. accepting that meant ceding control of the band to Townsend, who yep. was a middle-class art student from Ealing, while Daltrey was a rock-hard sheet metal worker from Acton. Mm. And if you're not from London, you might not quite understand the difference between Ealing and Acton. There's a difference. <laughs> um, the fact that the tension between those two things and those two worldviews turned out to be the Who's main feature and mm. selling point and ultimately the point of the band, in the end, that was a curse because yeah. it meant that they then had to preserve the tension between those two men endlessly to keep it going. Yeah. And Daltrey rode that out because he was fundamentally unflappable perhaps uh-huh. a little too thick to be flappable whereas Townsend was a massive neurotic to the point where it almost killed him which is mm. how he ended up like this pete townsend writing songs like this one about mm. being a self-loathing middle-aged failure of a human being yeah. um delivered by a bopping daltry yeah a, as though yeah. it were the roar of a lion triumphant in <laughs> battle yeah. um, so you get townsend with his expression of vague contempt and he's got like a trendy haircut that looks shit because he's going thin on top. Mm. And he's still chasing fashions because he still believes in youth, even though he's not young anymore and he doesn't know what else to do. And he's in the same spiral where he spent most of his adult life smashing his guitar to express the frustration of being caught in a showbiz trap. 
and then realising that the guitar smashing itself has become showbiz and a trap of its own. Mm. So he smashes another to let out that frustration, and so on. It's the exact same psychological loop as alcoholism, which he also had. Mm. And at the same time, this is why he became such a key figure, yeah. especially for critics in the 70s. Yeah. Like his life and career working with Daltrey was the perfect illustration of that tug between art and showbiz, or principles and comedy with which rock music discourse was obsessed for 20 years and because he was the most articulate and verbal and self-analytical of that generation Mm. he was very aware of this conflict and it became an obsession this perpetual self-flagellation you know Mm. and so everything he said and did after about 1969 he's like an old dissident endlessly picking over the failed revolution except Mm. from a throne rather than from a prison cell (laughs) um and he knows that he sounds pampered and out of touch he knows that he is Mm -hmm. and he looks pretty crappy sometimes (laughs) and he feels guilty about that as well Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and we're supposed to care Mm. And it's awful, really. Like, the perfect Pete Townsend story from this period, which I'm sure everyone knows, is the night that inspired the song Who Are You Mm. when he went out in Soho and bumped into Steve Jones and Paul Cook from the Sex Pistols in a club. And he went into a half-hour rant about how they had to save rock and roll from from stagnation and wipe away the useless old cunts like him because Mm. they were young and valid and he's a rotten old drunken has-been who should be burnt up in the fiery cloud of their liftoff. And Jones and Cook just sort of sat there shuffling nervously no idea what he was talking about and then when he finished they asked him when the who were going to be touring again because the who were their favorite group and townsend screamed went off his nut tried to hit someone and shortly afterwards was ejected from the nightclub he might have made a better critic perhaps i mean he might have been a good writer about music but i mean the thing is these neuroses don't get me wrong a lot of neuroses can be part of rock and roll but it's precisely those neuroses that stop rock happening sometimes Mm. the excitement of rock and roll happening at least yeah yeah yeah. i mean i I find townsend a really interesting figure and when when i've ever sort of read him talking about music he's very insightful and and he's a smart smart chap but it's precisely that that smart which which forestalls the pleasure in their music and and uh, whereas in those 60 in those 60 singles you know you do those those records sound like a fight i mean that they sound like a fight between four people in a sense there's a togetherness there but Mm. there's a tension there Yeah, yeah whereas of course by the 70s moon was pretty much um, not inept. What's the word? Sort of a fucking nightmare. A nightmare in all kinds of ways, but mm. but fundamentally not up for a fight, as it were. He's too busy cherry bombing toilet bowls and stuff. Yeah. So apart from with his wife. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but 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 that that crucial dynamic that makes those singles. Those uh, uh, yeah, you can't be stressing the fact that those singles are. But that dynamic are gone. So it does seem to me when I listen to seventies Who, the main dynamic is between Daltrey and, and Townsend. Daltrey mm. is just like taylor says unapologetically and totally and and i think this isn't even a a, he's commercially minded and that is it and i don't even Mm. think that's a lacking in him i just think that's what he sees music as yeah Yeah. and that he doesn't want to go back to working in a sheet metal factory yeah 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or a trout farm. <laughs> <laughs> the way they're being presented on top of the pops, it's like, here are the great survivors of the 60s who have picked their way through the wreckage of the 70s, and here they stand, ready to face a new decade. But out of all four of them, and you'll notice we haven't said one thing about Kenny Jones because there's absolutely nothing to say about no. it. He's just a drummer, yeah. and that's how he's treated. Yeah, yeah. But out of all four members of that band... Only one of them looks anywhere near ready to kick on into a new decade. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the problem is, he's got to funnel everything through Daltre, who just wants to carry on being the rock horse. Mm. It's a curse for Turner. Mm. Because Neil's absolutely right that he was a good rock critic and he considered himself a good rock critic and said so on Mm. several occasions. And the curse, and I don't know if you find this, but I certainly do, the curse of having naturally good critical instincts is that you end up turning them on yourself yeah yeah um and it can paralyze you in some ways yeah it's impossible for me to look back at anything i wrote when i was like you know in my 20s or 30s and not think it's disgusting Mm. because i know i could do it better now but that's not healthy right that's not a healthy way of looking at your life that's really only like an inversion of pete townsend who Mm. looks back at when he was 20 or 21 and thinks oh i'm shit now and i was great then Mm. you know Mm. the exact opposite of most people yeah and the terrible thing is that like me he's right and that at 20 or 21 he had the emotion and the vision to write songs like The Kids Are All Right, which mm. articulate adolescent feelings in a in a coherent and insightful way, but are still transmissions from the inside and are still about the moment and are still authentically youthful in that they behave as though the future does not and cannot ever exist. Mm. Mm. Have you ever seen him on that programme, A Whole Scene Going?, from 1965 yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's like 20 years old and he's obviously on speed and he's sat there twitching and he's taking questions from the audience and it's the greatest interview with a rock star i've ever seen because everything he says is brilliant and perfect it's the one where he says the problem with rock music is when you start trying to introduce quality to it he's going to think about our group we haven't got any quality and it's the audience can't understand him and they're mm. saying things like well why don't you try and put some quality into it yeah and it's like no no you're missing the point it's rock and roll it's not supposed to have quality the quality is somewhere else it's not where you're looking yeah he knew all of this he understood it and he could articulate it so when the future that he was pretending would never exist suddenly did exist he stuck to this grand theme of youthful confusion and he found himself writing about being a confused adolescent, mm. which is not the same thing at all. And he couldn't hack it because he knew it wasn't as good. Like, I like the much maligned Quadrophenia, the album. Right. right. For all its proggy filigree and waffle and all the bits where Roger Daltrey has to deliver Gilbert and Sullivan-like recitations <laughs> because Townsend can't fit all the words into the tune, mm. which doesn't sound lovely, I'll grant you. Um, But I think it's a genuine achievement in that it does express those deep teenage feelings in the best way that you can hope for from a slightly older man, accurately with some distance and wisdom. But it's shot through with self-hatred because he knows this is worse than writing The Kids Are All Right. So you get all this tortured bluster, right? So 
to me, that album is the high point of the Beard and Brandy years of mm-hmm. The Who. But fucking hell, right? One of the key songs on that album is The Punk and the Godfather, mm-hmm. which is a song he wrote about the relationship between him and his audience. But it's not his actual audience. It's his idealised audience. Mm. It's this imaginary audience who all hate him for what he's become. Mm. So in the song, you've got this scrappy 60s street kid mod who's voiced by Daltrey, Jimmy from Quadrophenia, right? Mm. Addressing Pete Townsend himself. But it's the Pete Townsend of 1973, as though he's fallen back through a time warp. Mm. And it's a really overblown, high concept, you know, pub prog thing. And it's the most thorough and unsparing self-immolation you'll ever hear in song. Mm. So he has this kid sing to the rock star, you you declared you would be three inches taller. You only became what we made you. You thought you were chasing a destiny calling. You only earned what we gave you. Now you're watching movies trying to find the feelers. You only see what we show you. And he's inventing punk three years early, but Mm. top down. And it's not even actual punk. It's the music journalist concept of punk. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? And it did create that discourse because it was like a time paradox because a lot of those original punk writers were old Who fans who'd grown up listening to this stuff. So in the middle section, it drops out and you've just got the synth going, me, 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 me. And Townsend comes in with his wobbly high voice like a 12-year-old Richard Manuel off school with a cold. And in audible anguish, he sings back to this kid, I have lived your future out by pounding stages like a clown and on the dance floor, broken glass and blooded faces slowly pass the empty seats in numbered rows. It all belongs to me, you know, and it's really uncomfortable to listen to because you're listening to a breakdown formed into a song, Mm. but you can see why 70s music writers considered that more interesting than Wings. Yeah. I mean, Paul McCartney also wrote a song about how he imagined the experience of going to one of his own 1970 (laughs) stadium gigs. The song Rock Show from 1975. Mm. And the lyrics to that go, Behind the stacks you glimpse an axe, the tension mounts you score an ounce. (laughs) And I wonder Townsend was so fucking lonely and depressed. But that's the thing, loneliness. I mean, the thing is, if Townsend, say, had split from The Who in 1970 and become a singer-songwriter, now I don't think he's got the voice for it, to be honest with you. Mm. But what he needs needs in a band is somebody to enforce a little concision on him and and just to say cheer up mate i know that sounds daft but a balancing Mm. ego if you like a balancing ego now what he's doing in the 70s townsend he's drowning in his neuroses and who has he got as bandmates he's got two total hooligans in the rhythm section and he's got somebody who just wants to lamp him as his front man. Yes. So, you know, he, he's, he's not got that person saying, oh, maybe we could cut that. You know what I mean? Composition, mm, yeah, yeah, the who yeah, yeah. seem to be this thing that are constantly almost sickened by Townsend's indulgence. But without that indulgence, there is no band. Yeah, I yeah. can't help but think, Charles, about the terrible bind that the who and Townsend in particular are in in 1981. Because, you know, 
he's got a solo career on the go and you get the feeling he'd like to keep it that way for at least a bit but as we know the who have started spunking their money on films you know the the budget for quadrophenia was two million pound would you believe so the only way to finance that is either to knock out huge selling albums or um, relentlessly touring the old tunes out and on this showing they clearly can't do the former anymore so it's hello to non-stop tommy gigs for the rest of the decade and when you compare them to their peers who are still about you know it's obvious that paul mccartney and the rolling stones still have the ability to knock out a decent new tune every now and then Mm. we'll be hanging around through the 80s or you know in the case of led zeppelin accepting that they can't go on without a key component and calling it a day but i'm afraid to say that what we're watching here on top of the pops sounds like a band shouldering the last straw before resigning themselves to being a heritage act (laughs) yeah i mean the stones have got what about two three more years of making good songs before Mm. they disappear into nothing but at least they managed it you know um the who are not managing that at all yeah but the stones believed in rock and roll Mm. and paul Mm. mccartney believed in in pop yeah so they could still churn something out at this point pete townsend is only really able to express himself artistically as this kind of mess of neurosis you know what i mean it's it's not going to be commercial and it's not going to be much like the who you know Mm. when he was just windmilling and and having a good time so Yeah. yeah he can't do it he can only create things that kids aren't interested in now mm. it's a slightly to- i mean it's maybe not slightly it's a toxic relationship but you know how people can get mm. institutionalized to toxic relationships and and yeah adultery can function without the who you know he doesn't particularly want to because it's still a money maker townsend mm. i don't think can function without mm. that dynamic he's so used to it by that's, the time that's that- funny i'd assume it was the other way around because no one's going to want to listen to a roger daltrey solo lp in 1981 daltrey will go where the hits are daltrey will go mm. where he thinks is commercially viable mm. townsend i don't think can let go of the who otherwise why wouldn't mm. he already why does he need the who if it's all this aggravation why doesn't mm. he just do a solo album, get some session guys in, go around bloody Ronnie Wood's house or something, and get something recorded? Well, he did. He'll put out all the best cowboys have Chinese eyes a year from now. If he's disgusted with what he's become, which he seems to be disgusted from about 1971 onwards, why does he keep coming back? Why did the Who keep coming back? Mm. It, it, it's an addictive, toxic relationship for him, I think. Yeah. That's precisely what's thrilling about their 60s records. But as the 70s go on, it really does seem like him, Townsend, that is, against the rest of the band, which probably mm. isn't the way it was, but that's the way these records... No, it was. Come, the, oh, right, well, that's <laughs> no. how these records come across. The, there is the only creative force in the band, but the rest of the band can't stand him. I mean, the only half-decent who record from this period is sung by townsend eminence front oh yeah where they tried to have an actual contemporary sound mm. on it as well yeah like which doesn't just mean playing a blustery who song and and you know making the drums mm. splash mm. a bit so it sounds like a modern i mean it's constructed like an 80s record but daltrey can't do that no and wouldn't want to. No, God, certainly not. Because he feels like he's put his flag in the ground. Yeah. And this is what we do, isn't it? This is what people pay to come and see the Who. And he's absolutely right, mm, it yes. is. What we're talking about did at least give us the extraordinary album The Who by Numbers. Have you ever had that? Mm. From the bleak season of 1975. <laughs> and it's like the high point of that tortured 
self-loathing inverted narcissist mm-hmm. version of the who or version of pete townsend you know and it's real grot it's all <laughs> these solipsistic songs about obsessive self-destructive anxiety it's around the time pete townsend turned 30 mm. so it's right. all full of songs called things like however much i booze and <laughs> um, you know how many friends have i really got yeah, yeah. and stuff he opens songs with lines like i see myself on tv i'm a faker a paper clown as if anyone's meant to care <laughs> you know as people listen to that going wow you saw yourself on tv fucking brilliant what you've been pulled up by the ears by chris tarrant on tiswell <laughs> this is what anybody else is thinking and he's ending songs with lines like goodbye all you punks you see what i mean goodbye all you punks stay young and stay high hand me my checkbook while i crawl off to die Mm. like a woman in childbirth grown ugly in a flash that's nice i've seen magic and pain now i'm recycling trash to which the only answer is well don't do it yeah 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 and also this is not something that ever seemed to hold back david bowie or can or Leonard Cohen, mm. or anyone else who was interesting and interested in their 30s. It just wasn't an issue, because they hadn't nailed everything to their own youthful energy and frustration, yeah. dooming themselves to pantomime in, in in later life. And, of course, that means Pete Townsend, trying to stay youthful, ends up sounding like the least youthful person on the planet. Mm. There's a line on The Who by Numbers which goes... I lose so many nights of sleep worrying about my responsibilities. Has there ever been a less rock and roll line (laughs) than I lose so many nights of sleep worrying about my responsibilities? Mm. This is what Paul Weller was trying to dodge when he split up the jam at the age of 23 Mm. and started wearing cycling gear and singing about Milton Keynes. He didn't want to be doing You Better You Bet in 1994. God, no. Might have been an improvement on uh, her, oh, yeah, to be honest. (laughs) Yeah. That was the thinking. That's the thing. I mean... You know, as soon as you hit 30, to be honest with you, you start dwelling on the good times. You start dwelling on those bits <laughs> of your past, you know, and a large part of the rest of your life is spent doing that. Don't get me wrong. Mm. It doesn't make for music. It doesn't make for rock and roll. I'm not saying you have no. to plaster on a smile and face a face a future, but, you know, perhaps get out of yourself a little bit um, would have been good for Townsend I think yeah, have, yeah, yeah. have a drink, <laughs> <laughs> have a drink yeah. no but from 71 onwards I mean look I understand why you know he's, he's, he's lived through one of the most thrilling periods of pop music history and he's been a part of it Yeah, but you cannot just spend the rest of your career endlessly bitterly dwelling on that fact and what has been lost since and I think if the Who were more of a not democratic proposition but I'm looking at it I mean Townsend had to be challenged more rather than by a pig shit thick cunt like Daltrey but somebody with you know ideas beyond pure commercial success he he, he would have developed better but by the time mm. we find him here it's just endless this endless I'm, and I'm not going to say self-pity because you know Townsend would reject that himself I think um, it is slightly drunken slightly red-eyed um, self-piteous but yeah, he's just endlessly from about 70 onwards, I think, just dwelling on the past. He can't get over it that 
once mm. he felt excited and now he feels dead. I mean, that's yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. Turn that into one song. <laughs> I'm not sure yeah. you can spin the rest of your career out of it. Uh, and he couldn't shake himself loose from Daltrey because Daltrey was his connection to who he thought he was writing for, mm. which yes. was like rough lads who you know yeah, yeah. can't express themselves, so they need somebody else to do it for them. And as you yeah. know, like a lot of lower middle class people, he felt like a link between the working class and the artistic middle class, um, mm. and that's what he was explicitly trying to do. And it must have been soul destroying to him that the personification of the people he thought he was writing for was like yeah i, I don't want this <laughs> i don't yeah, like this yeah, yeah, can't, yeah. We, mm. can't we just do i can't explain again yeah maybe the this song's not about a nagging girlfriend who keeps saying you better it's about fucking Daltrey. <laughs> yeah, but the thought of yeah. Daltrey opening his legs and mind to Pete Townsend isn't a pleasant one. <laughs> <laughs> well, you only have to watch Compost Corner to understand that. Yeah. <laughs> as far as Top of the Pops is concerned, and this performance, Daltrey is the absolute front person mm. of The Who, mm. because he's bagging the lion's share of the camera here with some very awkward cutaways from Townsend. But this week's Enemy News section explains all. Quote from that news piece at the who press launch pete also explained the reason that he wasn't anywhere to be seen on the recent who appearance at top of the pops their first in eight years was because the director unused to townsend's windmill actions on the guitars mistook his flailing arms for a fascist salute and therefore concentrated on doltry what with the attention being given to the fascist element in england today the director didn't want to inflame the situation do you believe Fucking that? mental. <laughs> because the thing is, Townsend's holding up a raised fist. Yeah. But mind you, Donald Trump does that nowadays, because that's the right wing, isn't it? They always nick all the good left wing stuff. <laughs> Cunts. That might not be true, but I really hope it is. <laughs> also, it means you get a lot of John Entwistle, which is like at least evens it up mm. after years and years and years of TV appearances mm. where you never saw John Entwistle. I was going to say anything else to say. You know, I interviewed him once, Pete Townsend. Yeah, in the 90s. Really? Obviously. Not a proper in-depth interview, because people like me would never be allowed to do that. It was a thing for Rebellious Jukebox in Melody Maker. Right. Oh, right yeah. People would list their favourite records and talk about them. Was um, it face-to-face or a phone-up? Face-to-face. I did oh. it at his house. It's up Ooh. by Eel Pie Island. Wow. So we, we were sat in the little recording studio built onto the side of his house. Mm. And I found out years later from reading his terrible autobiography and working out the chronology, this was about a fortnight after he'd finally given up drinking, right. which explains why his hands were shaking so badly every time oh. he lit a Marlboro light, which was very, very often. Right. Well, either that or he was nervous being in the presence of the great Taylor Polk's melody maker. Come on. Yeah, it's probably, <laughs> probably a bit of both, wasn't it, really, if you're being honest. Mm. But he was exactly as I expected and in a way exactly as i'd Mm -hmm. hoped he was still completely obsessed with what was young and new right more so now that he was effectively excluded from it so he was Mm. asking me about i don't fucking know you know but it was (laughs) the mid 90s so he was full of the possibilities of the internet for music and music writing as though Mm. that effect was going to be something more than simply to fragment and impoverish bless him <laughs> poor <laughs> bastard it's all his own fault but you know well, we all felt like that yeah, at the time yeah. though taylor which of us which of us honestly can't say that everything is our own fault 
you know still doesn't mean it's fair and if you want to know what it was like working for melody maker at that time when it finally went into the paper someone changed the spelling of his name so it was wrong oh. it took the h out took the h out yeah sorry yeah so the following week you better you bet stayed at number nine before dropping down the chart but face dancers entered the lp chart at number three a week later and then spent two weeks at number two held off number Number one by Kings of the Wild Frontier. The follow-up, Don't Let Go the Coat, only got to number 47 in May, and they finished the year with Athena getting to number 40 in October. Although they put out the LP It's Hard in 1982, garnering an American single hit with Eminence Front, a fault line developed between Townsend, who wanted the band to stop touring and become a studio-only concern, and Daltrey and M. Twistle, who respectively wanted to whirl a microphone about and then throw it dead-eye and catch it, or just stand there in an enormous <laughs> dome for the rest of their lives, which resulted in their farewell tour in late 1982. And after after Townsend attempted to write their final contractually obligated LP for Polydor, he gave up, bought himself and Kenny Jones out of their contracts and announced he was leaving in December of 1983. However, they reunited for their final gig at Live Aid in 1985, their final tour in 1989, their final gig in 1996, their final tour in 1999, their final tour in 2000, their final tour in 2002, even though John N. Twistle died in a Las Vegas hotel the night before the first date, their final LP, Endless Wire, in 2006, their final tour in 2012, 2015, and 2016 their final LP Who in 2019 and their final tour which finished last year (laughs) and they'll be beginning their final tour in Hull this July there's still time to die before I get old tour Face dances, that's the who, and you better you best at number nine. Something really delicate from Stevie Wonder is released, it's in the chart at 18, and Legs and Kerr are gonna dance to it, it's called Lately. With his hand in his pocket and adopting a pose which my non-all would have described as slorming about, <laughs> introduces something really delicate that's going to be emoted to by Legs and Co. It's Lately by Stevie Wonder. We've covered Stevelyn Morris a time or two, and this, the follow-up to I Ain't Gonna Stand For It, which got to number 10 in January of this year, is the third cut from his 19th LP, Hotter Than July, which came out last September. It entered the charts a fortnight ago at number 57, then soared 30 places to number 27. And this week, it's up nine places to number 18, causing Legs and Co. to embark upon a second wave of daddy's faction. <laughs> and yeah, Neil, I didn't know that this was Pauline's last ever performance on Top of the Pops, and it's a shame they didn't let her pog it. Indeed. 
mean, truth be told, I, I wasn't really looking at legs and Kojo in this. I was staring at the strange crenellated ball hanging down to the right. Yeah, which just, looks like a big scotch egg. Well, it just made me repeatedly <laughs> yearn for the long-wanted bliss of ear syringing. <laughs> oh, what a dream. <laughs> But no, it's barely dance, isn't it, what they're asked to do? I mean, which you can't really dance to this record anyway. No. It's more of a selection of sort of one and two point balances with them dressed in some sort of strange blend of, of Native American tribal dress. They've been given an absolute mm. dog to dance to it mm. in terms of dancing, but it's not a bad song. It starts with Rosie, Jill and Sue depicted in close-up forming a pyramid shape, possibly in tribute to the cover of Zenyatta Mondata, <laughs> while Lulu lies on the floor of a, a very sparse set which features a long blue bit of fabric that's just been draped at an angle and a, a brown crusty globe hanging down like you know like a big scotch egg and that's your lot mm. legs and co ego they're supposed to look like you know full of eastern promise aren't mm. they like the turkish delight advert <laughs> the overall effect is a turkish delight advert shot during a technician strike isn't it <laughs> <laughs> yeah but you're right it's got to be the least mobile dance routine i've ever seen Mm. Now they're Fitbits barely registered it no. like they don't do any of the horsey horsey or the the knee pointing mm. most of it is just hot girl on girl staring yeah yes um, yeah it's got quite an erotic charge you know if it if you didn't know they were trying not to giggle mm. um and i discovered this is rosie's favorite legs and co performance really yeah and you can sort of see why because it's classy, isn't it? Mm. Yes. In the yeah. same way as yeah. the record, which is to say 1981 classy. Mm. And mm. they look very nice, and they're not made to look silly like normal. But yeah. also, like the record, it's immobile and a bit unengaging, I think. Really? I don't know if that's a controversial view. No, it's, it's not exactly controversial. I mean, for me, when I heard this track, because it's been a while since I've heard this track, well, they're being familiar with it, uh, as we all were. I think, it, you know, it's a fairly big hit. For me, it sounded like it wouldn't be out of place on uh, the oft-forgot Stevie album that I think everyone should listen to the most, in a way, fulfilling this first finale. It sounds mm. like something off that. It reminds me of something like They Won't Go and I Go. Yeah. Or kind of a ballad of songs in the key of life, something like Ask. Mm. So it's a good song. It's a good song, but yeah, it's immobility is part of its point. It's kind of a static song, and consequently the dancing reflects that. I can't believe it's a favourite, but perhaps it's precisely, yeah, it's that classiness, that staticness mm. that puts it in her affections. Yeah. But yeah, I wasn't looking at Legs and Cow. I was, strange, I was looking at that weird, what is it? What yeah. is that thing meant to represent? Uh, God I can't knows. quite get it. Did they nick it off the set of Blake <laughs> 7 or something? It does look like something like that. It's probably got eyes on the other side or something, I don't know. <laughs> But the song, is this Stevie Wonder's last great ballad? I fucking love it. Well, what, what ballad has he done after this that we should be aware of? Well, um, forget, I just called to say I love you. Well, this is it. Yeah. This is it. And that's the cut-off point, isn't it? Yeah. So we're, we're not messing with Stevie after that or mm. even with that. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it's the black American talking in your sleep by Crystal Gale, isn't it? <laughs> There's something going on behind his back. Yeah, I, I always say it's about Stevie Wonder, but... With a lot of artists, you love the stuff that they did in one period and then you hate the stuff they did in some other period. Mm. But with Stevie Wonder, I find this split happening on the same albums. Right. Like, there's always something that is the greatest thing I've ever heard. Mm. And then there's something that sounds like an ass. Mm. And <laughs> it's unsettling to me because, obviously, in terms of talent, Stevie Wonder is in the top circle, you know. Mm. 
he's one of the relatively small group of people who were genuinely musically and creatively gifted and didn't need the egalitarianism of popular music to express themselves mm. except in terms of escaping his background obviously mm. in purely musical terms he's one of those who could well have been composing concertos for the court in 1835 mm. you know if he wasn't a blind black man yeah. You know, there's a good chance that on talent he could have been there, sat next to, you know, Paul McCartney and Brian Wilson (laughs) and Burt Bacharach. To the point where some of it is actually frightening to any mortal musician Mm. who can see what he's doing but has no idea how he came up with it. But his middle-of-the-road streak is a big problem for me, even on his best records, right? Right. Although I've never quite understood the phrase middle-of-the-road because... First of all, okay, if you're in the middle of the road, you've got edgy and challenging music on one side of mm. you, and on the other, what? Yeah. And also, since when was the safe choice to be in the middle of the road? Yeah. That sounds riskier <laughs> than almost anything exactly, else. Exactly, yeah. When Stevie's soft, he's very soft indeed. And, and you know, when I first came to Songs in the Key of Life, which is one of my favourite albums now, I was initially daunted by some of those balladic kind of songs. They are they're soppy they're not soppy they're 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 sweet yeah i used to go straight for you know living in the city and the funk stuff much more than the ballads i think as i've got older i see how he's weaving something Mm. that you've got to kind of put yourself in for the duration of and eventually you stomach it um and i don't mean it's difficult to stomach but eventually you take that even as a young listener it's like when as a young listener when everyone's telling me to listen to forever changes right yeah i've got to say the first time say i listened to forever changes i was like this is dead soft you know what's going on here mm. um i'm not really into this but then of course it grows on you and that's what happened with me with stevie sly stone presented no such problems but no. stevie did yeah. songs yeah. in the key of life is a long record and there's some very very soft sappy stuff on there but as you get older i think yeah it becomes it becomes more amenable to you and lately is from that side of him I haven't I've got to admit checked out the album that this is from because I do kind of part company with Stevie after songs in the key of life really Um, I have the occasional moment when I go for the private life of plants but um, yeah I mean I, I, I sort of avoid 80s Stevie because of that horrible record that's coming down a pipe in a few years. The Secret Life of the Plants. The Secret Life of Plants, I should have said. The Private Life of Plants kind of like suggests, you know, stamen action. <laughs> indeed, indeed. I think what it is, I can take some people's middle of the road leanings because what happens is it gets mixed in with what they usually do. Yeah. And the amalgam that comes out is unusual and interesting. Like Forever Changes, it's like there's a, that little bit of middle of the road strings mixed in with this like psychotic yeah sort of yeah, unpleasant yeah. man music but stevie's command of music is so effortless that when he decides to do middle of the road he just snaps his fingers and it's just instant super slick middle of the road yeah. there's no yeah. errors or mutations he just does it yeah. and there it is mm. and i never like it you know and i mean I like all the different kinds of music. Disco, classical, military band. I think that's all of them. Um, (laughs) But I struggle with this kind of thing. You know, you are the sunshine of my life and all that. Like stuff from his good period, and I don't like it. And this is a superior slick ballad because it's by Stevie Wonder before he completely lost it. Mm. And I like some things about it. I can appreciate the way that 
the hook line rises up quickly and then slowly flutters back down again like an autumn leaf mm. it's very smartly done and it worked because i remember this being on the radio at the time very clearly and at this age i was aware of the charts but i only registered the stuff that was actually memorable yeah. so it's clearly not terrible mm. or forgettable it just doesn't do anything much for me it's like it's too nicely done mm. you know mm. so it just has to join a bunch of other stevie wonder records with a bunch of kate bush records uh, weather report you know paul simon stuff that i can see is good i just don't respond to it mm-hmm. i heard this on the radio once and i just burst into tears man oh, oh i envy you <laughs> i was just just going through all manner of shit with my girlfriend of the time mm-hmm. and i was in the paper shop getting some uh, backy and rizzlers before going to work and it came on and i just stopped me in my tracks and just oh, fucking lost it man yeah which is something i wouldn't have done in 1981 it would have been like oh can we have something else please yeah you do need to fall in love and bra- get your heart broken to yes. understand a lot of Stevie stuff yeah. I haven't really investigated Hotter in July as much as I should but I do note in the track list he does his own version of a song he wrote in the 60s for Tammy Terrell mm. which is called All I Do Is Think About You which never got released it's one of the greatest Motown songs ever definitely one of the greatest slow Motown songs ever you need to investigate it only came right. out on CD a few years ago it's fucking incredible mm. video playlist yeah but i mean he's not in the studio but no <laughs> in contrast to an awful lot of the 60s figures we're seeing this year stevie is coming out of this with dignity yeah <laughs> you know yeah for now yeah, for now i mean his last great single to my mind was do i do a, a year later mm-hmm. but yeah after that gets hard it does get very difficult but fucking hell what a run oh yeah what a run if, you, if the only thing you'd ever done was Superstition on Sesame Street. Mm. He could have made 25 albums that sounded like fucking Mumford and Sons. It wouldn't matter. (laughs) He did it. He did the greatest thing anyone has ever done in music. So the following week, lately, soared 12 places to number six, and a fortnight later began a two-week run at number three. The follow-up, Happy Birthday, did even better, getting to number two in August behind Green Door by Chicken Steven. Slates and Co. Dancing the Stevie Wonders lately. And this is two out of two for Phil Collins. Off his LP face value, I'm Mr. Gay. Hey, excellent, purse Paul at Legs and Co. As he stands there with his free hand suggestively on his belt buckle in front of a few rows of kids who all look as if they've been made to sit in the corner and think about what they've done to Sharon Red. <laughs> he then tells us that it's two out of two for the next act. Phil Collins with I Missed Again. 
We've chanced upon Phil Collins a couple of times in chart music and this, his second solo single, is the follow-up to In The Air Tonight, which got to number two only a month ago, held off number one by Woman by John Lennon. It's the second cut from the LP Face Value, which came out last month and immediately spent three weeks at number one in the album chart and is still hanging in there in the face of the ant invasion at number two and it was recorded with the assistance of the Earth, Wind and Fire horn section. It entered the chart a fortnight ago at number 45 and the BBC immediately invited him into the Stew Stew Studio, if you will, (laughs) which helped it soar 25 places to number 20. This week it's leapt six places to number 14, so here is a repeat of that performance. Fucking hell, lots of repeats this week. Yeah, there's a few, isn't there? But anyway, that Powell introduction where he displays interest at Phil Collins for having two hits in a row, it's a timely reminder, isn't it, chaps, that being the drummer out of Genesis wasn't a guarantee of an endless run of hits in early 1981. No, no, but face value is massive mm. and it's like a showreel of what he can do outside of genesis yes and in a weird way that album not that i sit around listening to it much it does when you think about all the tracks that became singles and stuff it prefigures the 80s a lot more than perhaps more revered less commercially successful albums do mm. you know what we ultimately have here is an adolescent or young man of the 60s and 70s coming out the other side of the a divorce and making music definitely pitched at an adult audience mm. i mean it's not that i think phil considers the kiddie stuff beneath him but he's going to dominate the 80s both in bands and out of bands mm. and scoring massive solo hits then they're not in any other way analogous but he's like the rod stewart of the 80s in that mm. in that regard it's like what rod stewart does in the 70s yeah. and what he's ultimately saying is comforting it's hey look i know you like these new sounds but you might not like the weirdos using those new sounds i'm going to use those new sounds but i'm going to make music for grown-ups mm. hence its success i think yeah and he could have been on this episode five minutes earlier you know he approached pete townsend a few weeks after the death of keith moon offered mm. up his services but townsend had already asked kenny jones but pete townsend was clearly up for it though and it would have been interesting having phil collins to bounce off yeah how long it would have lasted i don't know <laughs> mm. <laughs> thing is as divorce albums go i mean Look, obviously, every middle-aged man who's just gone through a separation can identify with a lyric like, I can feel it coming in the air tonight. (laughs) Um, But when you listen to a great divorce album like Blood on the Tracks by Bob Dylan, that's an unfair comparison, right? Mm. But All right, or a a great divorce pop single like The Winner Takes It All by ABBA. Mm. They're full of all these tiny insights and Mm. little chilling details with tragic residents and all that stuff and face value just seems like some old cunt moaning (laughs) by comparison and it's a difficult balance to get right between Mm. magic and some old cunt moaning (laughs) so they tell me um yeah the original title for chart music that was wasn't it (laughs) 
<laughs> but look, we, we should probably start with the paint pot on the piano. Round one of Phil Collins versus Dignity. And boy, does he come out swinging. Mm. Yeah, let's talk about the paint pot because it's making a return after its debut when he did in the air tonight. We all know that his missus ran off with a painter and decorator the year before. And some people assume it's a wry comment on that. But allow me to direct you to chapter 10 of Not Dead Yet, his 2016 memoir. Quote... About that tin of paint, In the Air Tonight comes out as a single in the UK on January the 5th, 1981. Within a week, it's at number 36, and I'm at the BBC, appearing on their nation-uniting weekly chart show. How am I going to perform the song? I'm still not comfortable standing there with a microphone, especially on TV, so I'll play keyboards. And my engineer, Rodian Factorium Steve Pud Jones says, I'll get a keyboard stand. Nah, looks a bit Duran Duran to me. Get a Black & Decker work, mate. That'll do. OK, what will we put the drum machine on? Um, a tea chest. The tin of paint? That's because we're going for rehearsal after rehearsal and the top of the pops producers are desperately trying to make this tea chest look interesting. So Pud just adds little bits. A paint pot? So there it is. Indeed, a DIY theme to that infamous top of the pops performance. But it has nothing to do with my wife going off with a decorator. That performance and that paint pot have come back to haunt me time and time again. I mean, it needs stressing here that he actually did work as a painter and decorator in the 60s when Genesis had just started up. And apparently this other bloke was actually a public school type who'd just lost his job and was acting as the real decorators mate so there we go mm. you think after hanging out with genesis for 10 years uh phil collins would be a little bit sick of being aced out by public school boys wouldn't you mm. i never understood yeah. it because it like i always thought it was a bit weird because you can't tell whether it's meant to be ah you're sleeping in my bed with my wife but in the daytime mm. you're painting walls and i'm on top of the pops or you know where horrible paint cunt took my wife away here is his emblem but it's a shame that cuckolder pop stars didn't use props like phil collins has done you know tony blackburn could have pitched up on top of the pops wearing the nudie woman apron <laughs> like the one out of robin's nest <laughs> yeah it's you just think nowadays his wife would respond by putting a picture on instagram of her sitting at a piano with a button mushroom on top of it <laughs> <laughs> i'll tell you what's really funny when you look at him here by the way he's not even that bold no it's strange isn't it it's like how when you see on the buses now and olive isn't actually particularly fat or ugly Mm. you know it's like you say how did this happen but anyway the song i i've got to say i think it's meant i think it's far superior to in the air tonight do you yeah i do yeah (laughs) and i'm saying it right now doing chart music has left me with a shocking revelation that i kind of get on with a lot of avent's genesis and phil collins and that's because collins has pretty much taken over the band by now and he's he's leaning on his love of 60s black music yeah he's featured in the top 10 in smash it's his bit section the other month and he he drops earth wind and fire Mm -hmm. who he says has been his biggest influence over the past few years the jacksons the miracles and his all-time favorite group the action who i get into yeah. in a very big way in a year or two's time yeah 
So, yeah, when it came on the radio back in the day, it's like, oh, this is all right. And now, appearing on Top of the Pops after The Who, more of this, please. He, he seems really at ease, doesn't he, and comfortable. Mm. He sort of knows his own limitations, and so, consequently, he's not going to try and look 80s um, or, or, or dress up. Well, I mean, yeah, I know he's not that bald, but in contrast to the amount of hair going on elsewhere in this episode, mm. he's comparatively bald. Um, but he's this kind of dressed-down, very approachable, avuncular figure. He's not not going to put makeup on in no, any way dressed no. differently in this new decade and he actually tells us in this decade you know that he can't dance mm. uh, this song it has a touch of ELO's evil woman about it as well melodically um, oh yes crossed with as you mentioned a kind of uh, EWF vibe the thing is he's had the hit now you know and he's consequently looking very relaxed mm. he looks like he literally just got the cab from his Guildford home <laughs> aforementioned to do this mm. and who joins him on stage is a bit odd because they look like cameramen in disguise to be honest with you yes they do i'm not entirely sure if they had any part to play in face value at all it's certainly not the original sax player on this record because because that's ronnie scott in it and it's not him is ronnie scott the one playing the trumpet i don't think so yeah that would be odd but yeah, yeah ronnie scott the Ronnie Scott. This new love for late 70s uh, Phil and Genesis. Have you actually dived into face value? Are you loving it out? No, I haven't yet. No, because <laughs> in the air tonight puts me off. <laughs> but I need to listen yeah. to Horror in July and face value now. Because you haven't finished listening to Duke. No. <laughs> and Abacab. Yeah. <laughs> By this time, Genesis and Phil Collins are on a roll, man. They're shitting out the hits. And, you know, as a curator of pub quizzes, I know that people have difficulty in remembering who did what song. You know, people think Abacab is a Phil Collins song. So... I've devised a rhyme that I teach people to help them out. Ooh. And I'd like to share it with the pop crazy youngsters, if you don't mind. Mm-hmm. So, Let's hear it. if the lyrics are gibberish, the song must be by Genesis. <laughs> but if they whine about a cheating wife, that's Phil Collins. You can bet your life. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. That's locked in there now, Al. I will never forget that. Yeah. Much like my sister's mnemonic for diarrhoea, I will never forget that. Go on. Oh, you know, diarrhoea is a difficult word to spell. Very difficult word to spell. So just let me lodge this in people's heads. Did it at Robert Redford's house one early afternoon. There you go. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, he's a, he's a strange man against whom to have a vendetta. <laughs> but I sort of did. Like, like a lot of people after this, a few years after this, he was just below dire straits mm. and weirdly a uh, five star right. in my <laughs> personal rogues gallery Whoa. at the time when i was a teenager and it's partly just the fact that he was so brazen in his blandness mm. like it was his selling point you know it was like it was his personal brand like sheer and now mm. you know and that enraged me at a time when i still thought there might be hope <laughs> so to stay pure I had to wipe my brain of the feeling that maybe In the Air Tonight was an imaginative and unusual record. (laughs) And instead, just get exercised about stuff like the way he spent most of the 80s copying styles of black American music, past and present, which maybe he couldn't really pull off, in return for which he was worshipped by two generations of black American Mm. musicians who clearly knew far less about the subject than I did. (laughs) But I'd hear 
1999 by Prince and then I'd hear Susudio by <laughs> Phil Collins and I just couldn't process how the latter was a fractionally bigger worldwide hit in the same way that at that age you can't process how the world won't simply bend to your will mm. and reality won't bend to your own intuition of what does and doesn't make sense yeah. you know I mean this was put out as a lead cut from uh, Face Value in America above in the air tonight yeah it's more radio friendly mm. it is right, yeah. It? Yeah. yeah Taylor you weren't even persuaded by you know, the proto-industrial grooves of mama <laughs> <laughs> uh, I know what it is with Phil Collins is that he wasn't just a good musician. He had actual imagination and, and feeling in his playing. Even though I don't like Genesis, right? Mm. He was a really good drummer. And if you listen to some of the drumming he did on good records by other people in the 70s, it's great, you know. And he also had pretty good taste in music. And yet what comes out of him is this terrible, gauzy whine, you know. Mm. And it annoyed me because it came across the same way he did, as mm. pinched and unremarkable and hyper-conventional and simultaneously humble and apologetic mm. and sour and grudgeful. It's like this kind of rich little man music, yeah. you know. And it's bloody-mindedly stubborn, in its refusal to venture beyond the crushingly ordinary, you know. And when it does, like on In the Air Tonight, suddenly he sounds talented and the music at least sounds interesting. I mean, is that a better or worse record than Harold the Barrel? You know, or what? But it was his choice to do a kind of pastiche act, and I think that's partly mm. why he rubs people at the wrong way. He made that choice and he didn't have to. Mm. Now... Probably he just heard a lot of this kind of breezy, radio-friendly, sort of quasi-jazz-funk pop on the radio and wanted to make one, you know, which is mm. fair enough. Mm. And, of course, he was deliberately going commercial after 10 years in a prog band, like the London prole reasserting himself as one of the common men after having to sit behind those public school fops for 10 years with their <laughs> songs about sentient aubergines and fantastical <laughs> croquet matches like mm. the streets weren't burning man um <laughs> it might just have been liberating for him to turn on the radio and think you know what i like this stuff and I'm, i know how to do it mm. yeah even before you got to the millions of pounds it could potentially make him but the trouble is although he could do it he didn't really have any flair for it because his problem was he was talented, but it wasn't really a creative talent. He was a drummer. And that's not being schneid. It's just a different kind of musicality. Mm. The fact that he could also sing and play piano and knock a tune together and mm. make it sound technically good, I think fooled him into thinking that he was a creative talent. But mm. no, there's something else you need for that. You can be a really good musician. You can be multi-talented to a very high professional standard with a, a, a real feel for music and great imagination and all that and still be a horribly pedestrian writer and performer. In fact, in, in this case, your horribly pedestrian work will sound so assured and superficially pleasing to the ear. It means it might sell which just makes it worse. Mm. He does that thing in performance as well, repeatedly, of sort of chuckling to himself, <laughs> like with the daftness yeah. of it all. Yeah, so he doesn't take himself too seriously. Yeah. yeah. Al, do you follow him all the way? I mean, is Easy Lover on your radar, Al? Is, is oh, yeah, that's a tune, man. I think that's a fucking great oh, yeah. tune. But that's a Philip Bailey song, not yes. a Philip Collins 
songs. Yeah, that's the yeah, theme. yeah. Even I like but that. But it's one. Phil's drums, and they're great drums. Yeah. Anything else to say about this? It's just the best of what he did sounds better now, right? It mm. sounds sort of competent and yeah. okay. If you can switch off and dream yourself into the aesthetic universe of Grand Theft Auto. Mm, I was just know. about to say Grand Theft yeah, Auto. Yeah, so you, you, you're essentially eating the carton empty. Yeah. But it's easy to forget at the time this was the sound of evil. Yeah. You mm. know. This is the sound of upwardly mobile slime. Yeah. You know, and front lawns being concreted over and filled with pebbles and yeah. turned into driveways for new BMWs with disastrous effects on the local water table yeah. and it was also the sound of adult music like popular big selling music which wasn't specifically aimed at young teenagers mm-hmm. you know it's like every phil collins album should have come with a little sign saying done roaming you know <laughs> hang it on your brain and then it sounds silly to say this now because who cares about phil collins and if you do you know who's got time to hate him mm. but that's because time has drained the poison. So people can mm. listen to this and think, oh, yeah, it's all right. But we should probably remember what it was mm. and what it was used for, you yeah. know. Yeah, and, it, and it's probably good to remember as well that his Motown covers that became big hits are some of the most horrible records of the Fuck 80s. Fucking hell, yeah. They're such defeated and defeating things. Um, that shouldn't be forgotten either. Yeah. Face Value isn't an album I sit around listening to. I suspect it will be soon. I am going to get to it. By the way... Well, you're not getting divorced, are you, Neil? No, no, no. It's just the time I caught up with all those 80s things that I hated at a principle <laughs> and actually hear what they sound like. But um, do not bother, by the way, with the police... <laughs> and I don't mean ever, because some of their songs are pretty good, man. But their albums do not hold up. No. Um, you know, I had memories of, because my sister was really into the police. Um, and I had memories of the album being good. Um, but she's given me all her albums now. And I listened to a police album the other day, and it was shite. So which just one? don't bother. Oh, it's the first one, I think. Is it Outlander's oh. Moor? I can't remember which one it, what it's yeah. called. I think it's just called The Police, isn't it? But, um, no, Outlander's yeah. Moor. Outlander's Moor, yeah, Dreadful best thing they ever did was landlord the b-side of roxanne but um yeah. yeah do not bother with the police too much jokes yeah not enough copeland yeah. that's yeah. like jefferson airplane just don't listen to those albums say <laughs> so what the the thing about phil collins i wish that his pent-up rage and resentment could have been given more voice you know and i don't just mean about his wife i mean it's almost fascinating that it's not just that he was crabby and undignified about his own love life when you look at the rest of his emotional range you know you know that thing a few years ago it came out about how he hates paul mccartney because mm-hmm. he met him and right. felt really patronized yeah yeah and it's understandable because that is what paul mccartney can be like but what a strange thing to even think about if you're phil collins right It's interesting Mm -hmm. because he spotted that about McCartney, which most musicians don't. They're just in awe and Mm -hmm. they let it go. I've seen film of Paul McCartney outrageously patronising Ozzy Osbourne, right? But Ozzy Osbourne is just love struck he doesn't care yeah, yeah you know yeah. whereas yeah. phil noticed it and he really cared and got pissed off about it and got a grudge about it and i don't know what that says about him i just wish there was more of that madness expressed directly in his music you know i would listen to a mystifyingly bitter little twerp like frothing and raging against these smooth expensive backdrops and 
probably like that more, you know, rather than just him melting into the metallic finish, you know. Because I've got to be honest, this song was a hit, and I've heard it a number of times in the past week, and I can't even remember how it goes. <laughs> like, frankly, this whole record, to me, is about as memorable as those parts of the song Living in a Box by Living in a Box that don't go, am I living in a box, am I living in a cardboard box? And if you ask me to hum both those songs to you now, mm. my God, what a mess that would be. Luckily, we've got better things to do. So, the following week, I missed again, dropped three places to number 17. The follow-up, If Leaving Me Is Easy, got to number 17 in June, and he finished the year with the first cut from his next LP, Hello, I Must Be Going, Through These Walls, only getting to number 56 in October. But he'd start 1982 with his cover of You Can't Hurry Love, spending two weeks at number one in January, and he'd coast through the 80s and beyond. Phil Collins and I missed the game. Excellent single there. Well, the band who are going to represent us at Eurovision on April the 4th in Dublin have a name which is made up of simple thing like orange juice and a bit of champagne. Don't let the court go. It's got to be, and good luck to them. Bucks Fizz! Turn to POW, standing twixt two young ladies wearing matching horrible blouses with squiggles on them and see-through visors, holding up bottles and clearly preparing to do a bit. POW tells us that it's Eurovision time once more and explains the name of the group that are going to ride out to Dublin to defend our musical honour by getting one girl to hold up a bottle of orange juice and the other a bottle of champagne. Shame he didn't do the same thing for Candy Flip nine years later, but never mind. <laughs> Here's Bucks Fizz and making your mind up. We've become the definitive podcast authorities on Bucks Fizz since we started our odyssey on chart music, and this is the single that brought them to the dance. They were formed in late 1980 by the composing management in a relationship team of Nicola Martin and Andy Hill, specifically to make a run at the Eurovision Song Contest. And their first pick was Mike Nolan, a singer from the proto-boy band Brooks, who was managed by Freya Miller before she guided Comrade Shakey's March to Glory and originally featured Chris Hamill, who went on to be Lamal. He went off and recorded the demo of the song that they'd already written with Eurovision 81 in mind, this one. With that demo tape nestling snugly in their pocket, they then offered a spot to Cheryl Baker, who had already represented the UK with Coco in 1978, and while she was making her mind up whether to join the band or not, they held an audition for the missing piece of the puzzle, opening it up to men and women with the intention of forming a three-piece with two males and one female, but keeping their options if Baker decided against it. But they found it impossible to turn away the Italia Conti graduate and former Miss Pearlie 1978, Jay Aston. 
The male choice was easy, the theatrical singer Stephen Fisher. But when he landed a part in Godspell at the Young Vic, he had to turn them down, so the spot was offered to a former builder and plumber who had packed it all in to become a pub singer and an understudy for Pontius Pilate in the West End run of Jesus Christ superstar Robert Gubbe, who changed his name to Bobby G. The brand new four-piece immediately signed to RCA and was shoved into Pineapple Studios and put through a two-day dance routine boot camp organised by Chrissy Wickham, the dark-haired one out of hot gossip. And eight days ago, they took part in a song for Europe, not only crushing the favourites Liquid Gold and Unite, a six-girl band which featured Kathy Hargreaves out of Grangeill under their heels, but also battering Andy Hill's own band, Gem. RCA rushed out the single by the end of the week and they were instantly adopted by the BBC and flung into a whirlwind of promotional appearances and although the single hasn't charted yet, the BBC looks after its own. So, a full 16 days before they sally forth to Dublin to take on Bjorn Bingabonger and his European ilk, <laughs> here they are for their first ever Top of the Pops performance. Yes, Jay Aston, Miss Pearly, 1978, chaps. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I watched Miss England, 1978, just the other day, in fact. Of course you did, Taylor. Two worlds <laughs> collide. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Cheryl appears as part of Coco, who yeah. are there as the failed British entry in the 1978 Eurovision Song Contest, mm. dressed as a pride float from the planet Mongo. <laughs> And Jay is there as a failed contestant. Yes, Miss yeah. Pearly, no She less. didn't get past the uh, the first bit, so we don't see her in a bikini. No, what we do get... Um, look, it's basically, this is one of the great horrible beauty contests. It's hosted <laughs> by Terry Wogan. You're a connoisseur of them, aren't you, Taylor? So you know what you're talking about. I really do. It's terrible. <laughs> um, hosted by Terry Wogan in a frilled green shirt that looks like a mint Vionetta. Um, with his Radio 2 piss mop Ray Moore as the voiceover man, <laughs> which allows yes. Terry to skip those awkward scenes where usually the presenter has to interview the girls with a hand mic, you know, and it's mm. like, well, I have to ask, please, can I just touch you um so instead what happens is they walk down the catwalk while ray off screen makes remarks about them into a microphone <laughs> it's fucking awful he says things like susan cockett 20 years old and has in fact been involved in the national child development survey since birth developed rather well i'd have thought oh, no. oh yeah <laughs> fixed smile from susan cockett um oh. or, or things like beverly isherwood miss blackburn her great passion in life is watching golf and a pretty attractive birdie she is herself oh, too. No, he man. says it he really does say that <laughs> this was actually fit for broadcast oh yeah janet morris miss scunthorpe a great musician very fond of playing the piano Terry was telling me she's got a lovely touch. Oh <laughs> it's a, a bit disturbing how many of his jokes are about the contestants supposedly having sex with Terry Wogan. Mm. But his comments on Jay Aston are oh, yes. probably the worst of all of them. Um, she comes out in a frock uh, and he says, a rather interesting girl, very keen on weight training. 
and she picked up a train to get here tonight. Now, I don't know if he meant to say she caught a train, yeah. which would make more sense as a joke, right? She's into weight training. She's very strong. She caught a train, right? Mm. I don't know. But unfortunately, what he actually said, he might as well have said she pulled a train to get on this program tonight. Which is a really unkind suggestion. Poor Jay. Poor Jay. I know. I mean, we see her at the beginning because all the, the girls get to introduce themselves. I was appalled to see Miss Nottingham fucking it up. Oh, really? I, I didn't... I didn't... Look, I, I don't want to fall into the trap of being an ersatz Ray Moore here. Miss Nottingham couldn't even say Miss Nottingham. No, but... She was the only busty lady in the whole competition. Right. And I can't say I noticed, Taylor. I, I know. So. Well, you wouldn't, you see. You're not a connoisseur of these things. But <laughs> you don't get a lot of busty women in beauty contests of the old mm. school, right? So I was just sort of thinking, well, good for her. She didn't let that hold her back. <laughs> and in case you're interested, um, it's finally won by Miss Blackburn, Beverly Isherwood. Um, oh. Largely, I think, for a, a storming go in the round where the uh, finalists get interviewed by Esther Ranson. Um, oh, God, yeah. Yeah, as the, to, to see what their personalities are like. Esther comes on and grills them. <laughs> and to be fair, Beverly Isherwood, Miss Blackburn, does actually have a personality, so she wins. Good. Beverly Isherwood, best unknown as the original projected letters girl on Countdown. Um, really? Yes, until the producers decided that having a dolly dealer for the numbers mm. and a different one for the letters was mm. just uh, overkill. So they axed <laughs> her. Uh, not literally, as far as I know, mm. much to Ray Moore's chagrin, but uh, <laughs> unceremoniously. But anyway, this song, I mean, there's absolutely no point in talking about the song or the routine because if you're listening to chart music, you know every fucking millisecond of it but i've got to say that when i approached this song with fresh eyes it just immediately hit me it's a it's another fucking rock and roll song isn't it oh yeah yeah i mean you can easily imagine racy doing this with a bit more piano and a bit more drum yeah and they could even bring a girl on so uh, yeah. mr racy could rip her skirt off <laughs> this could perfectly accompany to be honest with you danny and sandy on the shaken shack i mean it, mm. it, it's got that grease soundtrack feel to it yeah and there's even more hand jiving going on fucking hell <laughs> But this record's very important to me. I mean, this was my Falklands, this record. <laughs> um, it really was. I absolutely loved this when it came out. Mm. Extremely catchy. Great gimmicks. Gorgeous people. Perfect facial expressions. Great production. It felt like an inevitable winner. We were in that period. I mean, yeah. England goes through that period of caring about the Eurovision and then, you know, not caring because actually we're good mm. at music and we don't need to win it. But I, th I think by 81, we were a bit pissed off we hadn't won it for a while. So oh, five whole years, Neil. That's a drought, indeed, isn't it? Indeed. So we we all thought, come on, it's a great song. It's got to win. And, you know, books visit make better records, I think. London Maple Leaf, mm. now those days are gone. And they'd find themselves, like Dollar, really, curiously adjacent to, to New Pop. But I think this is, yeah, it's, got, it's their most irresistible moment. Mm. It's sort of clever enough not to just be totally dismissible as cheese, but it is dumb enough to get in your head on first exposure. Yeah. And I did like, and I do think, um, I'm not totally barking up the wrong tree. As a kid, I thought the lyrics were kind of half a love song and half like at the judges, right. you know, because there's all this stuff about making your mind up and going for mm. the right choice. And it does feel it's got that, that meta-ness. So, yeah, this was the best moment to be English since the, the 66 cup final, really. Yeah. I the lyrics always confuse me a bit mm. because what do you really have to speed up and then really have to slow down? <laughs> mm. I've lost value 
valuable time mm. pondering this, like in fear of having something important in my life running at the wrong speed, which is mm. something I've long suspected to be the case. <laughs> Possibly oral sex. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I'll trust Bobby G on that. But <laughs> I've also lost even more valuable time pondering on the exact meaning of the line, don't let your indecision mm. take you from behind. Mm. Because if we really have to anthropomorphize individual character traits in this way, I'm not sure that's the kind of behavior you'd associate with indecision. <laughs> no. <laughs> Taking you from behind, like especially against your will, mm. seems a bit assertive to me. Yeah, it's quite decisive, mm. isn't it, really? Yeah. I mean, the only scenario I can imagine is that indecision had already come round the front of you and then decided to go around the back, mm. and then it came back round the front again, and you were like, come on, this is ridiculous. Yeah. I can't have this. A sort of pincer movement. Yeah, <laughs> to the point where eventually you got so pissed off with it, indecision went storming out of the bedroom in tears, just screaming at you, look, I'm sorry, but if I wasn't like this, I wouldn't be indecision. Mm. And if you don't like it, why did you fucking marry me and out the door it's the kind of terrible emotional scene that people like bucks fizz just don't think about mm. no. when they come swanning in mm. telling everyone what they can and can't do it's terrible they ought to stick to what they're good at which yeah. is cybernetics uh blow football and necromancy mm. um it's, do you know what I mean? It, it's like a, supposed to be a really simple song. Like they're all there dressed like two-year-olds, you know, in like mm. washing powder advert colours. Mm. But the lyrics to this song would bamboozle Ted Rogers, <laughs> <laughs> master of the opaque verse. Mm. <laughs> you can imagine it. Like, so you've chosen the ripped-off knee-length skirt that was brought in by <laughs> Cheryl from Buck's Fizz. You're standing there reading off the card. You put your rubbish in this cylindrical tub. You drive this down the road. It's two weeks holiday in Marbella and an 18-piece set of stainless steel steak knives worth nearly £200. Now, what do you think that might be? Remember, you've already rejected Dusty Bin. You don't have to worry about that. You've rejected the car. You've rejected a holiday in Marbella, and you've rejected an 18-piece set of stainless steel steak knives worth nearly £200. Now, I think, in general, lyrically, uh, it's an answer song to Shop Around by Smokey Robinson, Ooh. isn't it? Don't you think? The, if the, the, the answer song, if the question posed by Shop Around had been, can you write a song that's nowhere near as good as this? And then <laughs> sing it with about as much guts and aggression as if you were trying to stop a child crying. Um, <laughs> the answer to Smokey's question is a resounding yes. <laughs> See, what we didn't realise at the time was how much it had fuck up Eurovision chances for a good decade afterwards, you know. Mm. But I usually remember the tension of the night itself. Oh, we'll come to that later, mm. Neil. Mm. But, but yeah, you're right, man. I mean, th this is an updated brotherhood of man who actually look like they might be in their 20s. <laughs> one perky blonde, one saucy blonde, two men with lady dye hair. Come on, Europe, refuse that, you bastards. <laughs> But it's got to be said that not everyone is raving about the hot new sound of Bugs Fizz because in a review of the Song for Europe contest in the Daily Mirror, Hillary Kingsley did to write the following. 
We didn't need the viewing panels to tell us that the number nearest to the winning Eurovision thump-a-thump formula was making your mind up, performed by a set of ABBA lookalikes called Bucks Fizz. (laughs) The song involved much bottom wiggling and grinning, (laughs) with the two girls losing their swirling skirts to reveal swirling minis underneath. There was also a bit of jiving, which must have gone down well in old folks' homes everywhere. I hate to sound unpatriotic, but I hope the Continental Singers provide something better. Otherwise, the Eurovision Song Contest won't be worth the trouble. Typical Ramona. Yeah. Traitor. Yeah. Traitor. So, the Eurovision Song Contest. I mean, there are very real fears at the moment as this episode's going out, chaps, that it's going to be disrupted by the National H Block Committee, who will be forming a picket line, which is going to be mm. very uncomfortable for one of the members of Sheba Island's entry this year, whose brother is actually in the maze prison at the moment. But, <sighs> yeah. But it raises the very real possibility of a dirty protest while Bugs Viz are on. <laughs> <laughs> Is that necessary? Thankfully, though, they kept the protest outside the hall and uh, we were treated to what I thought was a very disco-centric Eurovision, don't you think? You know, a good three years after the event. Yeah, that's the way it goes, isn't it? Mm. I mean, because the Eurovision Song Contest, I mean, I'm 12 years old and I I should have no time by now, but I remember it very clearly. I remember being absolutely Mm. fucking cock-a-hoop when we won because, you know, I'm English. I'd seen England fail. Yeah. So many times since 1976 yeah. that I'd given up on the football side of things. Eurovision was my one chance to see Britain winning something. Yeah, it was an amazing night. Mm. Yeah, well, if you want your memory refreshed, in the interests of interest, I watched the 1981 Eurovision <laughs> Song Contest <laughs> when I could Hell, have been Come on, wanking. Taylor, give it, man. Hosted by Ireland this year, as mm. Terry Wogan says, because of Johnny Logan's victory at The Hague. I knew those charges would never stick. Um, So here we are, back in the good old days of Ireland when priests were just allowed to randomly kick you in the bollocks. Um, There wasn't enough electricity to go around. Um, Red lemonade and chocolate with bits of crisps in it. This is my understanding. Um, And the entries in capsule form read verbatim from my scribbled notes um, as quickly as possible. Austria, Wenn du da bist, by Marty Brem. Generic Euro ballad sung by white-suited Tucker Carlson bloke with backing vocals by a beautiful young woman in leotard, pop socks and an American football helmet. They must have their reasons. Turkey, Don Mi Dolap, by the modern folk trio. Since there are four of them, their name is inaccurate on three separate counts. (laughs) Lead singer described by Terry as a very pretty girl. Germany, Johnny Blue, by Lena Valaitis, Olivia Newtoff John. Described by <laughs> Terry as a very attractive performer. Mm. She's Lithuanian. She weren't German. Sorry, I just thought I'd insert that there. Sorry, is that a fact? Yeah, it is a fact. She was Lithuanian. She wasn't German. Yeah, there's a couple oh. there who, who invented a ringer, as we shall see. Mm. Luxembourg. C'est peut-être pas l'Amérique. By Jean-Claude Pascal, who apparently lacks the certainty of David Bowie. Uh, this song, <laughs> sung by a teak-faced, bucket-voiced 60-year-old crooner, has everything you associate with Luxembourg. Mm. Israel, Halila, 
by Habibi, spelt with a L-A-Y-L-A, so this halfway passable showbiz disco number becomes the best song ever written with a title spelt like that. <laughs> Lead singer introduced by Terry as Schlomit, who's an attractive girl. <laughs> Denmark, Crawler Ella A by Tommy Seaback and Debbie Cameron. Tonight's only multiracial act, Ooh. inevitably singing about the fact that they are a multiracial act. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Lady done up as a 1920s flapper and bloke done up as a prick. <laughs> Yugoslavia, Layla by Said Memic Vaita. Again. The long suspected transitional form between Demis Roussos and Dr. Hook. <laughs> spelt L E I L A, but pronounced Layla. So this undistinguished nug of nothing becomes the best song ever written with a title pronounced like that. <laughs> Finland, Reggae OK oh, by Ricky yes. Saucer. The Iroy to Paul Nicholas's Uroy, dressed in a rhubarb and custard-coloured harlequin outfit with a footballer's haircut. Author of the book Sipple Out Dare, an illustrated history of South Ostrobothnia. Uh, music for this one written by Jim Pembroke, British leader of Finnish prog rock band Wigwam. Oh. And the song that brought the accordion into the reggae sphere. Indeed. France, Humana Hum by Jean Gabelou, from the people Orson Welles would call the French. (laughs) As though in a deliberate attempt to bust stereotypes and defy preconceptions, France's entry this year is an arrogant-looking man in an open-neck suit growling a histrionic ballad into a ham mic. (sighs) Spain, Isolo Tu by Bacchelli, another ring. This man is Italian, even though he looks like he should be a bloke called Mike from Swansea. (laughs) Should be disqualified for fielding an ineligible player and also for wearing a white double-breasted jacket with grey slacks. Spain's selection of this song proves that they were still only just getting to grips with democracy. (laughs) (laughs) Netherlands, Het is in wonder by Linda Williams. This is what a really big fan of the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band thinks ABBA sound like. (laughs) And considering they've stolen the synth sound and some of the notes, in one sense they'd be right. Linda Williams, introduced by Terry as a charming lady married with two children. Mm. Ireland, horoscopes by Sheba, as seen on the BBC Summertime special, as mentioned by me, what feels like a week ago. (laughs) A spirited condemnation of astrology astrology which goes it's crazy crazy don't let the planets take control of our lives believe in the truth and not celestial lies which i would applaud were it not for the suspicion that this is not actually a skeptics anthem and by the truth they mean christianity and Mm. specifically roman catholicism Uh, throw away almanacs signs of the zodiac when there is sense to be found they are celestial we are terrestrial let's keep our feet on the ground described by terry as three attractive irish girls very charming very pretty (laughs) norway aldri e levite by finn calvick incomprehensible attempt to be charming by a clean-shaven kenny burns in the voting (laughs) 
becomes the definitive nil point, the OG, mm, if right, you yeah. will. No, mate, there were loads of nil pointers in the 50s and 60s in Europe. Oh, really? But in 1970, they changed the uh, the way they voted, and there was a drought of nil point until 1978, Jan Tegen, Mil et Mil. You, you know that one, surely. And which one was that? He looks a bit like Iggy Pop nowadays, and he's dressed like XTC's dad, and he's doing his bit and everything, and then all of a sudden he just goes, <laughs> meal at a meal. <coughs> <laughs> but no, carry on. Sorry to interrupt. United Kingdom, making your mind up by yes. Bucks Come Fizz. on, go on. Introduced by Terry, an Irishman, sat in Ireland, observing a contest in which Ireland are taking part mm. against the United Kingdom as the song we've been waiting for. Mm. Yeah. Here they are, flying the flag. Truly a band to put the great back into Great Britain is a bit tatty. Oh. Jay's high harmony shredded by the demands of the dance routine and manic grin. They fucked up, didn't they? Yeah, it sounds fucking horrible. Oh, yeah, it's breathless, isn't it? Wasn't Cheryl singing in a key too high and the lead mics were given to the wrong people? Oh. Yeah, it was a, it was a bit of a balls up. A bit of a Gemini. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, no harm done. Best bit is when the men rip the ladies' clothes off. Um, Mm. Almost done, not long to go now. Portugal, playback by Carlos Piau. Oh, yes. It looks like if Bruno Fernandes had a little brother who resented Bruno getting all the attention. (laughs) So he's got a blue plastic anorak, stick on dicky bow, backing band dressed as Ludo counters. They're well chock-a-block, aren't they? Yeah, but this is probably my favourite of all these songs, just because practically the whole thing is on one note which in the context of Eurovision sounds stylistically outrageous. But if you put it in the open air, it'd die like a fish. Belgium, Samson by Emily Starr, song described by Terry as one of their strongest, I think, for some time. And I think it can fairly be described as one of the strongest Belgian entries to the Eurovision Song Contest in one particular time period, according to one man's subjective opinion. Um, Lead singer described by Terry as best legs in the contest. Uh, Home straight. Greece, Figari Calacarino by Yanis Dimitras, bearded youngish man singing all around a female pianist described by Terry as 18 years of age. Like a music teacher, a little bit too fond of his star pupil, who mm. may or may not be blind like Lionel Richie's was because she doesn't seem to notice him or look at him at any point, <laughs> despite the fact that he's inhaling her. Um, <laughs> Cyprus, Monica by Island, six people dressed in outfits it's based around the colours grey, indigo, lilac, pink and aubergine sort of a song Switzerland Io Sensate by Peter Sue and Mark mustachioed sing-along with a guitarist who looks like he's on trial for his life and a balding man playing pan pipes in white shoes with a bit of a heel and finally Sweden Fangad E and Drom by Bjorn Skiffs lads face it the glory days aren't coming back but the Swedes staying true to their reputation as one of the more tuned in musical nations in Europe because unlike most of the entries this does at least sound like some 
some utter shit from 1981. Right. <laughs> and then Planksty come on and play an Irish reel. Reels being something I find about as welcoming music as on Facebook. So <laughs> I fast forwarded to the voting, which mm. as ever is some of the most austere ritualistic television ever broadcast yes. at weekend prime time. I fucking love it. Yeah, although the actual race is pretty exciting in this one. Mm. But of course, in the end, just like in two world wars, one World Cup and so many swimming, ice dancing and short and middle distance running events of the <laughs> 1980s. God's will prevails, yes. as usual, after a dogfight with the Swiss. Um, and slick old broadcasting dog Terry talks right over the moment when Bucks Fizz reach the number of points they need mm. and actually win it, completely spoiling the drama. Yeah. And at this point, he still sounds sober, so he's got no excuse. <laughs> <laughs> I seem to recall the last vote's quite shocking, isn't it? Because it, it hinges on it. It's like Switzerland yeah. give Germany zero and they give us eight in the penultimate vote. Yeah, yeah. And that's what swings it, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. ungrateful, that, I thought. Those Swiss bear a grudge, man, <laughs> or something. <laughs> Where's that famous neutrality? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah. yeah it, was, it was a very tense night. Yeah, they should have given 12 points to everyone <laughs> Switzerland should have done. <laughs> so, yes, the golden year of Bucks Fizz. But let's not forget, chaps, that with success comes problems, as they're going to soon discover. Article in the state from a few weeks from now Bucks Fizz this year's Eurovision winners can look forward to a date list which includes engagements at the London Palladium Bailey's Club Watford and the Night Out Birmingham hey. but the group's formation means that there are now two Bucks Fizz acts working the circuit the other Bucks Fizz comprises three Cambridge graduates who perform a camp Noel Coward style show and are managed by Stephen Hayter, owner of London's Embassy Club. They were formed 18 months ago, but the Eurovision lineup founded earlier this year has already registered the name. So fuck off, David Van Day. <laughs> Hayter claimed he was not worried. Our group cannot say hello in three languages, and we have no intention of teaching. Teaching them, he commented. Well, they must be right, thick bunch of cunts. <laughs> I can fucking do that. Yeah, it's more than three languages where it's just hello. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but sadly for Taylor and his ilk, the gig at the night out didn't happen because they had to pull out to make a Top of the Pops appearance. So they were replaced by... The Brotherhood of Man. Oh, fuck Ooh. me. That's, that's sad. So, yeah, to be fair, the, the pioneers, the first of the shabbers. Mm. <laughs> they must be, right? Because people think of Buck's Fizz as being a, a, a shabber, but there was a lot of it about at this time, wasn't there? The Doolies oh, yes. had gone shabber. Mm-hmm. Um, tight Fit were about to come roaring in with Fantasy Island. Guys and Dolls. Guys and Dolls. After Barry and Yvonne left. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But more disturbingly, chaps, is this other article in the stage from September. Headline, Bucks Fizz Con Man Escapes with Cash. <gasps> Police are looking for a blonde con man who escaped with cash from two... <laughs> I know who you're thinking of immediately. <laughs> who escaped with cash from two theatre box offices by passing himself off as a well-known pop singer. <laughs> the cheeky imposter claimed that he was Mike Nolan of Bucks Fizz and oh. even came equipped with a stack of records by the group. <laughs> Small sums of money, 
£50 in one case, £18 in another, went missing from two Blackpool theatres shortly after his visit. In both cases, he gained admittance to the box office by saying that he wanted to telephone the theatre manager and discuss the possibility of Bucks Fizz staging a charity concert. And police are warning that he could strike again. So, touch one eye, touch other eye keep them peeled <laughs> last scene speeding away in a burger van yes <laughs> so books fizz well on their way to success and glory and you know already if you want a measure of how well this song's going to do i remember it already being parodied in the playground as you gotta shove it up <laughs> and then you gotta twist it round <laughs> uh-huh. It's a nailed uncertainty, man. Straight to the bookmakers, everyone. Oh, yeah. Sealer quality, that, isn't it? I mean, I, I seem mm. to recall similar things. Yeah, I mean, there, there was not an inevitability about it, their success. It could have just... They could have just disappeared, didn't they? But, I mean... Oh, yeah, definitely, yeah. Given the songs that they were given, they were all right. I mean, what's love got to do with it was initially offered to Bucks Fizz, wasn't it? Um, God, rec- yeah. Recorded a demo. I don't think it actually appeared on an album, did it? But um, No. Yeah. You've really got to twist it round. Yeah, I know. Is, that, I know. is this like, it's quite sort of forward thinking because it's really, it, it centres uh, sex toy use. Yes, than, predates uh, the rabbit. Yeah, rather than PIV there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I've got to ask, how do you think making your mind up would have got on in this year's Eurovision, chaps? Oh. Yeah. It's a very catchy number, man. It is. I, I think it's it's ageless, and it would have done pretty damn good. Mm. Um, they are for white heterosexual uh, women and men, so that might have counted against them. But um, you know, because it's not really the Eurovision Song Contest anymore, is it? It's a Eurovision Emotional Gut Punch Contest. Yeah, and I fear that the song and the routine wouldn't have cut it. Uh. Yeah. You know what I mean? I think if Bucksmiths were doing it in the last Eurovision Song Contest, it would have to involve Cheryl and Jay ripping off Mike and Bobby's trousers and they waving their penises about because that would pass muster with the woke snowflakes of today. <laughs> what, with the Ukrainian flag painted on their balls or yes. something? Yeah. Yes, yeah. definitely, yeah. 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 Or they, <laughs> yeah. they could have had uh, leotards made up for the girls with pictures of viscera on it and worn that mm. under their clothes so they could do that line and if you want to see even more and rip the front off them so it all looked like organs and a rib cage and stuff mm. that would have worked quite well or they could have hired smaller versions of cheryl baker and jay aston and then mm. when it got to that bit rip their whole bodies away to reveal the miniature versions inside so yeah. if you want to see some less <laughs> <laughs> did you watch it this year no no, no i don't bother anymore because it's all too knowing it's all too winky nudge i mean the fact that it's become gay christmas is fucking brilliant but i miss the seriousness of it you know what i mean yeah, yeah. it's not for us anymore no. basically yeah, which is fine oh, yeah, yeah yeah i mean i'm guessing that previous on chart music we've we've acknowledged cheryl baker's huge part in kickstarting Britpop. what well you know blur's first tv appearance go on it was doing there's no other way on sunday morning cooking show eggs and baker really um, right yeah a key moment in the Britpop history which is unacknowledged so thank you cheryl it would have been funny if jay had had a program where she'd had been the first people to put oasis on tv yeah <laughs> it could have been set in spain called aston's villa 
<laughs> yeah, let's not go there. Shit on the villa, man. So the following week, making your mind up, smashed into the charts at 24, then soared 19 places to number five. On the verge of the contest, it tucked in at number two. And after edging out West Germany by four points to win Eurovision for the UK for the first time since 1976, it deposed Comrade Shaker and stayed at number one for three weeks, giving way to stand and deliver by Adam and the Ants. It's also got to number one in Austria, Belgium, Denmark, Ireland, Israel and the Netherlands, selling over four million copies worldwide and finishing the year as the seventh biggest selling single of 1981. It's also spawned not one but three immediate cover versions, Mima Valver Loco by Parachis, the mini-pops of Barcelona, My Rock and Roll Cowboy by Maggie May, the Deirdre Barlow of German Schlager who was known as the Mad Hen, and It's Only a Wind-Up by Brown Ale, a collective led by Stephanie De Sykes, ooh, Stephanie De Sykes, <laughs> who refused permission to release it by the co-owner of the publishing writes Billy Lorre, Lulu, us, brother. <laughs> the follow-up, Piece of the Action, got to number 12 in June, and one of those nights only got to number 20 for two weeks in September, but in November they closed out the year by releasing Land of Make Believe, which took eight weeks to nimbly scale the charts, and got to number one for two weeks in January of 1982, while the group was still on £30 a week, their weekly stipend from the record company, until the royalties started to kick in. But they did receive an estimated 1,000 bottles of champagne during their many personal appearances, and a car dealer gave them a mini Metro each. (laughs) (laughs) Stephen Fisher, the Pete Best of Bucks Fizz finally got his place in the sun when he teamed up with his girlfriend Sally Ann Triplett as Bardo, who represented the UK in the 1982 Eurovision Song Contest and took their song one step further to number two. And 17 years later, when the eggs laid by the parasitic wasp of Bucks Fizz began to hatch, Bucks Fizz not yet David Van Day's Bucks Fizz, released Making Your Mind Up 98, featuring Van Day, Mike Nolan and some birds. But despite the Europop update, Paul Lavers appearing in the video <laughs> and a bit where the girls ripped open their tops to reveal their wonder brought up jubblage, it only got to number 84 in May of that year. According to Van Day in that incredible Trouble at the Top episode, quote... Although we didn't do the skirt ripping routine, we did this 90s thing. I felt we were in the boob age. We came up with this idea where the girls would rip their tops off and they would have skimpy bras on underneath, and I thought it was a nice thing to move it on. Mm. I mean, at least the girls did the Velcro ripping bit themselves, which is extremely feminist of David Van Day. Yeah. It's such a fantastic thing, that isn't it? That that trouble mm. at the top thing. Oh my yeah, god! We've got to cover it one day in <laughs> full. Obviously, it's very difficult to like David Van Day, but how mm. dull would Pop be without him? Yes, and without moments yeah. like that, and without the coach trip bit. You know, he's got. Oh, be that was glorious! That was amazing. People were moaning on in the, the last Eurovision that Sonia pitched up to make a special appearance, and it's like, no, 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 no. Hang on a minute. Say what you like for Sonia. You go and look at her. 
battling with David Van Day in that mm. reborn in the USA, and then come back to me, and then go and apologise to Sonia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. she's fucking brilliant. In she, that. She, yeah, really upped her in my estimation. That yeah, definitely. And before we go, chaps, I do need to ask. How did you feel when you found out the other week about the announcement of Teresa Bazaar's dollar? <laughs> did you punch the air like I did? Yes. <laughs> yes. yes, I did. Especially when you found out that she'd actually got an ex-member of the Fizz in to replace <laughs> David Van Day. Oh, my God. Oh, man. <laughs> uh, if she'd have got Bobby G and I think the universe would have collapsed yeah. in on itself. It would have just would have been a perfect end to human existence. <laughs> British entry for Eurovision, Max Spears are making your mind up. Good luck to them. Okay, their number one in Germany at the moment is Fate of Grey, which is a single released before this in Britain. It's Visage, a mind of a toy. Clutching straws, sinking slow, nothing lasts, nothing lasts. As Pal, off-camera, wishes Bucks Fizz the best of British, we're immediately catapulted into the glossy futurescape of now as he introduces us to the current occupants of the very summit of Poppenberg, Visage with Mind of a Toy. Born in Newbridge, Caffilly, in 1959, Stephen Harrington was the son of a former paratrooper-turned-seaside cafe mogul who spent his teenage years as a Bowie youth and Northern Soul disciple who caught on to punk very early due to his many weekend visits to London and first came to public attention when his photo appeared in the Western Mail with the headline, Wales's First Punk. After seeing the Sex Pistols at their gig in Cafile, which resulted in every pub in the area being boarded up and local religious nutters holding a protest in the car park, Harrington, who was now calling himself Steve Strange, linked up with Glenn Matlock for a drink afterwards, which would have long-term implications. That Pistols gig inspired Strange to start organising punk gigs in Wales, where he got to know Billy Idol and Jean-Jacques Burnell, which inspired him to relocate to London in 1977. Desperate to get in on the music scene, he was roped into an extremely loose collective involving Sue Catwoman, Topper Hedden and Chrissy Hind, which immediately made a splash in the tabloids. Article in the Sunday Mirror dated January the 8th, 1978. Why must they be so cruel? <laughs> a new rock group called the Moors Murderers have recorded a number called Free Myra Hindley. <laughs> The disc is a plea by the members of the band for the release of the infamous murderess. The man behind the record is Dave Goodman, who claims to have produced records for the Sex Pistols. The lead singer and guitarist calls himself Steve Brader. <laughs> After Ian Brader, Myra Hindley's lover and accomplice in the horrific Morse killings, the group refused to be photographed unless their faces are masked with hoods or plastic bags. Leader Brady said last night, the least a criminal sentence to life can expect is consideration for parole. Tut, tut, tut. Did somebody interview them and say, uh, so, do you really mean this, or is it just a publicity stunt? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Although the single was never released, the experience scared him off a music career for a bit, although he did fill in as a frontman of a Liverpool band called The Photons. But when Matlock's new band, The Rich Kids, got a record deal, he started working in their London office, where he teamed up with the band's drummer, Rusty Egan, to start up an assortment of Bowie and Roxy music nights at a club called Soho called Billy's in mid-1978. With Strange working the door to keep people who weren't getting into the dress-up spirit away and Egan on the decks. By early 1979, the club nights were becoming so successful that Strange was offered a residency at the Blitz Club in Covent Garden, which was located between two major art colleges and became a magnet for young designers and the future peacocks of pop, including Boy George, Marilyn, AZ Fantasia, Spandau Ballet and Martin Degville, to name but a few. While the club harvested a swathe of media attention, particularly when it was reported that Strange had barred Mick Jagger out due to the place being rammed out, Strange was approached by Midjour, keyboard player of the rich kids, who told him that the band were on the verge of splitting up due to musical differences, EMI owed him a watch of studio time, and he wanted to try something new and electronic. He invited him and Egan to work on a demo together which resulted in Visage, and the single Tar, which was put out on Radar Records in 1979, but failed to chart. Undeterred, the trio pulled in Billy Curry of Ultravox, who would invite her to replace John Fox as the frontman of the band very soon after, and John McGeoch, Dave Formula and Barry Adamson of Magazine. They set to work recording an LP with Martin Russian, but their new label Polydor didn't know what to make of it and left it on the shelf for six months, eventually putting it out in November of 1980, along with the lead-off single Fade to Grey. It took a month for it to enter the chart at number 68, but with the help of a video directed by Godly and Cream, it began a seven-week cruise all the way up to number eight over here last month and number one in Switzerland and West Germany at the moment. With Fade to Grey still in the charts at number 40, this follow-up immediately became a new entry at number 32, and this week it's gone up eight places to number 24. So here is the video, once again directed by Godly and Cream, and fucking yes! Finally, 1981 is here, and finally Steve Strange comes into play. Mm. It actually feels like the first time in the episode yeah. where we're witnessing something that, that could not have happened in the 70s. Exactly. And it also feels like the diametric opposite of Phil Collins. Very much so. I like this song a lot. Mm. It's probably my second favourite visage after Night Train and just better for me than, than Fate to Grey. Mm. It's an interesting time, this, because I don't think music journalists as yet in early 81 are, are so convinced of new pop let alone the futurists or the new romantics mm. that they're bold enough to say it's okay for Steve Strange to kind of look amazing and be incredibly stylish every interview I've read in 80 and 81 he's having to fend off these very sort of rockist questions about superficiality about not having mm. any substance to it um, yeah. you know it's very much still assumed that if you self-create yourself in fashion or style there's got to be this hollowness inside mm. whereas um, you know I would argue quite the opposite. Yeah. And you know, actually, there's just as much pop artifice in Phil Collins' dressed downness as there is in Strangers' dressed upness. Mm. Um, but the cut of his jib, man, watching this, 
um, age day watching this amazing video and, and yeah. don't forget it also it also needs remembering the retrospective um, way people look at times as if like everyone knew what the new romantics were or, if it, or it existed it might have done in London mm. out in the sticks new romantic was just one lyric in a, in a Duran Duran song to be honest mm. with you you know I mean they did get a lot of tabloid attention yeah, so but, it was known about but you didn't see any in the street no you certainly didn't see any at school no no, I mean, this is this weird in-between period, really, where, where we find this visage video. It's in between the release of Fata Grey and basically Spandau and Duran are going to eventually have a, a victory in this entire sphere, really. They're going to win. Mm. But what's really noticeable at this time when New Romantic, like I said, it hadn't really been coined for most of us. What was thrilling about Visage as a little kid was that even... I mean, you'd been aware of Kraftwerk, maybe, but, you know, you could not mm. visualise how this music was being made. Even with Human League, mm. you could see guys, the boring-looking guys, in the background doing stuff. But whenever you caught Visage on the telly, it was always a video... Or just strange, just, you know, Steve, basically. So you had to kind of mm. imagine the making of this music. So so that, that helped. And this video is fucking fantastic. Yeah, a proper music video. You know, none of the band pretending to play a gig or the band having fun in the studio bollocks here. This is pure concept. And the kind of poncing about that's going to set the playground ablaze tomorrow morning. Yeah, yeah. Because Visage are pretty much the first band of the era who bring out a new video rather than a new single. Yeah. the early 80s wasn't all fun and games no i really would like to like this but to me it's like if you took the early 80s ground them down into meal fed it to a diseased hog waited for it to pass through his polyp ridden digestive system (laughs) and then when it emerged froze that liquid shit into the shape of a giant hammer and then a dull bewildered farmhand walked by picked up the frozen pig shit hammer and smashed you in the temple with it. This is that intense level of early 80s-ness that you see in old episodes of Riverside. Oh, yes. The BBC Youth magazine show of the time, of which no caricature is possible because the early 80s are already being pushed to the absolute conceptual limit of early 80s-ness and satire expires in the resulting vacuum. Mm. I mean, if this track had a composer credit of Curtis Goodall, it wouldn't look any different and it would only sound better. Possibly a niche reference there, but fuck it. Let's use what freedoms we have remaining. And I just, I can't help thinking for all the great things about punk and post-punk, this is what happens when deeply untalented people are given the means to express themselves. Mm. You know, it's better than nothing, but it's worse than anything good. Mm. You know, Midgeur and Rusty Egan, the swan's legs thrashing away beneath the still water here. <laughs> I mean, fuck it now. I just can't go with it. He looks like, you know, the supposedly cursed painting of the crying boy. Mm. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and in fact... Everyone who bought a copy of Mind of a Toy by Visage did soon find their house burning down (laughs) and in the charred ruins right there in the middle of what used to be the front room, they found the seven inch of this record completely (laughs) untouched by the fire. But there was nothing supernatural about it. Um, It turned out those fires were started by uh, music lovers. So (laughs) fair's fair. And the reason the record didn't burn is is that it was shit. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> All of that just sounds great, though, to me. 
the 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 pig shit hammer etc yeah as jimmy tarbuck would say we, we've got a difference of opinion here we're, we're going to have to agree to disagree <laughs> but i know it sounds great to me too that's what annoys me about this record mm. i should be enjoying it um yeah i should yeah, certainly yeah, yeah. be enjoying the video and I do think it's a mostly positive mark of the time that although these people must, at some level, be at least peripherally aware of their own mediocrity, they still dress up this way and they still call themselves, you know, Ian Interesting and construct a... a, a <laughs> Ian f- Interesting? I'd buy his records. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's a fantasy self, however second hand it looks because the notion still prevails that pop stars should be something other than ordinary and if Mm. you can't achieve that naturally you should force it which is the complete opposite of what it's like now obviously where being an identical middle-class kid in a jumper is a selling point because now it's a desperate market and so Mm. the trick is not to alienate anyone yeah and so this is a lot better than that because at least it's funny Mm. and at least it's umbilically connected to something which was sort of kind of countercultural, right but the trouble is it's one thing to say that pop is better when it's a bit silly and overdressed and a bit preposterous and that's usually true but mm. i just think if a record is in my subjective opinion as crappy as this one it breaks the spell and suddenly you're just looking at some bloke standing there in makeup thick enough to stop a bullet uh, dressed like Adrian Headley and you know he neither looks good enough to legitimise that or surprising or weird enough to make looking good irrelevant and that's the fine line between glorious and ludicrous but you're kind of witnessing this in isolation when you say that I mean in the context of this episode it's a moment I mean there's this sense yeah, you get it is. when you read in the press about strange uh, you know early 80s stuff it's kind of it's a very London based press and consequently they see him as running this club night this new movement uh, uh, yeah. you know out here in the sticks of course you know especially age date we're not cognizant of that we just see him as this weird figure he crop up on the telly now and then and in between times you know presumably climb into a crypt until being awakened again um, mm. it, if new romantic history is all about the way club culture feeds into and is kind of fed on by the music business that's fine but for us underages much as we clung to say two-tone by what we could get hold of i.e. Harrington's maybe you know embraces Mm. We hung on to something like Visage. Well, I certainly did, anyway. Sort of purely on videos like this, really. They were exciting yeah. things in the middle of quite a bland period for Top of the Pops. I mean, if this single mm. had come out a couple of years before, like a lot of electronic pop, it wouldn't really have been seen as a change in direction for British music. It would have been seen as Newmanoid, you know? But now, yeah. That, yeah. now that Newman's moment has faintly passed and Steve Strange is becoming known, I, I, I think it hits that much harder. And, it, and the video's fantastic. It's kind of maddening that it's cut short yeah. in this episode of Top of the Pops. Because, uh, you know, yeah. I, I, you don't forget what we've been through, you know? I mean, I like <laughs> looks fierce, but we've been through Phil Collins and we've been through The Who. And, and you know we want something that i'm not saying we're, we're there thirsting for modernity or something but we, we want something to look at you know and we yeah. certainly did not get that with fucking dave stewart and colin blundstone yeah or, this is or, true you know so yeah i think i think it's important to remember that at this point in this rather bland episode it does feel like something new and exciting i think mm. oh yeah yeah as we all know, chaps, the last video featured Steve Strange having a snake painted on his arm that bit him in his own face.
face. So following that up is going to be a big ass. So, you know, let's see how he gets on. And the first thing we notice is we're hit with the sight of a gilt mirror frame on a blue background on a blue wall displaying a blue staircase. The godly and crew have clearly been given a proper budget this time because, you know, there's a proper glossy sheen to this mm. that would have stood out even on 1981 crappy tellies. Yeah. Yeah, it feels like, I'm not saying it births MTV or anything, but it'd sit nicely with all the other big budget videos at the time. And then a load of teddy bears tumble down the stairs, and then we're confronted by Strange the Clock, (laughs) which is a terrifying big grandfather (laughs) clock with Steve Strange's own face, which has taken Homer Simpson's makeup gun full in the face, and with with an arm for a pendulum, that's fucking mental. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, while we're still trying to process that, we're confronted by a puppet of Steve Strange, some kids dressed as Steve Strange, who was in his little Lord Fauntleroy outfit, and then my favourite bit, which was massive licorice all sorts tumbling down the stairs, so yeah. the viewer can imagine themselves sitting at the bottom with their mouths wide open, <laughs> going slew. <laughs> Did you notice there were no pink ones? Was that a trademark thing, I wonder? Oh. oh. You see, the pink ones would be the ones I would have been. Well, I hate fucking yeah. licorice all sorts. So yeah, the pink ones I, the I'm ones like you, Neil. The pink ones are my absolute favourite. I, I liked licorice all sorts, but I didn't like licorice. So right. I would just nibble the good bits off and just lock the licorice <laughs> in the ashtray, which used yeah, to yeah. piss me mum off no end. <laughs> but, I mean, what should have happened was Steve Strange pitching up as Bertie Bassett. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, after all, he is Britain's greatest asset. <laughs> <laughs> and then we get a really creepy bit where Strange confronts his own puppet who kind of like sneaks off in fast motion and then he rides a rocking horse. Mm. He, he's essentially picked up 1981 and he's battering us around the head with it. Yeah, yeah, a real sense in this of the sort of horror of puppetry. <laughs> and, and crucially, it's not something that's so out of the ordinary. I mean, this was stuff you might have had in your own home, the teddies, the jack-in-the-box, the rocking mm. horse. It very much reminds me of uh, the sort of infamous disturbing sequence in Dario Argento's Profundo Russo with mm. a puppet and also the final uh, you know which we all know the Herbert Lom sequence in Asylum as well yeah. also came to mind I mean what a shame that he didn't have Sooty and Sweep and Sue playing The Sims <laughs> man that would have been perfect that would have taken the edge off it a little bit I mean, at the time, I would have taken right against this because it wasn't real kids' issues. Mm, And it immediately mm. became the forgotten follow-up to Fade to Grey. Mm. But when it came on, when I revisited for this episode, I did fucking go, yes, because, you know, now I've grown up, I can really appreciate a good ponce about. And it's not like I've paid for the making of the video. So, yeah, fuck it, have this on. (laughs) What it reminded me of was a few months ago when Sam Smith, one of the most boring pop stars even in this shitty period of music when he turned up at the brit awards looking like a prostate stimulator and <laughs> you know you immediately got all the usual twats moaning on about it well i was thinking oh fucking hell he's actually done something interesting for once yeah yeah, yeah well in, in thin gruelish times you know these sort of slim pickings that they're, they're there mm. to be yeah grabbed at and that underlying theme of the lyrics i should say that you know i love it discarded like a toy i think it works it's sort of strong enough to be understandable by mm. grown-ups 
and kids. So, yeah. I mean, I actually had a distinct sensory memory of this coming on in this episode and suddenly feeling happy Top of the Pops was on, where I hadn't for sort of the past half an hour, to be honest mm. with you. I consulted Blitzed the autobiography of Steve Strange in the hope of finding out something about the making of the video, but all I got was him describing what the video is, which I've just done, so that's mm. no use to anyone. <laughs> but what he does say is, maybe the video was too effective. It was banned by Top of the Pops because they said it was frightening for children. Well, mm, hand going to chin there. Uh. When a hand goes to a chin... <laughs> Strange has this habit, I should say, you know, of, of mis- not, is it misremembering? <laughs> I don't know whether you call it. Because, you know, the Moore's murderous thing. I mean, you know, in interviews, he's saying, I never knew anything about that. You know, um, I turned up. I didn't know that they were going to call the band this. But that, that's clearly not the case, is it? No. Um, it's after the vent correction of history. And I suspect that mm. bit is as well. Yeah, I changed my name in tribute to Liam Brady. Yes. <laughs> Imagine my surprise. When, uh, I know, I mean, look, I'll, I'll grant you that this is not boring to look well, at. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's, yeah. you know, which is the first hurdle overcome, you know. Do you like any visage? Well, I like Fade to Grey, yeah. Yeah. But I yeah. tend to think they should have left it at that, really. Mm. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's just, <laughs> look, it, because if you could, if you do one single, you can sail on the novelty of it and the, the sort of initial shock of what you look like. But after that, you kind of got to sort of do some music. You know what I mean? And to me, this is just another illustration of the axiom that nobody who ever took David Bowie as their primary influence ever made mm. really good music. It never happened. Mm. Loads of people are taking bits from David Bowie and made it work, but nobody ever took him as their main central inspiration and survived artistically. Because you can't mm. take most of that stuff and use it yourself, because it was fine-tuned for him yeah. and his own strengths mm. and weaknesses. And if you do it yourself you're going to be fundamentally second rate, not just because you're unoriginal, but because you're not David Bowie. And this is the difference between being a postmodern artist who steals and adapts and thus mm. forges a true expression of themselves mm. as a, a human being adrift in a culture of other people's ideas and just being a cunt in a silly hat, <laughs> just making an <laughs> exhibition of yourself. But you're saying, you're saying that being a cunt in the silly hat, in a way, it, it, I know exactly what you mean, because it's like David Bowie's definitively postmodern. So if you're going to be postmodern about somebody postmodern, the dilution gets too thin, yeah, doesn't it? Yeah. I guess. yeah, yeah. I know what you mean, um, but I, I, I still think Visage have something. Um, and actually, you know what? It is. I, I'm not saying these are great songs, but they, they, I think it's a kid thing for me, because nobody's repping in my experience you know night train by visage i fucking mm. really love that song and yeah. And, and yeah i liked it too i i really liked it at the time um but it's not held up as some sort of great classic of the early 80s so perhaps it is kid stuff but you know i mean what else have we got in this episode well in the interests of fairness first of all i don't think you could <laughs> i should say i don't think you can blame david bowie for any of this <laughs> any more than if some idiot jumps out of a window thinking they can fly, you can blame Superman. Mm. Um, and in some ways... Or Robert Wyatt, yeah. yeah. In some ways, I do admire his bloody-minded refusal to accept that he doesn't look very good dressed like this. Mm. And he doesn't really... You know, he's not a mysterious guy. 
and to some extent you can even almost appreciate the determination to carry on regardless mm. because he has no other musical vocabulary right you can feel him thinking no no i've allowed this to mean everything to me i i can't do anything else now mm. you know i can't get a job in a pet shop um and it's a bit of a gray area because we do need people who think like that yeah even if we don't necessarily need this you know i don't know it's like all those people you and you read those interviews with rock stars and they say oh i never did any work at school i never went and got a job because i knew that i was going to make it i never doubted myself and of course you're not hearing from a representative cross-section of everyone who's ever said that Hmm. because nobody's ever bothered to interview 99 percent of the cunts Hmm. so it's just yeah i don't know but I also I do feel bad for Steve Strange because at some point he rang up Midgeur and said, "Okay, fucker, what's next?" Ugh. And Midgeur said, "Yeah, I'm in Ultravox now. Bye." Yeah, and he was sort of left stranded on a bit of floating ice, like a climate changed polar bear. You mean nothing to me. Yeah, can you uh, can you imagine being dependent on Midgeur? <laughs> Fucking hell, with his one ounce mustache. Fuck it. In fact, was anyone with a standalone moustache any good? <laughs> I mean, but if you once you rule out sort of some eighties soul singers who did one good single, right? Who is that? Prince, uh, Lee Hazelwood when he looked like John Alderton, um, <laughs> Paul McCartney when he looked like John Alderton, um, John Lennon when he looked like a Victorian doctor, mm. um, and who else have you got? There's Hitler, uh, Stalin, Ewer. Viv Stanchel. Um, <laughs> he had a touch. Yeah, yeah. But beyond that, Sooness, South Yorkshire Police, <laughs> Mr. Bronson, uh, DLT, if you shaved off the rest of his beard and just left the moustache. Uh, Dominic Raab, if he grew a moustache. Mm. Um, it's not a happy crew, is it? You've raised the problem with Visage because, you know, they're being pitched as this neo band, but it's a fucking super group. Yeah. You know, every time Visage come out with a song, the automatic response is, oh, so this wasn't good enough for Ultravox, was it? This wasn't good enough for Susie and the Banshees, was it? This wasn't good enough for fucking magazine, for folks' sake. <laughs> yeah, but their impact relies on my... <laughs> not me, but their impact relies on our ignorance to a certain extent. You know, I didn't know any of that, you know. Mm. When I heard the name Visage, and the, the only thing that I associated it with was Steve. So, you know, all of the yeah. rest of it, I, I didn't know or care about, to be honest with you, at the age of, at the age that I was. Mm. So, yeah. But, you know, fuck it. What would you sooner have on Top of the Pops in 1981? This or status quo? <laughs> or shaking Stevens? There's lots of quo. You know what I mean? There's lots of good records in this chart this week that don't get on. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, and there's lots of shit records that do get on. Now, um, we may yeah. disagree about the shitness of this record. I quite like it. This is using Top of the Pops time much better than an awful lot of other things on this episode. Mm. Yeah, I agree with all that. And, and you know, he's dead now, so God bless him and everything. Mm. And better to do this than, than to just sit in carefully, of course. Just don't make me listen to Mind of a Toy by Visage <laughs> again. <laughs> I'm just thinking a sweet playing a synth with a moustache now. <laughs> <laughs> so the following week, Mind of a Tour soared 10 places to number 14 and a week later would nip up to number 13, its highest position, 
The follow-up, Visage, would spend two weeks at number 21, and they'd have two more hits which skirted the top ten with the damn Don't Cry Night Train, but diminishing returns set in. It became impossible to get the band members together as they were already committed to Ultravox, Susie and the Banshees and Magazine, and they split up in 1985. Strange resurrected the Visage brand in 2002 in order to get in on the Here and Now Heritage Festival Bonanza and put out the LP Hearts and Knives in 2013, but he died of a heart attack in Egypt in 2015. What about Ron Mail? Yeah. No. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Whole argument in pieces. <laughs> <laughs> Mitchell, Rusty, against Steve Strange, and the crew make up Visage, Mind of a Toy. Top of the Pops is about charts, and charts exactly what we're going to take a look at now, starting with the top 30. At 30, what becomes of the broken-hearted Dave Stewart and Colin Blundstone? At 29, Rock This Town from the Stray Cats. At 28, Can You Feel It? The Jacksons. At 27, it's Madness, and Return of the Lost Palm at 7. At 26, it's A Love Thing, The Whispers. At 25, Intuition from Lynx. At 24, Mind of a Toy, Visage. At 23, Hot Love from Kelly Marie. At 22, I Surrender, it's Rainbow. And at 21, it's Einstein and Gogo from Landscape. And at number 20, it's Planet Earth from Duran Duran. Now, with his jacket off and flung casually over his shoulder, stands next to the video screen with the charts in the top of the Pops font emblazoned upon it. He reminds us that Top of the Pops is all about the charts and runs them down from 30 to 21. As he alights on the number 21 single, Einstein and Go-Go, the fist punches the air once more in anticipation, but Top of the Pops doesn't run videos back-to-back just yet. So we're hit with a photo of the next band, who all look as if they're saying, Tonight, Matthew, we're going to be Japan. <laughs> it's Duran Duran with Planet Earth. Why wasn't it fucking Einstein a go-go, man? <laughs> We've done Duran Duran loads on channel music and this is where it all began with their debut single it's the lead-off cut from their first lp duran duran which will be coming out in june and it took three weeks to enter the chart at number 67 late last month but while it took another three weeks to meander up to number 47 it was seized upon and played out by none other than radio one's man at cna peter powell leading to their debut performance on the show helping it to soar 21 places to number 26 this week it's moved up six places to number 20 so here's another repeat from top of the pops of fortnight to go and sadly chaps one thing hurl has already done in his reformation is sort out the band and artist pictures which has taken out a lot of the fun of it for us isn't it yeah boom yeah yeah although i i like how they show that publicity picture of duran duran for a few seconds at the start of this yes and just for a moment you think they might just leave that on the screen and play the record 
skateboard <laughs> over it, which would have been brilliant. But it's a pretty bad photo of Duran Duran, isn't it? I mean, it's possibly the one image that cemented the incorrect aspersion that Simon Le Bon was a bit of a fat bloater. Because he's got his bandolero over a billowy white shirt, making it look like he's got a beer gut. I mean, he effectively looks like <laughs> Sancho Panza about to play for the bronze bullet. <laughs> I mean, when we flick over to see the band in action, you know, he's got some very tight PVC trousers on, mm. so he's slim enough. I mean, looked at purely visually, they're not the way they're going to end up looking yet. Yeah. On this showing, they really need to go back to the bedrooms and put more work in on their girls' world heads because on this showing, in 1981, they're pretty much the new street station dolls, aren't they, chaps? <laughs> <laughs> no, they look sort of more, I don't know, proto-goth than you romantic. But, I mean, yes. really, they are exactly as they are in the video for this song. Right. Albeit with Le Bon not wearing the pirate pantaloons that he wears in that video. And Rhodes mm. has got a different hair colour in the video as well. He's blonde uh, in, right. on, in the top of the pop studio rather than ginger. And, of course, we don't have any of those odd captions that the video has about the surface area and the population of the planet and the oldest song in the world being the Shadoof chant and all of that nonsense that happens in the video. <laughs> but, you know, as a package, this appearance is astonishingly accomplished. Mm for a band dude. I mean they don't mm. they'd only hired Le Bon about a year ago and they're already yeah. sort of talking in interviews but looking yeah starish mm. although I, I think that this little Lord Fauntleroy look that they had at this time is not the best <laughs> it's a bit lacking because it infantilizes them and that wasn't their thing right they're not meant to look like boy princes their appeal was that they were young adults and they were sort of a little mm. bit sexy and mm. druggy you know living mm. it up that was their real life appeal but it was also yeah. baked into the image and the way they sold them they never did that Osmonds or Rollers thing of condescending to their audience mm. you know they were like the musical equivalent of calling the magazine just 17 so that 13 year olds would read it and the mm. idea of them being adults and men of the world was kind of aspirational in itself so when you see them dressed like you know when did you last see your father <laughs> it's it's just sort of wrong it doesn't sit right especially not on simon le bon who has that mm. big flat dog face which could never look delicate or sensitive <laughs> they do suffer in comparison to steve strange on this episode of top of the pops particularly as he is dressed as little lord Fauntleroy. Mm. but it's very clear that top of the pops likes the cut of this band's jib yeah this is a repeat of a couple of weeks ago but it appears that that week's audience are a bit older and savvier than the gormless use in visors that we get this week because you can see them on the side fucking loving this tune yeah bouncing up and down like bastards well, you know, pop radio, pop television is never going to have a problem with Duran. They're not a challenge, really, Duran. Mm. They're funny in interviews at this time because they're always slagging off Spandau and, and they're always mm. slagging off the London scene, calling it kind of tense, where in Brum it's more of a release, they say, at the Rum Runner than it is at the Blitz. Right, yeah. They're very sort of unproblematically about entertainment. Mm. I'm not saying they've not got big ideas, but it's very telling that in interviews at the time they, they talk about how they think men melodies have gone missing in the last three years of British pop mm. and how they want to bring that back a little bit. So they're much less of a kind of foreboding proposition than Visage, for instance. And this is why they're 
going to be bigger than Spandau. They're going to be bigger than anyone because they're literally, it's a ghastly phrase, but they are, as they used to call themselves, techno rock. They're a little bit proggy about their music. Mm. They love Gabriel era Genesis. They say that's a big influence. Mm. And, and it's that progginess that accounts for some of the slaggings that the debut album gets. So consequently, you know, the, nobody's going to have a problem with Duran. So when New Romanticism blows itself out, they're still going to be around because mm. they're working always towards, how can I put it, new songs, new hits rather than just new sounds. Yeah. And as listeners and music makers, they're interested in music at its point of consumption. They have no sort of lofty demands of pop. When you think about the other bands in the Midlands at this point, um, seeing as, you know, this is Team ATV land, mm. Dexies, Specials, um, Serious Bands. It's not just that Duran don't sound like those bands. They unproblematically want to be massive and they have no problem with being stars and no desire really to use stardom as a platform for something else or being a mouthpiece for something else. Mm. Biggest band from Brum since Sabbath. Yeah. <laughs> really? I mean, the Midlands is a shithole in 1981. Oh, yeah. You know, it really is dying industry just everywhere and, and you know, absolute crumbling infrastructure and everything else. Um, and yet still it, largely Tory. Yeah. That's the depressing yeah. thing about <laughs> yeah, yeah. the Midlands that we yeah. don't like to talk about. Like, the North responded to its uh, emasculation by, like, never voting for the Conservatives ever again until Brexit. The Midlands yeah, yeah. has always been Tory, and, and right of Tory. Like where I come from, right, mm. you know, oh, where yeah. I was born, around sort of West Bromwich, Smethwick and Tipton and stuff. Fucking BMP, NF, oh, yeah. Heartland, yeah, yeah. you know. It's a really depressing thing about the Midlands. Yeah. I think it might be the inferiority complex of the region, weirdly enough, that it never wants to stand up to the government and say, hang on, you're fucking taking the piss mm. here. Yeah, yeah, something yeah. quite I mean, servile about Midlands. The people. West Midlands is—it's fucking Enoch, right? Yeah. Isn't it? I mean, when you think about what happens in Smethwick and stuff. I mean, yeah, Durant, yeah. The Durant, biggest band from Brum since Sabbath, but unlike Sabbath, of course, they're studiously determined in a way only to reflect their surroundings in their sense of aspirational escape. Yes. Durant music does not sound like it's from Birmingham, really. <laughs> no, no. It sounds like it's made for a nightclub, and it wants to stay in that nightclub, really. Mm. And, and and in interviews, they talk about pleasure and entertainment and product as being. And what they want to create. There, there, there's actually a really good quote from, a, I think it's Paul Morley interview in 1981, where, where they talk about how we have a responsibility. I think it's Nick Rhodes who says it. He says, we have a responsibility not to tell them things. When he's talking about the audience, he's saying he wants to keep them ignorant in a sense when it comes to <laughs> politics because they're young, their audience, you know. But that escapism that I think is inherent to Duran and, and why they appeal so, so big is it, it eventually does start smelling quite fat right by the time of say Rio but at this point it's still just it's kind of just a little purer I mm. guess so I, I don't have any problems with this yeah they were never like flying the flag for Birmingham no. that's for sure <laughs> through yeah, their yeah, music. Yeah, they yeah, were not yeah. yim yam yim yam um, <laughs> but in a way that's the most Birmingham thing about yeah, them. Completely, yeah, completely. But yeah, Top of the Pops have really pushed out the boat for them. You know, not only do we get that stop motion effect that the punk bands used to get, but they also get a proper massive globe hanging down as opposed to the Scotch egg that Legs and Co had to deal with. <laughs> and they can do it. They can fill out that stage. Mm. I mean, you think about other bands, and never mind sort of electro pop or anything else. You think about other bands, given that space and what they'd fill it with, there would be no one <laughs> 
was good at drag. You know, I, I think of something like OMD or something, you know? Yeah. Or something that was contemporaneous. Always just looked like, yeah, indie kids given a pop stage and consequently the discomfort was part of the enjoyment. Mm. But Durant already look like a stadium band, do you know what I mean? Mm. It, it's mad how developed they are yeah, at yeah. this very early point. Mm. Yeah, there's a few gigs of theirs on YouTube from around this time that were on telly and stuff. And they're more like big country <laughs> yeah, or something yeah. than Visage. You yeah, know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. They're like they're a real. They got dry ice going, and they've all got their guitar techs hanging around and stuff. It's a uh, yeah, it's rock. They're proper rock, mm. and it it's hardly an original observation. But I quite like the fact that they based almost their entire catalogue on late seventies mm. Roxy music and almost nothing else. Mm. And Japan, mm. right? Mm. It's like those are the only records they've ever heard. It struck me while I was listening to this it's like fucking hell this is atomic by blonde oh it is a little yeah. bit yeah perhaps down to the bass playing mm. the, the bass playing needs noting i didn't notice it at the time because i was a little kid but the bass playing raises them above a lot yeah. of other things i think duran it's really really good yeah yeah i didn't mind that when this came on the radio it was like oh it's this it's all right mm. i didn't mind it which was a massive achievement when you look at what they look like with the roofs and everything yeah. well their ubiquity hadn't started chafing on your tit ends yet i mean that yeah. starts happening soon but at this yeah. stage it hasn't i yeah. think what it is is that first of all they demonstrate a lot of sort of energy and personality of their own and somehow they give you the impression that they're grinning at you even as they've got their pouts fixed tight you know what i mean mm. i think that's why people are sort of forgiving of Duran Duran and give them the benefit of the doubt you know they skate mm. they always skate and with distinction like a, a five-headed <laughs> robin cousins because um, <laughs> if you're a pop star and what you do just works you can get away with anything you know like in terms yeah. of theft i mean my god the greatest pop stars are the greatest thieves you know <laughs> would mark boland ever have written those lyrics if he had never heard sid barrett singing send a cage through the post make your name like a ghost but who cares <laughs> you, you can't sit around drumming your fingers and waiting for musical abiogenesis you know and when your aesthetic is trashy enough you don't even have to wait for an original thought you just need a spark and for me that's what's missing from visage but it's there in Duran Duran. they've got a spark if nothing else mm -hmm. anything else to say about this no but the episode for me has suddenly got good so the following week planet earth jumped eight places to number 12 its highest position as discussed in chart music number 39 emi then forced them into putting out careless memories as the follow-up which only got to number 37 for two weeks in may but the ship was righted when they went with the band's original choice and put out girls on film which got to number five in august stupid emi <laughs> <laughs> And their debut album will be due out soon. Right, let's go back to the charts. At 20 is Planet Earth from Duran Duran. At 19, Somebody Help Me Out from Beggar & Co. At 18, Stevie Wonder. And lately, at 17, it's Jones vs. Jones. Cool on the gang. At 16, Once in a Lifetime, Talking Heads. At 15, Please Don't Touch, Motorhead and Girls School. At 14, it's Phil Collins, I Missed Again. At 13, it's Kiki D and Star. At 12, Something Bad You Baby, I Like, Status Quo. And at 11, it's Southern Free. Freeze and freeze. But now we go to number eight, and here's Toya. It's a mystery. 
with some youths but with no jacket as he's draped it over the shoulders of his pick of the litter the lucky lady he then shoves us into the second part of the chart rundown from 20 to 11 before introducing it's a mystery by Toya we covered Toya Wilcox and her band of Kens in chart music number 36 and this, her sixth single release, is the follow-up to Danced, her live single which got to number seven in the independent charts in July of 1980. It's the main cut from the EP4 from Toya which immediately rose to the top of the indie chart when it came out in the first week of February but it also marked her first dent on the proper chart when it entered at number 59 on Valentine's Day. The following week, it jumped 17 places to number 42, which gave Michael Hill all the incentive he needed to get her into the top of the pop studio. And the following week, it soared 16 places to number 26. A week later, it jumped 10 places to number 16, and a repeat of the first performance was trotted out again. And this week, it's nudged up three places from number 11 to number 8. And here she is in the studio so chaps off you go well you know different strokes for different folks it it takes all kinds of people to make what life's about um you know even if you don't like toya i think you can agree that um you know music's the real winner here Mm. yeah i mean toya may not be to everyone's taste but these things are subjective and she obviously worked very hard on her music and this may not be the kind of thing that i'm into but i imagine if you are into this kind of thing it's probably a very good example of this kind of thing so who am i to criticize it anything else to say no no so the following week four from toya jump four places to number four its highest position the follow-up i want to be free would get to number eight in june and she'd close out 1981 with thunder in the mountains getting to number four in october No, no, no. We're not done. We're not done. Come on, let's do this properly. Dad. Oh, right. Can I also say, I think most of the people who want to knock Toya are probably just jealous of her success. <laughs> it's either that or they can't handle a strong woman who doesn't pander to men. Mm. You know, any Nina Simone, Jodie Mitchell or Betty Davis fans who knock Toya I think they're just revealing themselves as sad little men it's <laughs> the only possible explanation now then pop craze youngsters you're going to be shocked and appalled by what I'm about to impart to you but impart it I must you'll recall a while back that Taylor and Neil here delivered a comprehensive coat down of I want to be free and when this episode was mooted I wanted to do 1981 but I let them have their little say and told them to pick the episode out they really wanted to do the who and uh, you bet you bet but it turned out that both of their appearances on Top of the Pops coincided with this fucking single here. And when that was made apparent, my so-called 
colleagues claimed that they were all toyed out and went on a work to rule and just wanted to, to say a little bit and move on. Well, you know, I can't have that. And the pot crazed youngsters can't have that either. So, like all creative industry entrepreneurs faced with the difficult challenges of the age, I called upon the services of artificial intelligence, went on chat GPT and typed in Taylor Park's review of Toya and Neil Kulkarni <laughs> review of Toya. Yeah, you weren't expecting that, was you, lads? Yeah. So, yeah, let's, let's yeah. have a listen to what I said. Neil Kulkarni delivers an enthusiastic review of Toya in his article, commending her for her energy and entertaining performance. <laughs> he praises her ability to connect with the audience and create a memorable experience. <laughs> Cool Carney notes that her set list includes plenty of hits, but also showcases her lesser-known tracks, which he found to be a pleasant surprise. <laughs> Overall, he describes the concert as a fun and nostalgic experience that left him wanting more. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Uncanny. And I, I didn't say she stank a piss or anything. This no, is amazing. No. Meanwhile... Taylor Parks of the Quietus reviews Toya's 2020 album Posh Pop, describing it as an impressive and adventurous release that defies <laughs> genres and expectations. <laughs> Parks notes Toya's ability to surprise her audience with her range and versatility as a vocalist and praises the album's eclectic production and bold musical choices, including nods to punk, disco and classic rock. Overall, Pox <laughs> regards Posh Pop as a testament to Toy's enduring creativity and willingness to take risks with her music. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're dead and gone. That's what's going to be yeah, left. Yeah. yeah. No use of the word iconic, though. Yeah, what a letdown. Well, we've got standards, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that... Was it enough for me or the pop craze youngster? So I went back in and typed Taylor Parks and Neil Kulkarni review It's a Mystery by Toya. All right, so, yeah. Here we go. Taylor Parks reviewed Toya's album It's a Mystery. No such thing. There never was an album called mm. It's a Mystery. But anyway, you know, let's, let's carry on. Describing it as a synth-heavy pop art terrain. <laughs> He praised Toy's ability to mix various musical genres. Here, you're back on that one again, Taylor. And acknowledged the diversity of tracks, such as the title track and Thunder in the Mountains. Parks remarked on the album's sci-fi soundscapes and commended <laughs> Toya's charismatic and confident singing throughout. <laughs> Overall, he deemed It's a Mystery as an eccentric, glorious, bizarre wow. pop gem. <laughs> yeah. However, however, there is a difference of opinion here because mm. Neil Kulkarni's take on Toya's album It's a Mystery is less than favourable. <laughs> he deems it a synthetic black hole with cold and vapid vocals that lack emotion or depth. Kulkarni also <laughs> criticised the album's production, calling it suffocatingly slick and lacking in musicality. Overall, he sees the album as reflection of the shallow, commercialised nature of the music industry in the 1980s. Yeah, man. Oh, AI Neil Kulkarni there trying to make a name for himself. Yeah, you see, uh, nobody tell AI about the word wank snap or I'm fucked. As Dusty Rhodes said, a computer just took your 
your place, Dad. <laughs> I can't believe neither of us called her a songstress. That's the only thing that, that I yeah. noticing. The, the, the Birmingham Sparrow. <laughs> it's a, a bit misogynist, your review there, I thought, Neil. Yeah. yeah. Well, mm. you know, just, the older just, you get. Yeah. Before we say anything else, I don't know why we're bothering, because that, I think that said it all. You know. Yeah, Al, do you even need us here? Yeah, that's what I'm thinking, man. As soon as AI can develop a yum-yum accent, mate, I'm fucking laughing. After this episode, I'm going to type out David Stubbs' reviews, If I Shall Fall From Grace With God By The Oh, what amazing times we live in. Let me just get this out and we'll move on. My mate was a stage manager of an open-air production of A Midsummer Night's Dream in the 90s, and he says that Toya Wilcox was the nicest actor he's ever come across. There was nothing she wouldn't do for for anyone and he won't have a word said against her so you know that's out there now but mm. but having said that you can be the nicest person in the world but if you turn up on top of the pops and you take up three minutes of top of the pops in order to get on my tits i'm sorry but that gets held against you for the rest of your life mm. and i don't make the rules so here we go well, you know, I just wanted to note the presence of Nigel Glockler on drums here, Ooh. future Saxon drummer. <laughs> really? <laughs> oh, yeah, he joined Saxon later this year. Is he the one with the headband on? Aye, aye, Oof. that's him. But even he can't save this. It's fucking horrible. Can I just say, the terrible moment at the start of this, where they do the chart rundown, and yeah. just for a second, you think we might be about to go into Southern Freeze by yeah. Freeze. It's like oh, someone right. holding out a big juicy pineapple in front of you and then <laughs> suddenly snatching it away and flicking shit up your nose off a fork. <laughs> I mean, Toy is pretty much one of the first acts to break out of the independent chart ghetto and make it to the big boy charts, along with Joy Division, UB Forte and Depeche Mode. And yes, pop craze youngsters, Toya is the person who uncorked the best pop single in years that should make you feel good about life for about three and a half minutes according to Clive James in next Sunday's Observer fucking <gasps> <gasps> Australians so yeah this song is as good as watching Japanese lads getting tortured in a game <laughs> show <laughs> That's mental. Mm. Uh, Although you know it was kind of mental, wasn't it? Um, not not to rake over our past glories, but you know when we last discussed Toya, mm. and then I tweeted something. I think I think Chart Music tweeted my thing about Giles Brandreth. He got back to yes. us, didn't he? Yes, yes. <laughs> what did you say? No, was it if Giles Brandreth? If Giles Brandreth was asked to write a, pop, uh, a punk song, yeah, it'd be which song was it again? We were doing. I want to be free. That's right. Mm. And he, he, he said, yeah, a, a, a classic of its kind, I mm. think. He, he, he tweeted back. Yeah. Interaction from the brand. The jumper man himself. Indeed. Toya's getting a lot of praise in the media at the minute, but mainly the London media, because Jim Cusack, who does a column called Rock in the Belfast <laughs> Observer, offers a different take in his article a few months from now, entitled The Face of Rock or Just a Passing Fad. Just to prove that there is no accounting for taste, tickets for Wednesday's Toya concert in the Ulster Hall seem to be selling like hotcakes. Her chart hit, It's a Mystery, is no doubt an important contributive factor, but apart from this song and a couple of other forgettable numbers, Toya has little to recommend her as an important rock performer. She is, in fact, a bit like Hazel O'Connor in that she is a figure the London media have seized upon as the modern face of rock music. But Toya is more a media event than a rock artist. 
I thought everyone would have had enough of her by now because of all the coverage she was receiving a couple of months ago. She actually had a one-hour TV documentary and received endless praise for her seemingly ordinary acting abilities. Anyway, it would be interesting to see how the media image fares as a live artist. The concert is being screened as part of a series on Northern Ireland BBC and this column will be watching carefully to ensure that all that appears on stage appears on screen. But then, a few days later, Mr Cusack was forced to change his tune in the following review. Toya entered stage right at the King's Hall last night, about 20 foot up some scaffolding. She was apparently trying to imitate a monkey and grabbed hold of the bars and shook them and displayed other mannerisms associated with caged anthropoids. (laughs) Meanwhile, there was a voice coming out of the PA and a synthesizer somewhere making a growling noise that grew in volume. The voice was going, (laughs) E-O-E. The rather tame-looking section of the audience where I was standing was slightly taken aback. Well-bred teenage girls, most of them wearing leg warmers, looked around quizzically at their boyfriends, unsure if this was not all a bit weird for a Wednesday night. But within a minute or two, Toya began a more normal stage show, shaking a wonderful head of orange hair, and within a number or two, the show was fairly cracking along. Toya has, in cabaret talk, a real belter of a voice, and the band, who seemed a bit ordinary at the start, were soon showing some rare talent. It really became a good rock show. (laughs) The only things that really jarred were the sound and stage set. The echo near the back of the hall was unique in my experience, and the stage set looked like a really bad night on Blake 7. Yeah, try and copy that (laughs) AI, you cunt. But the song, chaps. Mm. I mean, really, it just sums up Toy in one go, doesn't it? Something that's been presented as punk or post-punk, but is actually really fucking proggy. Yeah. But, you know, the thing is, the trouble is, she's that worst thing. She's mm. a contrarian pop star. The, you know, the, the, the one that if they're annoying you, they see that as more grist to the mill as proof that she's on the right track. And this song, she, she moans about this song that, you know, she didn't like it at first because she was... She, she's got the fucking gall to say, you know, she was losing her punk roots. <laughs> this song, you know, it's too poppy and all of this sort of stuff. Uh, but I think it's probably her most annoying one. Mm. Um, the shot in the dark line. There's lots of annoying moments in this. Mm. And, you know, the, it's weird with Toya because she's one of those where an awful lot of the attention she was getting was quite positive. But there's just, it needs pointing out, there's, there's, there was so many people, so many of us sat at home just fucking hating her. Mm. Come on, Taylor. <laughs> Oh, well, all I can give you is this article from the Sunday Mirror in uh, June 1981 uh, from the Star Time section. Again, the Sunday Mirror gets the big exclusive, it says. What disgusts Toya in top pop? I don't know what that means. (laughs) Her hair and clothes have stamped Toya unmistakably as a fashion leader. Quote, People see me and think I'm thick. Some silly tart who dyes her hair different colours, she said. 
but it takes guts because i can't walk down the street without being laughed at or thought cheap Mm. i want other kids to have the courage to do what they want to do so what if she dyes her hair (laughs) she's still got a brain up there (laughs) her hair is currently sunshine gold a color fans can copy using toya's crazy color hair coloring (laughs) at three pounds a bottle mum it burns (laughs) i use the stuff myself toya said her style may be outrageous but her opinions are not morally i'm very strict she said the promiscuous side of the music business disgusts me Mm. i have seen a lot of women get emotionally mixed up because of sleeping around they cheapen themselves Mm. so yeah down with people having the courage to do what they want to do yes she also believes in capital punishment and (laughs) castration for rapists I have no compassion for anyone like that. She says, well, you know, know, people like Peter Sutcliffe, who should be put to sleep by an injection. I'm too bitter to write songs about it at all. Uh, Well, yeah. Okay. Doesn't Toya go on in interviews that, you know, whenever she's backstage and there's some girl chatting up the sexy, virile members of her backing band, uh, she slaps them about? Yes. (laughs) <laughs> she boasted of this. Yeah, that's not on, is it? I mean, fucking hell. I mean, if we were doing a live show, right, and Sarah was standing at the bar and some bloke was just talking to her and saying hello and everything, and I just went up to him and fucking lamped him, that that, mm. that made me a right cunt, wouldn't it? It made you a gentleman, Al. <laughs> no, yeah, I forgot, yeah. From the Daily Mirror, Ooh. Thursday, February the 26th, 1981. After Punk... Meet the girl on the crest of a new wave. Toya is a bit of a funny name, so her close friends call her Toilet. (laughs) That's the opening line. I'm not making this up. (laughs) And the in-crowd trendies have nicknamed her (laughs) Toyota. Her rather posh mum, no kidding, from the better side of Birmingham, probably wishes... Oh, there's a better side of Birmingham, is there? (laughs) Have you not been to the worst side of Birmingham? (laughs) Fucking hell. It's called Coventry, isn't it, Neil? Oi, fuck up. (laughs) Cheeky cunt. It probably wishes she'd christened her Beryl and saved herself a lot of sleepless nights. It would have been tough for a girl called Beryl to dye her hair tangerine and yellow, leave home with just a carrier bag, immediately land starring roles in big films and host her own chat show all before her 22nd birthday but i don't know why but mm. toya toilet toyota wilcox did just that and more <laughs> and then there's a bit where they ask for her opinions of the other women who seem to be making it in the 80s mm. because if you're a woman and you're successful it's only natural you would want to bitch about all the other women who are successful mm. my publicist says i shouldn't put other artists down but really i think honesty is the best policy yeah. so hazel o'connor I like her as a person, but frankly, I'm insulted being compared to her. She's not very original. (laughs) Debbie Harry. She's beautiful, and I don't see why she shouldn't exploit that. She's got some good people working for her. Jesus. (laughs) Paulie Yates. I think she regrets doing all that nude stuff. 
I did a photograph once with a nipple hanging out, painted black for a laugh. I couldn't believe it when people were shocked. <laughs> and those are all the women. That, yes, there's obviously no other successful women in the eight. No. Just uh, Hazel O'Connor, Debbie Harry and Paulie Yates. Well, I mean, far be it for me to tell Toya how to be a good feminist. But she's got a sort of bit of that in a lot of interviews. I, I read one where she, you know, she was talking about kind of what made her want to go to drama school and stuff. And she, she says, you know, seeing scores of teenage girls pushing prams around Birmingham on a Saturday morning affected me. I'd rather have died than gone through that. Ooh. I mean... You know what I mean? Am I am I the only one to detect something wrong about saying that? It just seems she's slightly scorned. I mean, in a class sense, she's very scorned. This article finishes. She lives in a huge flat in Hendon, North London, where she moved to recently from a weird warehouse home in Battersea. Her remaining ambition is to be a goddess, to be <laughs> worshipped. Quote. That's what it takes to have a guaranteed commercial audience for the rest of my life. <laughs> or what about just being dead good? Mm, yeah. What you well, do, come on, sorry. come on. You know, you can't ask for the world. <laughs> but yeah, 1981 is the year of Toya, and she would end it like all good 80s pop stars. And if you had little sisters and they'd been nice all year, there's a reasonable chance that they'd be getting a little Toya in their stocking this Christmas. Article in the Birmingham Evening Mail in November. Birmingham's trend-setting Toya Wilcox has gone into the beauty business. Already a fashion leader in her own right, the star of stage, screen and disc has dreamed up a makeup range that's good quality and low price, theatrical and great fun. Under the banner Soul Reflectors, there's a kit of four different coloured eye shaders and another kit of two face shaders, while there's also a duo pack of two bottles of nail paint called Man Scratchers. <laughs> uh, still available now on eBay. Recommended retail price eleven ninety nine. <laughs> Soul reflectors. Mm. Why do I see nothing? <laughs> the oh. last time we covered Toya chaps, I did ask the question: Who the fuck is buying this, and, mm. and who the fuck are her audience? And then afterwards, it just hit me: Adrian Mole, who yes. charts a rise and fall. Perfect. Yes. On November the 19th of this year, he compiles a list of suitable names for his new baby sister, which include Diana, Pandora and Toya. <laughs> then there's this diary entry from December the 12th. My mother has gone out with Mrs. Singh, Mrs. O'Leary and her women's group to have a picnic on Greenham Common. She has taken Rose so the house is dead peaceful. I played my Toya records at full volume and had a bath with the door open. <laughs> but then, on Tuesday, April the 12th, 1982, after his run away from home and come back in distress, he writes, Nigel has just left after trying to arouse me by playing my favourite Toya tapes at a discreet volume. I signalled that I would prefer both his and Toya's absence <sighs> how the mighty fall indeed you know where toya's makeup was available gone it was marks and sparks really Toy yes it was marks and spencer which is a bit upmarket for her yeah. fan base mm, very, i'd very say thoughtless of her. yeah 
I thought you should sell it on the street from a a, a cart fashioned out of the carved out anus of a rotting <laughs> cow. <laughs> so the following week, four from Toya jumped four places to number four, its highest position. The follow-up, I Wanna Be Free, would get to number eight in June, and she'd close out 1981 with Thunder in the Mountains getting to number four in October, and the EP Four More from Toya spending two weeks at number 14 in December. But her first single of 1982, Brave New World, only got to number 21 in June of 1982, and Diminishing Returns set in rapidly. Coincidentally, around the time that she co-starred in the BBC Two sketch show Dear Heart with B.A. Robertson. What a combination. (laughs) What a shame Paul Nicholas wasn't in it as well, man. And four from Toya, that's a track called It's a Mystery. All right, we take a look at the top ten best-selling singles this week. It's a not-so-bad. Dance hey. and it's it's Joe so Dolce and I'll shut up in your face. Up seven at nine is The Who. And you better, you bet. Three at eight, you saw on the show. It's four from Toya. It's a mystery, Toya. Good for her. Down three, alas, at number seven, Ultravox oh. and the Magnificent Fiesta. Oh. Magnificent. Oh. <laughs> I hate being right all the time. Yay! Yes. Up seven at six, go Teardrop Explodes, and their reward... No change of mind. Hey! And they can make it number one. Down two and four. It's Kings of the Wild Frontier. Adam and the Axe. For her first single, she's up three and three. Kids in America, it's Kim Wilde. Still the sound of Shaky's piss trickling down the outside wall. And up uh, five and two, good old rock and roll, Shaking Stevens, this old house. <laughs> Ooh, careful with that act, Shaker. <laughs> and just before we get to that big number one, let me say the Radio 1 on mass is going up to Scotland starting on Sunday with a football match. Hope very much to see you there. Hope you've enjoyed Top of the Pops. Great audience tonight. And to celebrate the fact that Roxy Music have their first ever number one, it's been there for two weeks, and it's a great song. Till next week, good night. Here's Jealous Guy. Bye-bye, everyone. <laughs> How? Now surrounded by the girls in the previous link, as well as a couple of unruly youths, including one who pretends to chew gum behind Powell's shoulder, drags us through the top ten. Almost all of them have videos apart from poor old Coast to Coast, who have to make do with a publicity shot and the cover of Kings of the Wild Frontier by Adam and the Ants. Mm. Yeah, that top ten, chaps, it gives us further proof that the 70s are still hanging about because I noticed not only one, but two songs with a liberal deployment of the word, hey! 
hey <laughs> you can't get rid of hey you just can't yeah i still contend that every song in the world would be massively improved if there was a <laughs> hey or seven in them yeah, as long as you put it in the right place unlike J- joe dolce's audience who despite the fact oh. that he's told them exactly when they should say hey proceed yeah. to do it at the end of every line which is not yeah. what he said they got it completely wrong well he should have known what he was letting himself in for there yeah and it, it's doubly bad because it's not even a real audience it's joe dolce's band in the studio pretending to be an audience and then double tracked <laughs> so there's just no excuse and arc at pal's italian accent for that yeah. he was well wario on mario kart 64 <laughs> wasn't it okay. it's a me pizza pal i'm a gonna win <laughs> He's a spicy meatball. <laughs> As we cut back to Powell, who we now discover is sitting with the audience with his best girl still wearing his jacket and the unruly youth still building their part up by pushing about, gurning, and in one case, pointing a finger at Powell's head, he introduces <laughs> this week's number one, Jealous Guy by Roxy Music. Born in Fort Worth, Texas in 1955, Mark David Chapman was the son of a staff sergeant in the US Air Force and a nurse who was relocated to Decatur, Georgia in his teens, where he got jesus up. After working in a YMCA summer camp as a counsellor, where he read J.D. Salinger's Catcher in the Rye and thought it was dead good, he then moved to Chicago and effectively became the American Sid Little, playing guitar (laughs) and singing in clubs while his mate did impressions. After working in Arkansas counselling Vietnamese refugees and a spell working for World Vision in Lebanon, he enrolled into a Presbyterian college in Georgia but dropped out after one semester and eventually wound up in Hawaii where he tried to commit suicide in his car but the end of the hosepipe attached to the exhaust melted. He ended up working at the hospital where he was treated for clinical depression as a janitor, went on a trip round the world in 1978, returned to Hawaii and got married there in 1979 and took up a new hobby of fantasising about killing someone famous. He compiled a hit list which is alleged to have included Jacqueline Onassis, Paul McCartney, Elizabeth Taylor, Johnny Carson, George C. Scott, Ronald Reagan and David Bowie, but one stood out among the rest, John Lennon, who Chapman read about in an article in Esquire in October of 1980 that documented his four mansions, his yacht, his private beach in Florida and his collection of 250 dead expensive cows and deduced that he was a massive sellout man. (laughs) He flew to New York in October of 1980 with the intent of doing him in, but nipped over to Atlanta to Ponsamamo off his mate. And when he went back, he went to see the Robert Redford film Ordinary People at the Pictures and changed his mind and went back to Hawaii. But on the 6th of December, he flew back trying to pick between killing Lennon or jumping off the Statue of Liberty. Finally, on the 8th of December, he stopped pissing about and did it, giving Lennon's solo career a massive boost, British people a golden opportunity to cope down Americans for all being mad bastards, and absolutely ruining the British charts for months. Just like Starting Over, which dropped 11 places to number 21 the day after the murder, 
murder soared to number one the following week before immediately giving way to there's no one quite as racist like grandma by the <laughs> St. Winifred School Choir. <laughs> but Apple responded by rushing out Happy Christmas, War is Over, which got to number three on the Christmas chart of 1980, and Imagine, which entered the chart at number nine on the same week and began a four-week stand at number one. In the last week of January, when we were already lenned out to fuck, Geffen put out the true follow-up to Just Like Starting Over, Woman, which crashed into the chart at number three, and a fortnight later usurped Imagine and spent two weeks at number one. Just when we thought it was all over, when Woman was toppled by Shut Up Your Face by Joe Dolce Music Theatre, another Lennon song entered the charts at number 21, a cover of a track from his 1971 LP Imagine by Roxy Music, who were Roxy fucking music, who were touring <laughs> West Germany at the time and immediately added it to their set as a tribute and then put it out as the follow-up to the same old scene, which got to number 12 in November of 1980. A week later, after a screening of the video on Top of the Pops, it soared 15 places to number six. And last week, it rose from number three to the very toppermost of the poppermost, slapping away everyone's favourite Italio-Austral singer-songwriter. This is its second week at number one, and here's the video again. <sighs> Past, it's mad, isn't it? Past six number one singles. Yes, Neil, let's imagine the number ones of early 1981 with no dead John Lennon. It's easy if you try. So, stop the cavalry for one week, ant music for two weeks, in the air tonight for two weeks, Vienna for one week, shut up your face for three weeks, as it was, and Kings of the Wild Frontier for one week. That is two number ones ripped out of the hands of Adam and the Ants because some fucking tubby mentalist was allowed to have a gun. <laughs> Thanks, America. It's mad. Lennon, novelty. Lennon, Lennon, novelty, Lennon. is the yeah. past six number one singles. And it's it's a slight shame, really. I, this is Roxy's first number one, isn't it? I know. Ugh. Which is a shame. What else is a shame, Neil? That this is our first dig into Roxy music, and it's not mad arty genius Roxy or Monte Carlo disco Roxy, both of which would have been an absolute joy to tuck into. But yeah. Lick and Pickridge Roxy with their single <laughs> "I Remember Johnny Lennon." Oh, wow, I love to hear him sing. Uh, yeah. I mean, by this time we were thoroughly Lennoned out, but the music industry was still churning it out. You know, Woman still malingering at number thirty-two. Walking on Thin Ice by Yoko Ono's dropped five places to number 40. DJM have rushed out Elton John's live cover of I Saw Us Standing There when Lennon made a guest appearance at an encore in 1975. And we're a month away from watching the wheels coming out. And I don't know about you, but as a pop-crazed youngster of the time, I felt that we were being told that all this classic material was better than all the shit I listened to by Ben Cunts who aren't fucking real. And, and this puts a tin lid on everything doesn't it yeah yeah i don't trust this bloke his eyes are too close together <laughs> uh, no first of all this is the worst roxy music single and possibly the worst roxy music track just because mm. it is what it is a dropping of character yeah behind which 
there's very little character because it's mostly a sincere tribute mm. and sincerity is not what Brian Ferry did well. No. And he's trying to have his cake and eat it here, right? He's honouring the dead legend and at the same time he's still trying to be glassy and gassy and a yeah. hundred miles away. And I'm not sure you can do those things simultaneously. Like if it was me who'd just been shot dead, I don't think I'd appreciate it, you know. Either pay <laughs> tribute like you mean it or do your own thing. Thing. either of those is fine you know mm. the thing is sonically right this version it's kind of immaculate it doesn't mean i like any of it but it's kind mm. of immaculate it almost seems to create the need for the invention of cds as you hear it um it sounds very cd-ish but the thing is you know the, the, i don't know what your thoughts are about the original of this yeah. um the john lennon version mm. i kind of really like the original it's one of my favorite right, yeah, songs in yeah. fact you know it's one of those songs that percolated over from the kind of beatles time because i think he started writing it white album era didn't he really yeah he wrote the music on the white album then he wrote the words mm. for in 1971 it has that kind of melodic strength to it and the string arrangements which i'm guessing are by specter on the original they're pretty amazing i mean the thing that always made me uncomfortable a little bit about the original was that lyrically it came across as the, you know, it's the talk after she's been given a black eye a little bit. Mm. And the way that he sees the song out, because he goes, watch out, doesn't he? Yeah, in the original yeah, yeah. watch out he goes, look out, baby, indicating that the, the relationship is kind of ongoing. You don't really get that in this version, this feels like this person has already left. Yeah. It's sung towards someone who's never coming back. Um, and, and the video accentuates that loneliness, I think, because it, it, it's very close up on Brian and, and in, a, in an almost creepy way. But yeah. It feels like he's singing this walking through a kind of now emptied out living space, knowing that the person he's singing it to will never return. Mm, no more carefree laughter. This is it. Silence ever after. <laughs> But that whistling at the end, you know, which goes on for far too long. It's almost absurd. Oh, the cowboy shit. It goes from sort of romantic to, I don't know, pathetic almost. <laughs> There's been lots mm. of covers of this song. And this is probably yes. sort of one of the best. But yeah, I mean, at this point, it's galling that Lennon's on sale again. You know, it's, it, it, it's, we've, we've had enough. Yeah. Well, the greatest version of this song by a country mile is Donny Hathaway's live version. Yeah, yeah. Oh God, yeah, I'd completely forgotten about that. But that is, that is amazing. Uh, yeah, yeah. I take a trad view on this song. To me, this is one of Lennon's greatest ever songs. Right. Because unlike a lot of his emotional stuff, it doesn't just put across raw feelings which you have to make sense of. It's got a bit of self-awareness. But you can't quite tell the extent to which it not having complete self-awareness is an unreliable narrator device or if, more likely, it's a genuine lack in the 31-year-old man writing the lyrics because, on the one hand, it's like a an ashamed apology song which considers being a dick to your wife or girlfriend as being on a continuum. So the words can cover everything from snapping at them in the car on the way back from Morrison's <laughs> to leaving them in a ditch by the side of the road. And the problem with this song is that he's reached the point of thinking this, but not yet the point of fixing it. Mm. So he's still at that stage mm. of, yeah. oh, sorry, I'm, I'm just a jealous guy. You know, like he's not a psychopath. Yeah. He's not taking any pleasure from being toxic. In fact, it upsets him too. Mm. You know, so his mates might say, Ah, oh, that's just John. So it's a start, 
but it's not a finish, mm. you know. Mm. And my suspicion is that this is actually the point that Lennon was at when he wrote it, because that's where a lot of people are at about 30, you know. Mm. Depending on the degree of manipulation and emotional abuse, the other half of the partnership is capable of, which in his case did appear to be quite a lot, even if you don't go so far as believing the Albert Goldman narrative mm. and you just look at the established facts. Not the healthiest situation in paradise, but... Obviously, if there's one singer on earth who's absolutely not going to convey this emotional complexity in their interpretation of the song, it's Brian Ferry. Mm -hmm. You just get this chandelier glimmer, uh, then when you squint past the light, that reptilian coldness, which changes the atmosphere of the whole thing completely in a way that's moderately interesting. But it doesn't improve the song. You know, and I never bought his interpretations of other people's songs anyway, because it was always like he'd suddenly missed the point of himself, which is the frictionless sound of later period Roxy music and the solo Brian Ferry records suits that unnerving, disconnected, semi imaginary world in which that work exists spiritually and it feels like a conceit when you take someone else's song and you deaden it the same way as your own songs because what this record's doing is taking a raw disturbed complex song and treating it the way a 70s italian horror director would treat the female murder victims you know they look immaculately beautiful lying dead mm. and porcelain mm. white with a perfect drip of crimson blood you know empty-headed and it's always creepy and i can see that it's a clever and interesting idea to take an agonized song and glaze it when the man who sung it had just died and of course creepy is a big part of brian ferry's charm mm. um and the surface of this track is almost as gorgeous as any of the other near identical sound worlds that he's strolled through it just seems a bit forced and in a way beneath them mm. it's kind of really gutting that this is how we come to rock yeah. yes yeah. sorry about that but hopefully at some point we'll get to do virginia plane or we'll mm. get to do, do the strand i mean well you know we'll even get to do other records that roxy music are making in this period mm. i could have had much more fun talking about more than this or something mm. um, yeah, or, oh yeah with him in the white jeans and the gingham shirt yeah. <laughs> although you know listening to this it did remind me of that um you know, the Brian Ferry spaghetti story. So that's always nice to be reminded of that. Go on. Oh, uh, well, someone who was at art school with Brian Ferry remembers him draining a colander of spaghetti over the toilet and accidentally <laughs> sending a sort of big load of the spaghetti into the toilet bowl and just totally unperturbed, just pulling it out and adding it to all the rest of the spaghetti. Oh, oh that was smoothie. <laughs> Renato would never do that. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was only 12 at the time, but I remember being really surprised when it turned out that Roxy Music were doing a cover of John Lennon. Because even then, I had them down as a band that were a million miles away from the era of the Beatles. And, you know, even now they hold up as one of those bands who cut through that post-Beatles split-up malaise and, and kicked everything on. So the idea that they were looking back in tribute and, and citing him as an influence, that, yeah, did my head in. Yeah, and it's very explicit. I mean, it says a tribute on the sleeve to the seven inch yes. doesn't it and and yeah you do get well, in case you thought they were taking the piss <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah and i think they donated 
like a lot of it to charity. I mean, obviously, Lennon's estate will have got a lot of the proceeds from the sales of this as well. Mm. But, you know, it, you do get McKay and you get Manzarina in the video. But um, in, it's much more of a Brian Ferry move than a Roxy move. It, it, yes. it, that's what it feels like to me, because obviously he's done albums before full of covers. So, yeah, yeah this it, it, it's a bit odd. And it's a shame that we're, we're coming to it like this. It is a great song, though, because, I mean... Uh, yeah having to do this meant i went back to the lennon version which i hadn't done in ages and it is uh, it's one of his best i think yeah there's only about three good tracks on the album imagine which is hugely overrated but yeah <laughs> jealous guy is a wonderful and chilling record but it's a right downer to an episode of top <laughs> of the pops that hasn't fulfilled our expectations of a 1981 episode at all has it no and this probably i mean that's precisely what makes this episode quite interesting i mean nothing comes on after it this is the last song of the episode the credits roll over to the bitter end of the credits yeah because how can you follow up to this man the fucking coffin lid's been shut yeah you can't really fade this out and then go anyway we'll be back next week here's do the hucklebuck by coast to coast hey and it's a fox site better than all those years ago by george harrison which we're going to be treated to in a couple of months oh my god <laughs> yes mm. <laughs> oh no it's just it's weird seeing roxy doing this because it's such a dull narrative you know the biggest rock star dies and they do a tribute it's because this is the the first band to understand and use postmodernism you know mm. because generally speaking when bands attempt to do that it's really a cop out and they get it all wrong whereas roxy music it was probably only them and david bowie in the 70s who could actually have told you what postmodernism was and they actually understood what they were doing. And that approach was what gave them meaning, you know. And it's surprising how few bands, even art school educated bands, really understood how to do that. So here they are on top of the pops and it's like, oh, you know, theatrical tears, the guy's dead, you know. It's just... Mm. Do you think mankind will ever stop going on about the Beatles? And it is mankind as well. <laughs> you know, I mean, the obsession with Elvis, that's tailed right off. But just when you think the tea bag of the mop fabs has been thoroughly squeezed, some new artifact will pop up and it starts all over again. I mean, I always look at the podcast charts, see how we're getting on. And we're surrounded by Beatles podcasts. A lot of them really fucking good. But it's like, will we ever stop going on about them? No, pop needs a centrality here and there. It needs a canon. Mm. So it's never going to go away no no uh, and, and you know the the only thing that's going to happen is there's going to be more of it yeah um i mean has everything been uncovered about the beatles yet i don't know i'm not sure the best book has ever been written about the beatles yet but i mean no pop needs no, he's that. still writing it <laughs> yeah so our beatles fans will know exactly what i mean <laughs> but no I, I don't think it will and, and it shouldn't do to be mm. honest with you if we could do with a little less i personally think we could do with a little less because uh, you know th there is that sit down eat your beatles thing yeah and it's funny how other bands i mean for instance the who and, and and you know the stones don't get that centrality i don't think that the beatles have but you know they didn't in our lives when we were growing up they, mm. they're part of the national songbook mm. to, to a deeper extent than any other band you know you did these songs at school mm. you knew them by the time you were 10 you knew a lot of beatles songs whether you liked it or not and there were so them. many others yeah. you hadn't discovered yet yeah yeah, they're the kind of mandatory. They're, 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 they're sort of, yeah, the mandatory if you're British. It's going to rise to a massive peak when McCartney dies. Yeah. Especially if he's the last one to go, but yeah. 
or even if he isn't yeah it's i think we could do with a bit less beatles in the in as much as the beatles are now like the royal family of music mm. i think we could do with a lot yeah. less of that but i think we do with a bit more beatles in the sense of them being smart intelligent cynical imaginative people trying to create something that was really valuable Mm. and you know but without taking themselves seriously in that way while they did it yeah and i think that will only come with new people talking about them rather than the same old fuckers that it always is you know what i mean yeah there's gonna be bbc4 stuff there's gonna be documentaries and you're gonna see the same old ads different perspective but would be beneficial i think Mm. i think it's just that what i perceive as the bad reasons why a lot of music is made now is the opposite of the reason why the beatles were making music and the way it's done is the opposite of the way the beatles were doing it bring that stuff back make that stuff the standard not the the bit about you know oh look you know paul mccartney's like the fucking paddington bear of music you know so i don't think that helps anybody Mm. especially not Paddington Bear got to admit that this Lennon deluge of early 1981 it put me off the Beatles for quite a few years to the point where when I finally got to listen to um, Sergeant Pepper when I got it out of the library in 1984 I would play it really low on my dad's music centre in absolute terror that someone I know would walk past and catch me listening <laughs> to the Beatles you know what I mean Yeah, their stock was that low yeah that's what I'm like with Marillion. <laughs> Getting back to the matter in hand, though, I should say, I completely believe in Brian Ferry's work, all of it, right? Even this, which I don't like very much and I don't think works very well. Mm. I believe in it. Even the stuff that you barely notice is there because that really is him, right? He really is that vague and offhand and decorative you know it's Mm. i interviewed him a few years ago yes you did i think probably a badly overwritten article like a lot of my stuff from that time but i was going through a peculiar period but part of the reason for the overwriting is that he had genuinely nothing to say it wasn't a front he wasn't being rude he wasn't tired it wasn't that like daniel powter's confidant he'd had a bad day Mm. it just wasn't there i was prodding him into talking about art right trying to get to all these extraordinary ideas under the surface but he would only talk in the blandest and most superficial terms so then i was trying to get him to talk about silly stuff trying to crack it open a bit but he's got no sense of humor so he's very pleasant and obviously intelligent but he just came across as a man with middle brow good taste and nothing much else you know putting together these records out of complimentary shades of nothing which mm. uh, as i said at the time sound like an expensive gas like nothing there yeah. at all which is i think is fine right but you're, you're thinking can this really be an accurate reflection of brian ferry who started all this by scattering a million fantastic ideas in intriguing patterns out of his own weird brill creamed head right so something must be going on in there but my speculation now is that sometimes people with a lot of ideas in their head don't really like it and as they get older their ambition is to work towards a quieter mind Mm -hmm. and a state of grace where all these things are in balance and you can just float through your existence Mm -hmm. and maybe that complex network of signs and signifiers which held up early roxy music was really just a ladder 
on which he could climb out of that into a universe where he didn't have to care anymore, mm-hmm. where you can just glide around doing that shrugging palms up dance, you know, eyes screwed up, <laughs> drifting in the clouds of this lush anesthetized music you know and everything's fine oh somebody's hijacking your plane yeah no worry <laughs> mm. it's like being in heaven to him maybe it would be for me but that would marry the trajectory of the roxy albums when you think about it i mean there's a real dissonance with what you've just said about how he was an in interview and then you think of obviously the, the like the first three albums you think about siren yeah. as well i mean these are dazzling records yeah. and and you know <laughs> if you were interviewing him in 73 or something and he was genuinely just that blank that would be really dissonant because they're full yes. of ideas those records whereas you do get yeah. the, you do get the feeling with late 70s Roxy that, that, that it's not so much that they're aiming for a purity or a sincerity but they're aiming for perhaps a little bit more simplicity perhaps a few less ideas I think eventually he starts aiming for dignity right. uh, which is an odd thing to aim for but yeah no, that's really interesting that he didn't actually say much but no. truth be told, it's probably better like that, isn't it? I mean, if he'd have fully explicated all of his ideas... What about fox hunting and Brexit? Mm. <laughs> yeah. I think yeah. you should have just asked him some better questions, Taylor, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, no, I, yeah, I agree. I would have asked him, what's the best out of Whoop Scotty's um, Tasty Tarts Foster Grants and Allied for Carpets for You? Yes. Which one do you look back on with most pride, Brian? <laughs> it was really tempted <laughs> but the thing is when you look back what's the most amazing thing is he was there in that period where you could propel yourself from that difficult place to that easier place financially mm. with art yeah. rather than art dealing or mm. financial services or some other branch of the industry of human unhappiness mm. because Nowadays, you can only really get rich by making less fortunate people unhappy Mm. or taking something from them or overcharging them for something. And if you want to do something positive or artistic, you're expected to do that in your spare time, assuming you're allowed any. Mm. And it slightly blows the mind to think that in our living memory, you could be skint do something purely constructive and creative and made with love and as a result of that end up in a mansion and i don't mean like you know one american singer or rapper has got 85 private jets and a golden toilet and everyone else in music only eats next week if they can sell five t-shirts after the gig in those days a lot of people made really good money mm. just from bringing beautiful things into the world. It's like another reality. Mm. Mm. But this is always the thing when you look at it, the passage of time, and it, it involves moving forwards and backwards at once, like the staircase shot from Vertigo. Mm-hmm. I bet you get somebody else to drain his spaghetti over the bog now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what a shame Mino wasn't still in Roxy Music, because maybe they'd have done Revolution Number 9. <laughs> This episode would have gone on for another fucking 15 minutes. So jealous guy would spend two weeks at number one before being crushed under the white shot heel of Comrade Shaker and would be their only number one single in the UK. For shame, the follow-up more than this, would get to number six in October of 1982, which was the first cut from their final LP, Avalon, and they split up in 1983. 
Mark Chapman remains incarcerated at the Greenhaven Correctional Facility in New York after 12 denials of parole and his next attempt will be in February of 2024. In none of his many statements at either parole hearings or media interviews has he apologised personally to Adamant or Simon Price for the playground falsehood that he cried when John Lennon died. So as far as I'm concerned, the bastard can fry. <laughs> and that pop craze youngsters brings us to the end of this episode of top of the pops what's on telly afterwards well bbc one kicks on with the fourth episode of their new sitcom heidi high ted can't hear you heidi high holy ho where Fred Quilly Bent Jockey is convinced that a betting syndicate is in the camp and about to cut him up proper then it's the second ever episode of Sorry, where Timothy Lumsden gets some aggro from the massive boyfriend of a woman he's knocking about with. After the nine o'clock news, it's the final part of the American TV version of Brave New World. Then the news headlines, question time, the weather and close down at five past midnight. BBC Two has just finished 100 great paintings. Then it's 15 minutes of highlights from the racing at Cheltenham. The documentary In Search of Athelstan, where Michael Wood knocks about a ruined abbey in Wiltshire and bangs on about Smoke King. And the 11th part of the BBC's adaptation of The Little World of Don Camillo, about the communist takeover of a small town in northern Italy. Man Alive looks at how our chances of being killed on the road hasn't changed in 50 years and what the government is doing about it, which is fuck all. Then it's news night and close down at midnight. ITV has just finished the latest episode of Bogner, the drama series about an investigator who works for the Board of Trade. Yeah, I've never seen that programme. All I know is that it's about a man called Simon Bogner. Mm. <laughs> who works for the Department of Trade. Imagine taking that one into a meeting with TV executives. Yeah. yeah. I'm pretty confident about this pitch. <laughs> you get a better pitch at the baseball ground in February 1974. Also, according to IMDb, this programme also stars Tim Meats as Lingard. Ooh. Tim Meats. M-E-A-T-S. Tim Meats. <laughs> Then it's the Brian Murphy and Roy Kinnear sitcom The Incredible Mr. Tanner about a couple of down-on-their-luck street performers. Yeah, which I watched in preference to Heidi Eye for about three weeks and had no one to talk about it with at school. Yeah, yeah. serves you right. Yeah, it did. TVI investigates the Atlanta child murders. Then it's Hill Street Blues, The News at 10, regional political show in your area. Then Gus MacDonald looks at the pioneers of cinema in camera. Then it's regional news update in your area Lou Grant and close down at 25 to 1 so dear boys what are we talking about in the playground tomorrow uh, Bucks Fizz Bucks Fizz they're going to mm. win they're going to win uh, how come the who are meant to be mods but they all look like your mate's dad who's got a CB radio <laughs> and also when the men rip the ladies clothes off <laughs> what are we buying on Saturday oh um, not Toya, obviously. I think I'm by Duran Duran, um, Visage, Books Fizz, and um, oh, what else? Um, no, that's it. 
<laughs> no, sorry, this whole house comrade shaky as well. I'd consider buying Roxy Music, even though it's their worst single, because these things are relative. And the Who, just to keep the faith. And what does this episode tell us about March of 1981? The usual thing that, um, you know the golden golden ages is quite often piss mm. and that the 80s is, is not all going to be a young thrusting decade the old no. fuckers are actually going to have quite a big say as to how the rest of this decade is going to sound oh, yes that there was more than one march 1981 although they did happen simultaneously mm. and that pop craze youngsters brings us to the end of this episode of chart music usual promotional flange www.chart-music.co.uk facebook.com slash chart music reach out to us on twitter at chart music t-o-t-p money down the g-string and updates on our live show patreon.com slash chart music thank you taylor parks unless of course you know different God bless you, Neil Kulkarne. No worries. My name's Al Needham, and if you want to see some more... (laughs) Taylor, you said you'd have pants on. (laughs) Chart music. On BBC Two Now, Brass Tax reports on the mood of today's university students. Here on BBC One, we go live to the Lyceum Ballroom in London for Miss England 1978. Julie, Miss Norwich. Beverly, Miss Blackburn. Jasmine, Miss Dunstable. Carol, Miss Liverpool North. Susan, Miss Hammersmith. Jackie, Miss Chester. Janet, Miss Scunthorpe. And I'm Jacqueline, Miss Streatham. This is Miss England. Everything about her is lovely. This is Miss England. Looking like a picture of pure sensation. Julie, Miss Birmingham. Patricia, Miss Leeds. Linda, Miss Tottenham. Debbie, Miss Stafford. Debbie, Miss Manchester. Rita, Miss Bournemouth. Angie, Miss Nottingham. And I'm Jill, Miss Sheffield. Miss Newcastle Alison Miss Sunderland Tracy Miss Leicester Debbie Miss Brighton Beverly Miss Southampton Denise Miss Liverpool South Jay Miss Purley Lancara Miss Portsmouth Terry Wogan Good evening and welcome However, lest your senses become drugged with all this talk of beauty here to bring us back to stark reality is the beast Ray Moore People are saying we're in love, you know, Terry Yes, it's just an ugly rumour, though. It's about the only ugly thing here tonight. Miss Blackburn, Beverly Isherwood. Her great passion in life is watching golf. A pretty attractive birdie she is herself, too. Yes, Janet Norris, Miss Scunthorpe, a great musician, very fond of playing the piano. Terry was telling me she's got a lovely touch. Miss Scunthorpe, number seven. And Miss Tottenham, Linda Hart, number 11, used to be a croupier in a nightclub. She's a very good bet by the look of it herself tonight. She's 24, by the way. And Susan Cockett, 20 years old, and in fact has been involved in the National Child Development Survey since birth. Developed rather well, I'd have thought, Miss Hammersmith. 
our final two young misses, contestant number 31, Jay Aston, Miss Purley, and number 32, Miss Portsmouth, Karen Palmer. Miss Purley, a rather interesting girl, actually. Jay Aston is her name. She's 17, very keen on weight training. And she picked up a train to get here tonight. Likes jogging with her dog. And at home, she's got thousands of rabbits, she was saying. Doesn't seem to know what's causing them somehow. She's 22 years old and recently appeared on the Generation Game with her father. She wants to go round Brown's Hatch with James Hunt and complete an army assault course. And the following day, she'd have a lie-in. Her wildest ambition in life is to drive a police car, for reasons best known to herself. She was telling me this afternoon she wants to try and improve her capabilities. They look fine to me as they are. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.